Turn it on and rip the knob off. This is episode 7, and I am in heaven here at the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Ray Russell, along with my co-host, Stephen Ekstat. And ladies and gentlemen, we have quite the long haul for you this week. We're going to tackle the entire month of April 1989 of the National Wrestling Alliance. That covers all four weekends as we head into next week's episode of The Grenade, where we will be doing the weekend of May 6th and the watch-along of the WWE Network version of Wrestle War 89. And as I already mentioned, joining me again this week, as per the usual, Stephen Ekstat. Welcome back to the show, brother. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to get through this. And Steve, I know I'm ready for this four-week journey into April of 1989. The question is, are you ready? Yeah, man, I'm ready for solid weeks of NWA TV. I'm really excited to see the buildup for Wrestle War, and it should be fun to get through this. And before we get moving with the show, let me remind everyone that next week, next Monday, October 5th, we will be announcing the winner of the Grenade's first free prize giveaway of the autographed 1989 promo pick of the Total Package Lex Luger. And the winner will be chosen at random and announced as part of the big Wrestle War 89 watch-along episode schedule for October 5th. For those who are curious, we do have images of that autograph up on our Twitter account right now. In order to qualify, all you have to do is follow us on Twitter. It's that simple. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And please retweet our free gift giveaway tweet because the more followers we have, the more gifts we can give away in the weeks and months to come. I should also note that this particular giveaway is a U.S.-based prize. We do have plans in the future for digital gift giveaways for our listeners outside of the U.S., but given a lot of things currently going on with the American Postal Service, the physical gifts like autographs and DVD prize packs and whatnot will be U.S.-based. But to all of our friends outside of the U.S., don't you worry. We have prize packs planned for you guys as well, coming very soon. But in order to win any of our free prize giveaways, you must follow us on Twitter. So it all begins there. And one last time, we're at Wrestling Grenade, and we hope to hear from you soon. We've also got to give a big shout out to everyone over at the Retro Network, Jason, Mickey, and all the crew. They continue to put out retro era content like no other. You can follow them on Twitter at TRN Social. Most recently, Karen of TRN put out a fun article on music videos that premiered in primetime on network TV. Remember when that was a thing? Like a huge deal? Great memories here. I remember being in front of my TV for several of these debuts. Just crazy to think back 30 years ago. From Do the Bartman to Madonna's Like a Prayer, even Michael Jackson's Black or White, I remember being there. This is a fun read, and it's a great job by Karen, so go check that one out. Also, Old School 80s Tim recently did a deep dive into a treasure trove of vintage late 70s and early 80s Dr. Pepper commercials during their Be a Pepper campaign. Make sure to go check that out as well as there's a slew of old commercials ready for your viewing pleasure. Another fun trip down memory lane. And with that out of the way, it's time to head into April 89 and the National Wrestling Alliance. Okay, and we're coming off the Clash of the Champions, Raging Cajun. Steamboat is still the champion. The Road Warriors have suffered their first loss in over four years. Yet somehow the biggest piece of news is the firing of George Scott. So you have to figure these syndicated shows for the next few weeks were recorded before Scott's departure, so it may take a few weeks before we see any change in the syndicated TV. But I'm curious to see how fast things change and what happens next. 
and we move into the following weekend of April 8th, 1989. And we kick things off with the NWA Pro Show for April 8th. First match out is Ranger Ross over the Enforcer with a combat kick at 3 minutes 15 seconds. Ross came out with a different theme this week. Used some type of Armed Forces music, but no idea what it was. Lots of similar spots here for Ross from last week's TV. Too much offense by the jobber again. Uh, Ranger Ross is giving too much offense to the job guys here to be this early on in his tenure. Kevin Sullivan is uh, especially fun in this match. At one point, Ranger Ross does that leap over the top rope to the floor, and Sullivan says, let me guess, Bob, he did that parachuting. He makes fun of, uh, Bob tries to put Ranger Ross over in his background and the military over, and, and Sullivan just shoots it down repeatedly throughout the match, and Bob tries to put over Ross going to Grenada, and uh, Sullivan's response is hilarious, and I, I grabbed it right here on an audio bite. All right, fans, and we're really excited about having Ranger Ross here in our program. We are. We yes, are. Sir, here's a real, honest-to-goodness, true, red-blooded American hero, Ranger How do you know that? How do you know that? Have you ever seen any documents... He, I've seen nothing. He personally was awarded a medal by former President Reagan. Several medals, several awards, outstanding ranger. I think he was the fifth was, was man on the plane in Granada, for instance. In Granada? Yes, sir. Were we under attack in Granada? I didn't realize that, Bob. Thank give you. Give I learned something every day. You can't even take a good look because you're looking at what is really an American hero. A true ranger, Ranger Ross. Headlock down the enforcer. Here's a man that's been there. He's I can sleep a lot better tonight. enemy eyeball to eyeball, Kevin. Well, I know I'll sleep a lot better tonight. We won't be attacked by Grenada. Woo, that's good. And Kevin Sullivan just being a total dick there, but fun stuff. Yeah, he just totally trashed all over him. <laughs> I will say, I like the I like the uh, the combat kick. He uses that like that off leg, the far away leg from like the hard camera. Right. So it's like the off leg, and it just looks different. I mean, and he nails it flush almost every single time. So that's about really the only good thing that he consistently does. Um, in these matches, it's been downhill since his first one. And we get some commercials on this show. So we go from Army Ranger Ross to a Swiss Army watch. Okay, so as some of you might recall, a few episodes back, I was I was marking out over the old laser beam wristwatch commercials that came on in the late 80s, early 90s. Basically, it was a wristwatch where the hands were digital. And one of the selling points was that you could make the hands disappear and reappear at will. Why anyone would want to do that is beyond me, but that was the thing back in 1989. Not a good thing, but still a thing. And that commercial brought back memories for me. Well, now we have a commercial here for the Swiss Army Watch. And if this wasn't the dumbest, gaudiest, clunkiest looking piece of cow poo-poo I've ever seen, I don't know what is. It's basically a watch that has your typical hands clock, but what looks like a compass on it and a third window that I'm not really sure what it does. Maybe it tells you if you're pregnant, not really sure. But this watch, it doesn't have smaller functions inside the main clock screen. No, it has three separate screens that all protrude from the wristband. If this wasn't the ugliest looking thing, dude, I, here, look, I got a picture for you. Check it out right here. You see, absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> That is horrendous. Like, who would wear that? And so I'm going to post to our Twitter account, and I'll let the listeners decide. Like the Laser Wrist Beam Watch, retweet the Swiss Army Watch, and we'll let you guys decide who the winner is here. I'm going to have to go with the Laser Beam Wrist Watch. Just an awful-looking piece of crap. Yeah, it's terrible. Oh, my goodness. I've never seen things so ugly. <laughs> Even for the 80s, that's, it was bad. And we move on with the actual action. Michael Hayes now teaming with Butch Reed this week over Tony Suber and Cougar J. Butch Reed with the flying shoulder block. And, of course, Hayes has to tag in and hit the DDT for the finish. Four and a half minutes. And at the beginning of this match, Michael Hayes has to cut a heel promo to try to get some heel heat here. And he points out the, the stable that Hiro Matsuda's acquired at this point. Listen to this stable. At this point, we think it's Ric Flair, Butch Reed, Barry Windham, 
Michael Hayes and Kendall Wyndham also. But what a group. Just look at the names. Reed, Flair, Barry Wyndham, Hayes. It's insane to think how many big names were at one point supposed to be all together in one unit. Yeah, it's pretty insane, especially for 1989. I mean, those guys are at the top of the list as far as, I mean, Flair and Wyndham by themselves is good enough. But then you add in like a caliber of Butch Reed, who's starting to get his feet wet and, you know, getting back into wrestling shape and getting better. Hayes, I mean, he's living on name value at this point, but his entering has a lot to be desired. But yeah, I mean, just those four together is pretty crazy. And I, I know it was this was probably recorded before the World Championship Wrestling Show, but it's funny seeing Cougar J on TV so many times right after the Jack Victory Danger Zone segment, yet Randy Rose is still injured. So what does that make Rose look like when Cougar J is already technically back in action while Randy Rose is on the shelf? The only other fun thing out of this match was Michael Hayes likes to no-sell the job, guys, and here Hayes actually, he couldn't slam Suber, and they actually gave Suber a little comeback there, so I thought that was fun. It was a hot crowd. They actually got behind Tony Suber during the match, but just another simple squash, and Michael Hayes butchery going over. Iron Sheik, flanked by Rip Morgan now, gets a win over Thomas Ivey with the camel clutch in a minute and 45, and thank God they've weaned these Iron Sheik matches down to under two minutes. My first note here was poor Rip Morgan getting stuck here with the Iron Sheik. Uh, I don't know what he did to piss anyone off in the back, but Rip Morgan now accompanying Iron Sheik to the ring. I'd say Rip needs a mentor, but not this guy. Yeah, absolutely not. Iron Sheik's going to do nothing for anybody at this point in his career. Six-man tag team match. Dick Murdoch, Ron Simmons, and Vince Young. What an odd pairing that is. Over the team of Lee Scott, Rip Morgan, and John Brewer. And what's the sense of putting Rip Morgan with the Iron Sheik and then sticking him in a squash match as one of the job guys? But anyways, Murdoch gets the win over Brewer here with the dusty elbow. Match goes about three and a half minutes. And I can't imagine what was going through Murdoch and Ron Simmons' mind having the team with this new kid's reject, Vince Young. Simmons looked good here again. He was fast and deliberate, full of piss and vinegar. What noise for Murdoch, too. Murdoch was really over here. Dusty elbow seemed abrupt. It just came out of nowhere, so I'm not really sure if they had to take it home or what happened there. But Murdoch puts them away, and we get another win for the good guys. Promo with Bob Caudill with Ricky Steamboat and Son. Steamboat's still the world heavyweight champion here. Nothing more to it. The Great Muda back out here again. Another big win this week over Bob Emery. Gets another win with the Moonsault, yet to be named Moonsault. Match goes three minutes. Muta has to have the greatest plancha in the biz. Nobody snaps it up high in the air like Muta does. Just really good stuff here once again from the Great Muda. No shocker. Midnight Express over Snake Brown and the Raider. Stan Lane over Raider with the double flapjack in four minutes and 50 seconds. Kevin Sullivan puts over Eaton like, whoa, here. A lot of show of respect. It was a shoot show of respect. I don't know if you were paying attention to the commentary, but Kevin Sullivan really just put over Bobby Eaton, put him over the moon here. I didn't pick up on it. I'm not surprised. I just want to say, like, the swinging neck breaker that Bobby Eaton does is, like, one of the best in the business. Uh, kind of like mood is plunger. Oh, yeah. It's always so clean and so crisp, and it never looks awkward. The uh, swinging neck breaker looked like trash by some of these guys because they're yeah. so, so slow and deliberate. Where Eaton, man, he just snaps it off right away, and it just looks really good. That's probably his best move. And it's funny you said that because I was going to put that into my notes on two separate occasions here as I was watching these weeks of NWA TV. There were just two times that he did the move, and I, I almost typed that up, and I said, ah, I wrote enough, so I let it go. But I agree with you. It just looks like a phenomenal move when Bobby is uh, executing it. We close the show with Joe Pettacino knows. It's a clip from the class. The Road Warriors lose the World Tag Team titles to the Varsity Club. Teddy Long, he was hit by Animal, jostled. His, his mind wasn't right, he says. It was in the heat of the moment, he says. The fate of Teddy Long will be decided on a future episode. What did you think about the whole Road Warriors Teddy Long thing? I liked it. I mean, it's it's a good way. It's an entertaining way to get Teddy Long out of refereeing to transition to his new new role. They're not necessarily sure what they want to do with him. Right. Based off what Victor was saying, they didn't know yet. But this is a way to 
start the ball rolling. You could have gone a million different ways with this. You know, maybe they got paid. He just got paid off by the varsity club. Maybe he's a secret member there. Uh, maybe he's just getting his feet wet and realizes he doesn't want to be a ref anymore. He's tired of these guys beating him up, so he's going to get people to beat him up for him. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. But uh, to go after the Road Warriors as a referee, I mean, you better have something big to be able to go against the roadies. So right. um, that's interesting, but I like it. It's different. And talk about paying dues and working from the ground up. Teddy Long started off at WTBS Studios cleaning up the floor, sweeping the floor. He became a ring attendant, started taking the jackets to the backstage area, finally got a job as a referee, and, and here in 1989 parlays that all into a manager spot. So it took multiple years to get to where he's at, but he worked his way up there, and uh, kudos to Teddy Long. He's a Hall of Famer. I mean, I don't know how much value the WWE Hall of Fame has, but just to be even considered for that is pretty awesome. So uh, it's a great job by Teddy Long. That's what happens when you bust your ass and work hard. And we move on to NWA Worldwide for April 8th. Lance Russell hosts the show alone, or so it would seem to begin the show anyway. We kick things off with U.S. Tag Team Champions Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner, along with Missy Hyatt. Over Lee Scott and Snake Brown in 5 minutes and 20 seconds. Eddie Gilbert with a hot shot on Scott. It was fun here with uh, Rick Steiner and Snake Brown in the ring together. Rick Malls, Lee Scott as well. Eddie Gilbert lets Scott power slam him so he can go for that big high-flying elbow drop that Scott misses once again. Then Rick tags in, and that, that's when we see the murdering <laughs> Steiner line. Yeah, holy shit, what a clothesline. <laughs> like, he literally takes the He murders him. Yeah, and like I said, yeah, I grabbed yeah. a gif of that, and I'm going to have that up on Twitter this week. So check it out. Watch Lee Scott get murdered. Yeah, and also that move where he catches him, it's like he has him so high up, like in a bear hug, and then he just dumps him over his head. like a It's like a belly-to-belly suplex, overhead style. Right. But it looks so different because he has him up like in a bear hug. I, I know the first time we've seen it, we've seen it, like, I think, on Saturday night. Jim Ross or in Hayes, I think, went nuts over the move. Like, it's insane. And then he does it again, and I'm just like, my goodness, the power this dude has. Because it looks like he's just dead weight in it. He's not like, it doesn't look like he's getting any help from the jobbers. He's just tossing them around with his own strength. And it's just incredible. Rick Steiner's on another level in 1989. Oh, absolutely. 100% agree. At this point, Lance Russell's still out here by himself. And I didn't even notice. He was so good on his own out here. Lance Russell on his own out here just kills it in the first opening match by himself. Unfortunately, that wouldn't last very long because joining him on commentary in the next match is Mr. Personality himself, Mike Rotunda. And that match sees the Iron Sheik team with Butch Reed, and what an odd pairing that was, over Jerry Price and Cougar J. Butch Reed with the shoulder block, tags in the Sheik for the Saito suplex and the camel clutch, and that ends it in about 5 minutes, 20 seconds. Referee still here is Byron Scott. I noted that because last week they had changed his name to Byron Richards, and so it had seen for one episode anyway. He's back to being Byron Scott here. And with 5 minutes and 20 seconds, this is the Iron Sheik's longest match yet. He was hidden with Volkov in the WWF where Sheik was actually the better worker, which is just funny to think about. But he works okay here in a tag team, but I wouldn't necessarily keep him here with Butch Reed. I'd save Reed, but yeah, uh, Iron Sheik with a partner who is halfway decent and is equal and not a follower, that might work. I don't know if anything can work for Iron Sheik, but the only thing that he, his only chance is a tag team with somebody decent, like you said. Joe Pettacino knows. It's more fallout from Clash of the Champions 6. He discusses the Flair and Steamboat drama. Flair gets his foot on the ropes. And what's going to happen with that, we'll find out on the 605 show. Tag team match, Vincent Young and Dick Murdoch over Max MacGyver and the Raider in three minutes. Murdoch dropping that elbow again one more time for the death of Rhodes, baby. Drops it on MacGyver. And a fun thing at the end of this match was, and I don't know if you were paying attention, but 
Young starts doing his break dancing, and Dick Murdoch tells him to get back down and do it again. And then Dick Murdoch kind of mimics that he's like spinning a record or something like that, and he gets Young going there. So that was kind of fun with Dick having a little fun in the ring. Yeah, so I did pick up on that. That was pretty hilarious. He's just spinning his finger around <laughs> like he's going around and around. It's really, really good job by Dick Murdoch. They're having that's, fun. And that's another GIF I grabbed. I had to grab that. I couldn't resist. And that'll be up on our Twitter this week as well. My only other takeaway from this match was I liked Lance Russell a whole lot better on his own. Mike Rotunda did nothing to add to this commentary. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. I, when he first joined, I was like, yeah, this should be interesting. And it was flat and boring. It was a waste of time. He shouldn't even have been out there. More planted seeds here as Lance Russell interviews the Varsity Club. At one point, Dr. Death asks Kevin Sullivan why Mike Rotunda is the captain of the team, why Mike Rotunda is commentating tonight and he's not. Kevin kind of bypasses those questions, but it's interesting considering that, you know, they're now the world tag team champions and yet there's already issues between the two. Yeah, I thought once they lost the U.S. tag titles and then Mike lost the TV title, I thought, okay, this is it. The varsity club, they must be coming apart, separating at this point. And then the next night they win the world tag titles and I'm like, huh, maybe not, not not just yet. But yeah, you can kind of tell they're kind of moving on from the varsity club. This is the seeds that are going to be planted. Uh, it's not bad. Those subtle things are always cool. I always like those instead of just being obvious. These are little hidden things that they're doing to, like you say, get to a, a point. Next match, we see the SST accompanied by Paulie Dangerously and Jack Victory over Bob Emery and Greg Brown. Simple two-minute squash. Samu with the back superplex of death. And then Fatu finishes up with the splash on Brown for the win. U.S. heavyweight champion Lex Luger over Chance Myers with the torture rack in three and a half minutes. During the match, Myers tries a little offense on Luger. Luger no-sells that, does some flexing for the fans, and his body is just insane. The mass he has put on since Shaitan Rumble is just crazy. Yeah, somebody must have told him he was looking flat or skinny and uh, <laughs> probably went and got a supply and hit the gym for 20 hours a week or something. Uh, I mean, it seems to be the way he is. Yeah, he's getting huge. Promo time again, Lance Russell with Pauly Dangerously, the SST and Jack Victory. A lot of crazy stuff going on here. They're selling hard the Luger Clash match, which already has taken place, although they're selling it like the Clash hasn't happened yet, but the match between Luger and Jack Victory, which also didn't even air on the Clash, so this entire promo should have been edited out of the show. Yeah, and he was also like rubbing the hair, I think it was Batu. Yeah, just crazy like nonsense a, going on. <laughs> like he's a pet dog or something. I was like, I'd love to see someone try this crap in 2020. <laughs> I would love to see it, see how fast it gets shut down. Final match of the program, NWA World Champion Ricky Steamboat over Rip Morgan with a crossbody in four minutes. Steamboat's back with Bonnie and Son at ringside. It had been nice for a little bit. I thought they were being phased out. They were, hadn't been on TV for a week or two there, but here's Bonnie back in her best Miss Elizabeth WrestleMania 4 garb here and just blah. Yeah, I'm with you there. Joe Pettacino knows it's a rehash of the pro episode with the Road Warriors and Teddy Long issues from Clash of the Champions 6, and that'll take us to the nighttime program, World Championship Wrestling for April 8th. This is our first center stage show, technically, although it's all over the place. We're in a control center, we're in center stage, we're all over the place. Yeah, it's a cluster. And because I was a little confused about how much time the program was showing on the WWE Network, I went and grabbed my live version of the show. And what's weird is my live tape and the WWE Network version, some of the segments are in different order. Very weird. Yeah, I've noticed that too. I was even looking for results online and it started with the danger zone. And then all this stuff with like Flair's lawyer was after the fact. So definitely awkward. I don't know what's up with that, but interesting. So the show opens with the finish of the Flair and Steamboat match from Clash of the Champions. 
We have Jim Ross in the TBS or CNN. I'm not really sure where he's at, but he's in a control center somewhere. I guess they're still not quite ready to host a show from center stage. We relive highlights of the Flair Steamboat match yet again. We cut to a promo with Flair's attorney, Dennis Guthrie, who is actually a legit attorney. I thought he was uh, Jim or Jim Crockett's attorney. Is that what it was? Okay. I knew he was somebody's yeah. attorney. Yeah, I think it was Crockett. Uh, Guthrie demands a rematch within 30 days or he will file suit. He demands that NWA representatives be at ringside to observe and judge the match. And he also requests that a second referee will be ringside so that they can overpower the ring referee just in case there's more issues like there were in the last outing. I got to talk about this for a second. Yeah. So this doesn't jive with me at all. Uh, <laughs> So the Clash 6 ends in controversy. We get that. Steamboat even said, if I was in Flair's shoes, I would want to rematch myself. So he already says he's he would want the same thing, and he understands why Ric Flair would be upset. So why are the first thing that we see after the Clash, you know, on TV, on TBS or whatever, if people don't watch syndicated, they just wait for the big shows. Yeah. The first thing you see is an attorney on here demanding that we get a rematch within 30 days or I'm suing everybody and a brother. This makes no sense to me. This whole feud has been based off of what's happened in the ring and they're professionals. They're cur- they've been courteous to each other. Right. They treat each other with respect. Yeah. They've give and take both ways. So I, I don't understand why they need to bring in lawyers. This doesn't work for me. I, I, it's just like, it's a completely out of left field based off of how this story was written in the matches. For whatever reason, I just feel like if Steamboat is, like you said earlier, if he's the man that he says he is, it wasn't a fair ending. Flair had his foot under the rope. You had your own foot under the rope. He deserves a rematch. So I'll give it to him. That's how he's been portrayed this whole time. So why do you need a lawyer to threaten everybody just to get what you want? Um, Meltzer said he's cringed at the thought of this and then it happened and he thought this was really good. That's just bias, I think, because this stuff never works. And I don't know. I can only put 1989 eyes on it for a minute. Maybe that's why Meltzer liked it. It was something extremely different in professional wrestling at that time. So maybe that's why he liked it. Maybe he liked it because it was fresh and new at that time. Obviously, this has been redone and there was that whole Clarence Mason era in the WWF as well beyond this. But I liked it, but I didn't like it for what's going on right here. Like you said, this has been pretty cordial other than the fight at Clash of the Champions 5, the brawl. They got a little out of hand. But other than that, this has been pretty cordial. They've, they've made this about who the best wrestler is. And Steamboat did agree that he thought Flair deserved another championship match. But the only thing I could come up with if I'm going to make an excuse here for anyone is that maybe they wanted it in writing. Maybe they wanted it done immediately. Maybe they didn't want to wait. And if, I, if I'm pretending that wrestling is real here for a moment, maybe that's the story here. I mean, that's all I can give you. Other than that, I mean, I liked the idea. Maybe not here, like you said, but I thought it was okay, but. I was just going to say, I also thought maybe, you know, Steamboat's been getting booed out of the building everywhere he's at. So why not just let him go subtle heel just a little bit? Not maybe got full on, full fledged heel. I, obviously, we don't want to do that with Flair being the challenger. But maybe just say, you know what? I gave you matches. I be- I'm 3 1 right now. I beat you two times in New Orleans. I beat you at Chicago. You've only beat me once in a two out of three falls match. I'm 3 and 1 right now against you. I've already beaten three times. I have nothing more to prove. Let me fight other guys. You earn yourself another title shot. Why don't you go take on a Luger or something? and get you another shot it may not necessarily jive with the story they were trying to sell as the big picture that they were painting as far as what they set up probably when steamboat came in but yeah i'm sure they didn't book that based on the fact that steamboat was going to get booed out of the building i mean so with that already happening put a little heat on it and let him just be a little a jerk at some point and just take matters into his own hand he's the champion he's bound down to everything rick flair says Right. And I would have even liked to have seen them incorporate a, like a Luger and Flair match into this to prolong this a little further and let Steamboat work with someone else. 
just a one-off with somebody like a Dr. Death or any of those guys. But yeah, the only thing with that is for Flair to get that title shot again at that point, he would actually have to beat Luger and win the U.S. title. Because if he loses to Luger, he's still not in contention for the heavyweight title match rematch. So kind of screws the whole storyline up. Yeah. I mean, it, it'd be tough to get around that just because you don't want him to have the belt. But they could have outdone WWF a year early. <laughs> Flair and Steamboat title for title. They could have definitely done that, and then it would have been so fresh and new when WWF did it just a year later. So right. I didn't like the lawyer part. I was just, I don't know, put me off. And we get a rehash of a Clash of the Champions comment made by Jim Ross. Once again, a cheesy comment here from Jim Ross. He wants to say hello to all the NWA fans in Connecticut, the especially great fans in Stamford. They have a show tonight in Connecticut is what he's plugging. I just think this is so tacky to continue to take jabs at the WWF when there ain't no fans in 1989. This doesn't register with anyone. So this is just a direct shot at Vince and company. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, I know WWE gets crapped on all the time for acting like nothing else exists. But at the same time, nothing else should exist. If you give credit or, you know, you give credence to your competition, that's just giving them life. When you're the top dog, why even acknowledge that something else exists? Like this stuff comes across as second rate and cheesy. You're just trying to poke the bear and people knew it. And WWF is like, who the heck are you? We'll do stuff behind the scenes that only subscribers to The Observer or those dirt sheets are getting. Nobody's going to know about that stuff. It's just cheap and second rate. So the big issue with the Clash of the Champions was the mission. Well, there was a lot of issues, but one of the big issues was the mismanagement of time throughout the first half of the show, which led to all sorts of issues in the second half of the show. Three championship matches were completely screwed up because you had the U.S. Tag Team match, which was probably supposed to go, I'm guessing, anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes. That gets shortened down to under four minutes just to get it on the show. And then the U.S. title and the TV title matches don't even make it to air. They're postponed and put on after the World Championship match, and they don't air on TV. They're promised to air here on the Saturday night program. However, the Lex Luger U.S. Championship match is only shown in highlight form, and I was kind of upset about that at first. Because I was like, I wanted to see these, so I wanted to see the complete card for Clash of the Champions. However, the minute and 40 seconds we got told me that I didn't need to see any more than that minute and 40 seconds that we got. It was pretty, it was pretty brutal. Jack, Jack Victory, ever since he's lost the mask, has gotten far worse in the ring. (laughs) Yeah, he has to carry his own gimmick now instead of just being under the hood and a no name guy. He's not, he hasn't been impressive at all. He looked terrible against Randy Rose, too. We get this match joint in progress from the class show. It's U.S. champion Luger taking on Jack Victory. It's the final minute and a half or so of the match. Michael Hayes comes to ringside. He tries to distract Luger. It doesn't really work. Luger gets the torture rack, wins the match pretty easy over Secret Service Jack Victory. It doesn't look like we missed much, but it was still awful. I mean, just to be 90 seconds long, this was terrible. So I don't know how long this match went, but it was it was bad. And another thing is that Jack Victory, his ass must have been so heavy for Luger because Lex actually drops Jack out of the rack before the referee even calls for the bell. Of course, the referee is Byron Scott, though, so that tells you all you need to know. And then we're sent to center stage for a U.S. championship match with Lex Luger taking on Kendall Wyndham. Michael Hayes interferes in this one as well. Kendall Wyndham nails that left-handed lariat, but doesn't really leave his feet. I don't really know why he connected like that, so it didn't look as good. But Luger winds up catching Kendall on the top rope, coming off the top rope, turns it into a power slam and grabs the win in about six minutes. What do you think of this one? It was okay. Like, I mean, I thought Luger was fine all around. Like, he was doing sunset flips, and I think he went flying over the top rope as well. He's doing a leapfrog. I mean, he he was getting bigger, but he was still flying all over the place in this match. So I I thought that was pretty good. 
And I love it how he just caught Kendall with that power slam off the top rope. I mean, it, it was really well done, and he just kind of finished it. He kind of, in a sense, protected Wyndham. He didn't put him in the rack and make him submit and just kind of kill him off. It just a power slam. Wyndham got caught with something that he probably shouldn't have done and just got pinned like that. So I thought that was kind of decent, even though they're not doing anything with Kendall. But yeah, I thought Luger looked really good here, and the crowd was eating it up. They liked him, so good job. Moving into the next match, we get Bob Orton, now with Gary Hart as his manager, taking on Shane Douglas. This match also from center stage. Match goes about 12 minutes and 40 seconds. Orton gets the one with the superplex. Felt it was a little long here. Orton comes in, does his patented press slam into the backbreaker. Very slow and plotting. I mean, again, this match goes nearly 13 minutes, so this is where I realized that Randy is definitely his father's son. Just slow and plotting. Not my cup of tea. Shane Douglas counters a pile driver with a backdrop. The crowd was really not into Shane's comeback. If you go check this match out, the crowd is dead for Shane Douglas. And he's trying hard. And he's a young, good-looking baby face. He's full of fight. And I just don't, he just wasn't connecting on this show with the fans at center stage. But Shane's throwing drop kicks. He's throwing head scissors, all those baby face type spots. But there's just no noise from the fan. I mean, literally, there's not even like a small smattering of cheers. Shane hits a, a crappy-looking missile dropkick for a two-count. Orton winds up getting the one with the superplex. That crappy missile dropkick is still better than any dropkick Michael Hayes ever did. <laughs> well, that is true. But so. this match absolutely didn't need to go anywhere near 13 minutes. No, absolutely not. Danger Zone with Pauly dangerously having Sting as his uh, guest. So I was getting scared here because I, th I was thinking, you know, we had Flair, then we had Luger, we had Dog down to Cougar J. I was thinking, what was next? Cruel Connection number two? No. We do get Sting, so that was pretty cool here. Pauly mocks Roddy Piper. He mocks the Piper's pit without actually mentioning it by name. Of course, Piper just returned at WrestleMania five, so it was timely. Sting does that stupid server voice gimmick here. It's so annoying. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I mean, to be honest with you, I really feel like Sting's just waiting to get some. I know he's the TV champ, but he has no feuds. He has nothing going on. So he's just horsing around with his gimmick until they give him something. But he had that surfer look. So just doing the voice was just probably part of it. It was just him trying to figure it out. Maybe that was his safety valve for being afraid of promos because he, if he's serious or himself, probably knew he couldn't pull it off. So he's just going to do something to be goofy. I did find it funny as hell when he comes out and does the yell right in Polly's ear. And Paul Lee gets runs off and then he comes back. I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was actually pretty good. I enjoyed it. Oh, I didn't mind the uh, actual danger zone, but I just, it feels like they gave Paul Lee this talk show segment because of the Brother Love show and Piper's Pit from WrestleMania 5 now just being fresh off of that as well. But it feels like they gave him and they have no idea what to do with it. The guys he's bringing out here, they have no direction. So he's not, he can't even play into a storyline or an angle here. And like the Brother Love show where we've seen so many angles take place or guys are out there and they're talking about who they're feuding with. The last three weeks in a row, Dog, Cougar J, now Sting, they have nothing going on. And I'm not against Sting being on the show because he's a top name and he absolutely deserves to be on the Danger Zone. But it just felt like filler. Sting comes out, he makes a joke, he tells Paul he's so ugly the tide wouldn't take him out. He does this Three Stooges nose gimmick again with Paul E. Just a pointless show, as far as I'm concerned. But the story here is Paul's supposed to be paying for these three minutes every week, and he's, he's getting nothing accomplished, so just absolutely stupid. But I'm happy Sting's on the show. I just wish there had been a little more content to it. But as you pointed out, what the hell's Sting doing right now? Absolutely nothing. So I guess this is yeah. the best, the, all he had to work with. So kudos to Sting yeah. for making it work. It was fun. 
I'll give him that much. Yeah, yeah, and the crowd was loving it. And I, just to kind of go off what we were talking about earlier with Pettisino, how they thought maybe, you know what, the Vincent Alex is easy to do. Let's just do it our own. And then they don't want to put the time and in, in effort to do it. This is kind of the same thing. Oh, the brother loves show. That looks so easy. We can do that. We got a better talker here and Paul E. Danger. Just let him go out there and run his mouth for three minutes and let these good guys beat him up a little bit. It's not that simple. I mean, the brother love was an integral part of so many feuds and rivalries, just that show to develop characters and move things along. And they're totally, they totally don't understand that at all. And you know what? Brother loves the smart one, man. He had a benefactor. Paul, he's paying out of pocket for this. <laughs> well, he was living in his parents' basement, so he had the money. Hell, he might've stole his parents' money for this as well. We follow that up with some highlights from Clash of the Champions U.S. Tag Team title match, which leads us into a, we're back to center stage now with Rick Steiner, accompanied by Missy Hyatt, and with a win over Paul Brown with a belly-to-belly suplex in about three minutes, another nasty Steiner line, another overhead belly-to-belly, he does the battering ram, rams Brown's head into the corner buckle, the uh, upside-down power slam, inverted power slam, where he slams the, the guy into the corner. Just a nasty, nasty match, but just really cool stuff from Rick Steiner here. Like I said, the belly-to-belly takes it home. And up next, it's more highlights from Clash 6. This time, it's of the roadies dropping the World Tag Team titles to the Varsity Club. Of course, Hay Long doing what appeared to be a heel turn during the match. And that leads us into a Road Warriors squash. I haven't seen a whole lot of these lately on TV. Road Warriors go over Greg Brown and Keith Steinborn, taped at center stage. Doomsday Device and Greg Brown ends it in a pretty quick fashion. Yeah, with them getting screwed over at the Clash, this is how they should have came out, pissed off and ready to go, and they took it to these guys. Really fun squashes. And now the new World Tag Team Champions, Varsity Club, are out there. They say to the roadies, if you can do it, we can do it better. And they get the win over Greg Brown and Don Sanders, and that's not a typo. Greg Brown in back-to-back matches here on World Championship Wrestling. I don't believe that he went out there and did two squashes back-to-back. In fact, these matches may have been taped on two separate nights. Nevertheless, Greg Brown makes it on TV twice on this show in back-to-back matches. This time does the job. Poor guy, getting killed by the roadies, getting killed by Dr. Death. He's de- uh, Greg Brown's going to definitely give Lee Scott a run for the money here in April for the VIP job of the month, no doubt about it. Yeah, when you're getting in there with the roadies and then Dr. Death and Mike Ritzunda back-to-back, uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely in the running. Oklahoma stampede on Sanders and then uh, tag the micro Rotunda. He comes in, hits the double underhook suplex also. So Varsity Club get the win on Sanders in about two minutes, five seconds. We move on to the TV championship match involving champion Sting versus Rip Morgan. And this was one of the Clash of the Champions dark matches. One of the matches scheduled for the Clash that didn't make it due to time constraints. We see Sting go over Rip Morgan here in about three and a half minutes. And no offense to Sting, but with Flair's match done, how many of the 4,200 fans in attendance are left at this point? The arena looks emptied out at least a little, and people are noticeably leaving throughout this match with Sting. Jim Ross clearly doing voiceover work here. It's not even live commentary. Rip Morgan misses a middle rope leg drop. Sting with a bulldog. Top rope body block. Again, doesn't even go for a cover with that move. I don't know the point of going for that move if you're not going to try to make a cover with it. Stinger splash and the scorpion ends it. This was a squash match from beginning to end for the most part. Not very good either. This match, Sting being a champion and all on Clash of the Champions, this could have easily replaced the Iron Sheik Ranger Ross match on the actual card. But I guess they they spent too much money on Rangers rigging and they had to make sure they got him repelling from the ceiling on the actual event. Yeah, it kind of stinks. A gimmick bump. One of their top guys, as far as being over is concerned. Sting definitely could have lit the crowd up a little bit for that two or three minutes and got the crowd going more than a Sheik Ranger Ross match. It's unfortunate. Sting seems to be getting the shaft more often than not here. We move on, and uh, not counting Jim Hurd opening up the Clash of the Champions, giving praise to some of the former World Heavyweight Champions. This is our first Jim Hurd in-character promo here, following the Sting match. 
Herd's with Jim Ross in the control center. He claims he's not responding to Ric Flair nor Ric Flair's lawyer, but instead he's listening to the fans. He's granting Ric Flair a rematch for Ricky Steamboat's World Heavyweight Championship at Music City Showdown. And we learn that there will indeed be three judges. Uh, all of them will be former NWA World Heavyweight Champions. What do you think of the judges? Do you like this gimmick or wasted time? It doesn't really come into play per se. I mean, it doesn't come into play here, so it doesn't really offend me any. I mean, obviously, it's all to set up an angle. I think it was needed, I guess, to get to where they were going. It explained. It made sense based on what happens after the match. But in general, I, I don't mind the judges as long as they're not really getting involved in the match. This was just to tease another potential draw, a time limit draw or whatever as well, which we didn't get. So in this instance, I don't think it hurt anything. And I think they were going for credibility here, bringing out three former world champions to watch the biggest world championship match in the history of the NWA at this point, basically is how they're billing this. I thought they just tried to add, add more oomph to the match by rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, with former world champions at ringside. Yeah, also I think, too, this is the third one in the series, so they're just doing whatever they could to give, like you said, that extra oomph. I, I was just curious because I know Meltzer mentioned it, that he didn't like the idea just because of what they did with it at the Clash where they just had random people that have not really in the wrestling business. You know, they had Jason Harvey in the model or whatever. So like that kind of just devalues the whole thing, and then you do it again a year later, this time with legit people that could be a judge and actually score a match if you had to. So I think they're trying to right that wrong. Yeah, I, I kind of like it especially with the people that they chose. Yeah, the judges at Clash 1, were it was all over the place. Very confusing because some of the people they were introducing at ringside were just in attendance for the show and not necessarily the judges. Like I believe the, the penthouse girl, I think she was one of the judges, Patty Mullen or something like that. I don't think Jason Hervey was actually a judge. I think he was just introduced. It was really confusing, <laughs> to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I guess if it's done properly, then it, it's not that bad. But that Clash 1 was pretty rough. But I digress. We can move on here. And we will move on. And so will Randy Rose as he looks to avenge his attack from Jack Victory on the Danger Zone here. We get Randy Rose one-on-one with Secret Service Jack Victory. Polly dangerously in his corner, recorded at center stage. Match abruptly starts with Rose jumping off the middle rope onto Victory on the floor. Doesn't look too pretty, but it's effective. Rose looks good here, beating on Jack Victory. Rose really has some fire for a babyface character. He whips Jack Victory with a belt. And, you know, between the Danger Zone promo and his fire here, Rose makes a pretty good babyface, but I think he still likely needs to be in a tag team to really shine. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he had, like that move at the beginning was pretty cool. It just came out of nowhere and it caught Jack Victory off guard. So I, I like that. And he was like a house of fire. He had the fire and the energy. I think if he's done properly, like not dealing with somebody like Jack Victory, I think he could have had a small singles feud with somebody else. Maybe give him a little bit more time to develop. Yeah, some of these guys, they're just meant to be in tag teams, and Randy Rose is one of those guys, I, I believe, too. And we got Victory out there in his shitty green outfit. Rose takes a nasty bump on the center stage floor during the match. Randy chases dangerously around ringside at one point and runs right into a Jack Victory clothesline. Then Victory takes over with some crappy-looking offense. Jack likes to say high spot in the ECW. Well, the high spot of his offense here was a, a freaking clothesline. Match goes on. Randy Rose misses a charge in the corner, falls out to the floor. Rose stays on top. He grabs Jack Victory, trips him up, pulls him over the corner, posts his leg. Randy goes up, goes for a top rope clothesline, drops him. And then I guess Rose takes over for Dennis Condry here as he tries to go for Condry's stroke, the uh, that full Nelson into a forward Russian leg sweep or whatever you want to call it. This was just a shitty, awful version of Condry's move, and uh, Rose should never do it again. Yeah, that move, is, that move is hit and miss. I mean, if, if it's done properly, it looks great. But sometimes, man, people just mess it up, and it, it can look terrible real quick. So you got to do it right. And then we have a really screwy finish here. He hits the stroke and makes the cover on victory near the ropes and 
Polly reaches in and just smashes the phone over Rose's head and Rose falls off and Victory obviously goes on top, makes the cover and gets the three count and all the while I'm curious what the referee's thinking here because in one split second Randy Rose is covering Jack Victory for the pinfall and then out of nowhere he just rolls over and lays on his back and Victory climbs on top against the one. The referee never takes his eyes off the actual action so I'm not sure what was going through the referee's mind here. Somehow, referee has no idea something happens. As one second, Rose was covering Jack. Next second, Rose is KO'd and Jack covers to steal the win. Shit finish, shit match, shit referee. Byron Scott, who should be gone any time now. Yeah, I mean, he was laying on top of him, pinning him, and all of a sudden he's just rolling over, like you said. Like, I mean, clearly something happened, so you need to look up and at least try to figure out what happened. If you can't see anything, you can't see anything, but to just lay there and just continue to count as if nothing happened, Rose just rolled over and gave the win away. Like, it's pretty terrible refereeing. The finish ain't bad. It's just the way the referee handled it was complete garbage to me. So he kind of ruined the whole thing. No, I agree. I mean, we've seen finishes like that plenty of times and they work well, but here just the way it was presented was not very good. And I've been into Rose's return angle here. It's been really cool, but uh, this was bad. And Victory is not someone you want to be stuck in a feud with. Match goes about 440 with Jack Victory getting the win over Randy Rose. That'll do nobody any favors. We get highlights of Bob Orton versus Dick Murdoch from Clash of the Champions. I guess they're in a feud now. I guess so. <laughs> we move on to more action. <laughs> well, don't, don't beat him up too hard yet. <laughs> We move on for more action. Handicap match. The great Muda over Greg Royal and Bucky Siegler. Matches, I guess you would call it joined in progress. Muda's already beating the living crap out of him as we begin the match. Kind of weird way to start. He's murdering Gary Royal. Nails a missile drop kick. Does the Magic Dragon's rolling sleeper on Bucky. Puts Ziegler out. And Magic Dragon, of course, uh, from World Class Championship Wrestling in Dallas. The old days uh, with Kabuki in the early 80s. They were managed by Gary Hart. This is clearly an homage to the late Magic Dragon who died in a plane crash a little over a year ago at this point. Muda with the handspring elbow, the moonsault on Royal, and it's actually named a moonsault now, and Muda gets the win in a minute and 45. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. The guy that size of Muda at this point, I mean, he, he was relatively small. Uh, I know he balked up over his career, but back then he was a really small guy, kind of a speed guy, and the fact that they was putting him in handicap matches tells you everything you need to know about the offense and the way this guy was portrayed at this time, and uh, it worked tremendously. This dude's going here just destroying two guys with no problems at all. Really good job booking him. They're protecting him pretty well. Yeah, this may have been the first and only instance, uh, as far as I know, where I actually bought a smaller guy working a handicap match. Because for years, I bought Andre, Bundy, larger size guys doing the handicap squash match. It's the way we were trained to think. And then every once in a while, there would be somebody working a squash match that maybe was average size. And I would actually frown on those matches. I didn't buy those matches. It exposed the business to some degree with me. I'm, I'm just, I wasn't buying into it. But with Muda here, it works completely especially given, like you said, his speed and just the way he snaps off the moves. It was very Bruce Lee-like, very Bruce Lee movie-like, where he's taking on 20 guys at once. You just believe it. He's quick enough to where he can handle himself with more than one person. So it works here for me, and it was just another fun, great Muda match. And his offense is so different than everything on the roster that it just fit perfect. I'm with you. I think this is the only time I've ever believed a small guy doing a squash with two guys. Great stuff. Muda's the man. The Muda match is followed up by a promo with the NWA World Champion, Ricky Steamboat. Steamboat says he can't say he won at Clash 6. He acknowledges there's lots of contenders waiting for their chance at getting a crack at the title. He gives Flair one last chance at WrestleWar Music City Showdown on May 7th in Nashville. And that's basically the gist of that one. We follow that up with a Ric Flair promo. He gives Ricky Steamboat his rebuttal. 
Flair <laughs> agreeing with the dragon. He says the dragon didn't beat him. That's basically Flair's entire gripe here is that he wasn't beaten and he deserves this chance. Flair acknowledges this is his last chance. I love this because it's kind of, even though they don't really necessarily bring it up and, and let it play into the story too much because the main focus is Steamboat versus Flair. I found it ironic that Rick here having his last chance at Ricky Steamboat was very, like I just said, the irony here based on when Ric Flair was champion and Lex Luger got his last chance at Starcade. So I, that didn't go unnoticed by me. I kind of missed over that. Like, I'm not up on 88, but I do know at the beginning of this year, they did say that that was Luger's last chance. So it's kind of crazy, you know, five months later, Flair's getting his last chance. So they're rehashing the same sort of angle, but a lot different. So uh, I liked it. And Flair closes the promo with, once again, to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Flair says he is the man, and we're going to find out here in our next watch along. This is why the promo at the beginning with the lawyer makes no sense at all. Uh, Steamboat basically said he's willing to give him another chance just because if he was in Flair's position, he wouldn't like the way that ended, So, and he would want another shot at it. So Steamboat is willing to give the match. So why do you need a lawyer? Why do you need Flair? Why do you need all these guys threatening to get sued and all this stuff when the champion's clearly a fighting champion and ready to give Flair one more chance? It makes absolutely no sense and a complete waste of time and money by bringing yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, and I, I feel the whole uh, Guthrie and Ric Flair promos, they were arguing with themselves throughout this show. I mean, they kept trying to sell the point. Guthrie's threatening the NWA, threatening Steamboat for a return match. Steamboat's already said, hey, I'll give you the return match. Jim Hurd comes on here and says, hey, we're already giving you the return match. It just seems really odd here that we've got these promos from Flair and Guthrie basically arguing with guys who are already giving them what they're asking for. So it just felt really weird, really random, and it seems like, Maybe we should have got the Ric Flair and Guthrie promos this week, and maybe the Jim Hurd and Steamboat promos next week, instead of everything intertwined. This whole thing was a big mess. Yeah, it was. I th they said, you got 30 days to make your decision, or we're going to sue the heck out of y'all. I mean, it took them 30 minutes. Jim Hurd's promo was like 30 or 40 minutes into the show, and then Steamboat's was an hour into the show. So it's like, they didn't take any time to think about it. So on paper, they probably thought, you know, this is a good idea. Let's get some heat on this. In reality, this makes them look dumb. Like you said, they're chasing their own tail. They could have done this a lot of different ways, too, I think. They could have done it like Steamboat's getting booed out of the building. So why not just subtle hill things? You know what? I've already beat you three to one. So you know what? I'm not giving you another match. You need to earn it again. I've already beat you three times. You only pinned me once. I need, I'm ready to fight other people. I'm tired of fighting you or something like that. Or, you know, did something uh, with Flair and, like, Bonnie Steamboat. I'm sure she would have been all for it. That they could have done just a little bit more heat on this and possibly get Steamboat to defend his family honor or something like that. But this wasn't it for me. This done absolutely nothing for me to be excited for their match at uh, Wrestle War. Yeah, and, and this show was all over a mess, a hodgepodge mess, different tapings, just a complete mess for me. It hurt my brain cutting to so many places. I mean, we're in center stage, we're in the control center, we're, wherever the hell Ric Flair and Steamboat did those pre-tapes. This whole show was just all over the place. I didn't know where we were going next. I didn't know what the hell was going on. We've got a match from Clash of the Champions with Sting. It's just like they took everything they had and just shoved it into one show to, to get us through this week to move on to next week. Yeah, it was all over the place. Like it was, it was hard to focus sometimes because you know you went from Ross in the control center to the lawyer at his office, and then Rick Flair and I think Steamboat. I think they cut those pre-records at the Clash because that silver tassel stuff was hanging behind him. That was what the Clash Six had. So I mean, it was like you said, it was just hodgepodge and a mess of like it was just hard to pay attention and focus. And I know they're in the process of moving George Scott out, so they had this is a throwaway show clearly. We bring up WWF a lot, but that's their competition. So you got to kind of compare. There's no way Vince would ever 
let his audience know that there is a change in the philosophy of their company. And I think that goes back to, you know, like you said before, Vince runs everything. So it all goes through him and he's still there, obviously. But the fact that he can hide it, even though all the turmoil and everything else is really impressive. And when you see things like this, it just goes to show that it's a lot more difficult than what Vince makes it out to be. Well, yeah, right. I mean, everything that runs just runs so smoothly there. Everything makes sense. You're never going to see this chaos and things. But I give the guys taking over the booking committee and whoever's in charge of putting the show together, as crazy as it was, I give them credit for biting the bullet. And instead of just airing a bunch of clash highlights, they actually just took what footage they had, slapped together a show. They bit the bullet. They said, all right, we're going to make this make as much sense as we can. And let's regroup. Because it doesn't really matter what happens with this episode. We already had the lowest drawing rating in history of of World Championship Wrestling last Saturday. We already had the lowest drawing rating of Clash of the Champions last Sunday. So whatever happens here happens. Let's move forward. Let's just just power ahead. And that's basically what they're doing here with this show. So as crazy and messed up as this show was, at least they're moving forward and they're getting this stuff set for the future stage. So I give them credit there anyway. Yeah, definitely. I can see that for sure. And also, I think another challenge that they ran into was switching places where they're recording. You lose your booker and then you gotta, you're also getting adjusted to a new building and things like that. So they had a lot going against them. And like you said, kudos to them for even getting something like this out, especially after, after a big class show. I've already kind of peeked ahead a little bit and I'm pretty sure the shows are going to get a lot better <laughs> starting oh, <yeah>. next week. <laughs> Absolutely. And you might even say it's a perfect storm in some ways, because not only are they changing bookers, like you said, they're changing the building in which they're taping the shows, they're changing their look, everything's different, there's a bunch of new guys that just came in. There's a lot of things going on that would automatically make this feel different anyway. So the fact that it's all happening at once, it's almost a perfect storm for them. It gives them a shot at just changing everything overnight and making this like a completely different promotion. So, And we'll see how that goes as we continue to run through the rest of April here. And speaking of running through the rest of April, we move on to April 9th. Once again, this is the NWA main event now, and we're again inside the TBS Production Center with Jim Ross and Polly Dangerously. Another handicap match with the Great Muda again, Gary Hart in his corner, or this time over Bob Emery and George South. This one's taped from center stage as well. Match goes about two and a half minutes. Moonsault on George South ends it. This is another great one for Muda. I mean, he's hitting everything he's got. Nails Bob Emery with the mist right away, the reverse drop kick, the spin kick, the plancha on Emery. I mean, just the handspring elbow and the moonsault on South. Ross puts over Muda. All the announcers sound so legit when they're putting Muda over. And we, we played a couple sound bites already last week with Lance Russell and Bob Cottle and their reaction to the first time they saw Muda deliver the moonsault. And Jim Ross here, he just, he also sounds so legit on commentary how impressed he is with the great Muda. It's something they've probably never seen before. They may have seen tapes or some of them. I'm sure they've seen other matches, but to see it live and in person and just him doing things that guys in that company were not doing, you have no choice but to be in awe. Uh, I get it. He's a bad guy. You really shouldn't be putting him over like that. But, man, these guys, what what else can you do? He's just a tremendous talent. He is the Pearl of the Orient. (laughs) That's a perfect nickname. And we go back to the production studio with some witty banter, or what's supposed to be witty banter, between Jim Ross and Polly Dangerously. And they're talking about how Polly will be handcuffed to the Junkyard Dog, and Jim Cornette also will be handcuffed to the Junkyard Dog for upcoming matches with the Midnight Express taking on the SST. They're particularly advertising a match for the same night, April 9th, at the Omni, in which, again, the SST will take on the Midnights with both Polly and Cornette being handcuffed to the dog. Polly insists he won't be there, and he won't be handcuffed to the dog, and I grabbed the soundbite of that, and here it is. For station TBS, Jim Ross and Polly Dangerously. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be there tonight. Yes, you are. You are going to be in, the, in, in Atlanta tonight. 
Yeah, the cameras I are rolling. Them, oh, I told them, just wait a second. I want to get this straight with you. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going. Yes, you are. I'm not going. You're going to be suspended then, pal. You won't be with them at all. The Samoa SWAT team will be out of manager. Fans still to come is our main event. I do yeah, want to I mention don't need that. To wear Michael P.S. Hayes and Lex Luger. Uh, that's still to come. You have interfered for your last time, my friend. And tonight, hey, I don't Omni interfere. Jim Cornette interferes. He needs to be handcuffed to the junkyard dog. I don't need to. Junkyard he, he dog. Will be. He has plenty of experience with handcuffs. Yeah. I know all about his background. Yeah. Jim Cornette's mother has plenty of experience with handcuffs, not just mm -hmm. with the cops, mm -hmm. but that's how she gets her kicks. I don't need handcuffs. You know, you're going to have them though. And tonight. Because of your stupid well, telephone. I'll have them tonight, but they won't be in the Omni. Yeah. I'm not going. Yes, you are. Bottom line, no. No, no, no. Okay, then I know that uh, you'll be suspended. I know that you will not be managing a Samoan SWAT team. Junkyard Dog's a nice guy, only about 300 pounds. Uh, I don't think he likes you a lot, but, you know, you can hold your breath now for your blue. Did it hurt your feelings? You're making me mad. Well, I'm, that breaks you my heart. You better leave me alone. I'm not kidding. I'm not going to be handcuffed. Uh, I'll bet you're there. No, no offense, Pete, Rose. Uh, I bet uh, I bet you are there tonight. No, you're not going to break anything. You're going to break my heart. And that's another good one with Polly. And uh, they keep referencing uh, Pete Rose here on these episodes, Steve. And I guess this has to be right around the time uh, he was busted for all the gambling. It has to be. I mean, they're mentioning this over and over on these. They're beating it to death. Yeah, they definitely are. I know one of the shows uh, right before the clash, Paulie threw down 50 bucks to bet on the Road Warriors to lose. Jim Ross is like, I'm not Pete Rose, but you owe me 50 bucks and kind of pockets the money. Uh, they're talking about it. I guess that's what's in at this point. This promo, the reason I recorded it, actually becomes relevant because we actually get to see this match on a future episode of the main event. And I just thought it was kind of odd that Jim Ross is basically telling Paulie he's being forced to come to ringside. He's being forced to be handcuffed to the dog or he's going to be suspended. You would think it would be better. He says he's, he's not going to go to the show. You would think that's what they would want, that he wouldn't be there at all. But I guess for storyline purposes, uh, it's it's more funny to, to have Polly being forced into being cuffed to the dog than to just no-show the event. And we head into the main event of the main event, and that sees U.S. heavyweight champion Lex Luger taking on Michael Hayes. Match goes 18 and a half minutes. Something oh, isn't Lord. right here. <laughs> Is this a preview of things to come? <laughs> Not only does it go 18 and a half minutes, of course, we go to it's a double countout finish. The uh, referee here was Nick Patrick. So Nick Patrick now full time with the NWA is supposedly coming in to replace Teddy Long on the spot of the referee's uh, position here. Match starts with Michael Hayes jumping Luger. Luger no sells. Lex is the one forced to do the wrestling moves in this match, which is a little scary to think about. Lots of arm bars and toe holds by Luger in the match. Hayes comes back, gets the heel heat with uh, lots of kicking and punching. Imagine that. Uh, we're 11 minutes in before Michael Hayes even takes over. Catches Luger with a left jab and a bulldog to get on top of Luger. What does Hayes do as soon as he takes over on the offense? Chin lock, baby. And he holds that on there for quite a while. Uh, Luger with a hope spot. He breaks the chin lock but misses a crossbody and dives, goes rolling out to the floor. This is where Luger's on the floor and Hayes actually climbs up to the top rope and teases like he's going to do a big macho man flying elbow or double axe handle and this is quite easily one of the times that I know that this guy is not jumping off the top rope. My first and only thought here was, I really believe you're jumping off there. It was just a funny sight to see Hayes go up there and even tease it. Yeah, that's really all he can do is just tease things because he sure as hell is never going to do them <laughs> or can't do them. Match goes on. Hayes now into his third chin lock of the match. Luger breaks free again. Hayes looks for his bulldog. Lex actually picks him up and forcefully throws Hayes across the ring, and you know Hayes doesn't like the bump, so it was definitely Luger, <laughs> Luger forcing Hayes up in the air and across the ring. I actually grabbed a gif of that. I'm going to throw that up on Twitter here this week. 
Luger makes the comeback. He forces Michael Hayes to bump four times in a row. I know they had to kill him. Lex goes for the rack. Hayes winds up yanking him out to the floor. Luger pulls Hayes out behind him. They go brawling on the floor. That leads to the double countout. I don't mind the double countout because obviously they're having a match at the pay-per-view. I wouldn't expect it anything less, but to go 18 and a half minutes, these guys to go 18 and a half minutes, Michael Hayes to go 18 and a half minutes with anyone, that was just too much. Yeah, I agree. And did they did they not watch Chi-Town Rumble when Michael Hayes was out there for Lord knows how long, 15 minutes? And was complete garbage. You really think Luger's going to give them a decent match? I mean, it's not Luger's fault, but Hayes is just lazy and is living off his name and microphone. And that's about it. Yeah, these guys have no business going anywhere near 20 minutes. Hayes in a single match going 20 minutes is a bad idea to put it mildly. If it wasn't for Luger's comeback, this match would have been worthless. Finish makes sense to build to the next pay-per-view. I'm fine with that. But the time given was twice as much as they needed for a finish like that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Imagine paying, <laughs> paying to go see one of these shows and they get 20 minutes of Hayes and Luger just to get a double count out. Man, I would be salty. The only upside I can hope for is this was one of the shows that had a Steamboat and Flair match in the main event. At least they, they got their money's worth in the end. And a few news and notes before we move on to the next week of NWA TV. We learned that Barry Windham was salty, to put it mildly that he wasn't chose for a position on the booking committee. We also learned that supposedly there's a change in booking plans in the world championship matches. I guess Wyndham thought maybe he wasn't necessarily going to become world champion, but that maybe he was going to be getting a run against the world champion. And that was also changed with the booking committee. My only thought here yeah. was how awesome would it have been if we could have got a few Barry Wyndham versus Ricky Steamboat matches in between these flare matches. Yeah, that would have been great. It's a shame. Like, I know you mentioned it a few episodes ago how Barry Wyndham, he was starting to really get good at his promos. He had the look. He was growing out the mustache a little bit. He did, he just be, looked like he was becoming that main event level talent. And his ring work didn't dip at all. And just for that hand injury to pop up and then all this other stuff, it's pretty rough. I mean, it stinks for him. I mean, he's one of the best talents in 1989, and he didn't really do much in NWA, and he toiled away in wherever the hell he was at in the WWF as the Widowmaker. It's just interesting that he just kind of stopped all communication with them. So according to Meltzer, said he signed a big contract, got his bonus up front, said he's going to do his surgery, and then he doesn't even do his surgery and just took his bonus and ran with it. And I think that's where the biggest contention was for him to be heading out. It's just unfortunate because Barry Wyndham's awesome. Yeah, and I've heard so many different reasons for this. You know, obviously there's politics involved to some degree, whether it's just about money or if it's just about the broken hand, if it's changes in the booking plans. But I've also heard from sources, you know, that were actually there at the time based on shoot interviews and things like that, that another thing was Wyndham always considered or treated Dusty Rhodes as a security blanket. Certainly Dusty was in with Blackjack Mulligan. They had been close friends for a long time, Mulligan being Wyndham's father. And Dusty had always taken care of Wyndham in real life, as well as his character on TV. So with Dusty gone, I guess from things I've heard is another thing is, is that Barry felt uncomfortable and insecure without his security blanket there. Not so much because he needed Dusty there in order to work. He just trusted Dusty more than he trusted a lot of the other people that were in charge now. And so that could be another reason why all of this is going on. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And they end up in the same place. It's almost a shame we never really got some sort of small feud between them two and the WWF. That would have been interesting for sure. We also learned that John Laurinaitis, a.k.a. Johnny Ace, is headed in to team with Shane Douglas as a team. Supposedly, they're going to be called the new generation. Of course, that changes. They they do still team, unfortunately, but they're not the new generation. And uh, we'll we'll have more on that in the coming weeks. 
Also coming in is Tama from the WWF as part of the Islanders with Haku, the former Tonga kid as well. He'll be coming in as Tonga the Polynesian Savage, the twin brother of Fatu of the Head Shrinkers, SST. Uh, I was always a big fan of Tama. really enjoyed him in the Islanders team. And uh, people might not realize it here, but I don't think he's even in his mid-20s yet. Tama had started with the WWF when he was doing the Tonga Kid gimmick. He might have been underage. He was somewhere around that 17, 18-year-old age when he was doing that gimmick. So here he's probably, without me going and looking it up, he's probably around 23, maybe 24 years old here in 1989. So it's kind of interesting to to think about that, that he still has his entire career ahead of him. Here he should have had his entire career ahead of him. And it's just curious what went wrong with Tama while Fatu thrived. And I'm not talking about the Rikishi era. I'm talking about the SST, the Head Shrinkers. I hate to reference the whole make a difference Fatu, but he was still there. He was still getting work, was my point. And even the Sultan stuff, which also stunk, but he was still there and still getting work. So it's so interesting to see one twin brother making a full career of himself. And Tama kind of dips out after 1990 in, in NWA. Very intriguing stuff, but we'll, we'll see more of the Polynesian Savage here in the future weeks. I definitely like the look of Tama. I mean, out of all of them, he looked, to me, he looked like the most star potential type. He had that look. Um, I agree. From what I've heard, he had issues, right? Like drug related or, and I know he blew up. He got real big, uh, heavy. Which someone um, didn't. Uh, <laughs> he got real heavy, I think. And I don't know. I, it, it's sad that somebody can be, you know, 24, 25 and in a business like this where as long as you don't do anything completely stupid, you're going to have many chances. And for him to just be gone, it's, it's crazy. I don't really know the specifics of it. I don't know if I don't remember if it was money related or what the issue was, but he basically walked away from Vince McMahon and the WWF just right after WrestleMania four. I think that he did one taping after that where they had brought in CB Afi, his high chief Afi, like a new addition to the Islanders. I think Afi at that point after Thomas split was going to or replace Tom on the Islanders. And I guess they had second thoughts of that because Afi had already tried to replace Snuka before that. And that didn't work out very well. Yeah. But anyways, it's just interesting. And, and here he is again, getting another shot. And uh, he's in and out of the NWA here in 1989, 1990. And then really nothing to speak of after that. So, yep, definitely very interesting. And, and I agree with you 100% that of all of them, he had the best look. He seemed to be the most uh, athletic in the ring of of all the Samoans of that era. It's sad that he didn't last longer in the business. I was a big fan. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Other names rumored to be coming in include Nature Boy, Buddy Landell, and Tom Pritchard. Of course, we mentioned last episode that Tom Pritchard had been rumored to be coming in as a tag team partner of uh, Brian Pillman. But I believe Pritchard actually winds up not coming in. I know he doesn't come in, but I believe the reasoning was it was just money related, which I found interesting because he still... Uh, he toiled around in Memphis and Dallas and Alabama, and I know he wasn't making the money he would have been making here. So I guess he was just looking for the right payday, uh, given the money bags that he knew Ted Turner had. And um, yeah, it just didn't work out. We didn't what could have been. That would have been nice. I would have loved to have seen Tom Pritchard in here. Don't know how he would have been used, but I would have liked to have seen him in here. And in regards to Buddy Landell, without looking ahead, I don't remember him coming back this soon. I don't even remember him coming back in '89. I feel like he comes back in 1990. So. I don't know what happens there, but, you know, I've heard so many people say that Buddy Landell was his own worst enemy, so that speaks for itself there. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the same. And that'll take us into the weekend of April 15th in NWA Pro, taped in Daytona Beach, Florida. We're moving around now. This was taped back on April 3rd, so it was taped the day after Clash of the Champions 6. So, a couple notes here. A, George Scott is out. We could expect some new things going on here on this uh, taping. Also, this is pretty relevant because we're only a week and a half after the taping. It's not a month ago, six weeks ago. Everything's pretty fresh. Everything that happened at Clash is pretty fresh. So all the angles and everything going on is very relevant to this episode. 
We're not watching the Russian assassin wrestle a match like eight weeks after his last match on Chi-Town Rumble. I'm pr- I was pretty excited about that. Yeah, same here. Finally something good. These shows were a drag with George Scott doing three or four minute squash matches. It, it changed real quick, and I know it's right away watching these, so I'm excited to get to them. Yeah, the big difference for me, the big takeaway for me was we lose a lot of conversation in regards to uh, making fun of <laughs> some of these job guys and some of the things these job guys are going through because these matches go from these six-minute squashes where we get a bunch of fun gifs and things like that to these guys are in and out of the ring in no time. And I'm not necessarily complaining about that, but I, I will miss some of the, the fun <laughs> fun banter that we had in, in regards to uh, watching some of these guys get mauled <laughs> or, or not know how to take a specific move. but. I digress as we move into the show with uh, Shane Douglas getting the win over Bob Cook here. Shane starts off the match with a Mexican arm drag. He kips up out of a head scissors. He escapes the arm bar by grabbing the ropes and doing the backflip. Everything was very smooth. None of the moves he was executing were forced or something he shouldn't have been doing. He looked like he belonged in there doing these moves. It's so different from the Shane Douglas we would (laughs) learn, learn to know in ECW and moving forward into the 1990s. The finish of the match looked like Shane started to go for a bulldog and and Bob Cook completely turned away from him. So Shane tries to ad lib and does his slide under sunset flip, but Bob actually kicks out on two. And I mean on two. The referee here is Byron Scott. Yes, he's still here. It's clear Cook wasn't supposed to kick out, but nobody told Cook that. Uh, Shane jumps up from the sunset flip and celebrates, even though it was only a two count. And the referee does call for the bell. So Shane Douglas gets the win in two minutes with the sunset flip and a two count. Your thoughts? kind of surprised Bob Cook's usually a pretty decent jobber who knows yeah. what he's supposed to be doing in there so to see him mess up a couple times like that especially in that situation is pretty surprising but yeah Shane looked good definitely like you said he's way different body mind and spirit probably all three of them for him at this point compared to what he becomes uh, you could tell he had something as far as entering ability not sure he's going to be as great as he thinks he is he, he was a pretty good worker and I, I enjoy his work I don't know if this is going to become a common theme of the pro show, but we actually we kicked off the show with the action in the ring with Shane and Bob Cook, and then we go to ringside with Bob Cottle and Kevin Sullivan to open the show. So that was a little different, too, instead of having the announcers out there first and then going to the first match. Just subtle little changes like that. And again, I don't know if that's something that's going to continue on every week or if that was just a one-week thing, but that was just something different I noticed, and it was pretty cool there. We go to Bob Cottle and Kevin Sullivan, and they're in Daytona Beach, which is where Sullivan hangs, so he's basically home here. And uh, he's in a ridiculously-looking tank top, and the best way I can describe it is if Tugboat was in shape. (laughs) That's a great way to describe it. I think he looks great, man. He's ready to go to the beach and check out the ladies or whatever it is Kevin Sullivan does in his free time. It's pretty cool to see him like that. I actually really enjoy Sullivan. These shows have really made me appreciate how good Kevin Sullivan is when he's invested in something. I agree because, you know, I was a kid back then and I really haven't revisited a lot of this stuff since it's happened. So most of my memories of Kevin Sullivan during this era are just the pay-per-views and clashes that I've, you know, rewatched repeatedly since that era. Haven't really watched the TV so much and being able to go back and watch this, I have a whole new appreciation for late 80s Kevin Sullivan than I did prior to that. So that's been very cool and he's got a lot of personality and he loves to have fun on these pro shows. So many jokes and nonsense and screwing around with Bob Cottle 
battle and just trying to have some fun while he's out there instead of acting his character, whereas like Michael Hayes goes out there and he's very straightforward and he's always talking about his own character and putting himself over. And I don't know that Sullivan ever puts himself over on any of these shows. He's just, even during the Rick Steiner matches, he seems to be putting Steiner over, doing his job as an announcer versus doing his job as a, a wrestler. So that's what, that was really cool. And yeah, but it was great. I grabbed some screen caps of Sullivan standing there in sunglasses and a, and a red and white striped tank top that I'm definitely going to be throwing up on Twitter. Good stuff there. And Bob Cottle brings out Ric Flair. Flair making the rounds on TV. He talks uh, ringside with Bob Cottle. It's hard selling his match with Steamboat in two weeks at Wrestle War. Everyone keeps saying Steamboat has beat Flair every time out. Flair wants to point out that Steamboat did not beat him in New Orleans, which is an excellent point by the challenger here and Ric Flair. And that's basically the gist of this promo. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, he definitely got the foot under the rope, but the ref didn't see it. So did it really happen? In Ric Flair's mind, it didn't count. So it makes sense. These guys don't need a, a strong angle to make it go home at the pay-per-view, but it, it could have helped a little bit. It would have just added a little bit more intrigue for me. But yeah, good promo by Flair. Next match sees Rick Steiner take on the Ebony Assassin, who just looks like a, a sack of potatoes. Uh, I, you know, and it's clearly a job guy, and I really don't understand the point of hiding his real name and giving him the name Ebony Assassin. I mean, he didn't even have specialized trunks or anything with that on there, so I don't really know what, why they're hiding this guy's name or what the point of that was. Just such a stupid name name for this uh this job guy and i don't know if he just walked in and they said yeah what, who do you want to be and he goes i'm the ebony assassin and they just said they just laughed and said all right just just go out there and do the job we get rick steiner coming out there and they're coming out to the tune of hot stuff by donna summer so this new booking regime has uh given some of the talent back their licensed songs at least until they get crap for it anyway one thing I want to mention at the beginning of this, like you mentioned about Sullivan just putting other guys over. He's in a few with Rick Steiner, it seems like, endlessly. Um, but he says that Steiner is a moron, but this Ebony assassin is going to get beat up. He put him over again, even though he's in a feud with him. So to me, it just makes it more believable and realistic. It doesn't insult my intelligence. I get it. You don't like the guy and you're beating him up, but you can still give appreciation for how good of a talent he is. So good job by Sullivan there to get Steiner over. Rick Steiner brings Missy Hyatt to ringside with him here. And as much as Missy doesn't belong in the first family routine, she absolutely belongs on my TV. Missy looking absolutely gorgeous here in her neon green number. Just loved it. Good job. Rick Steiner gets the win here with the belly to belly. It's Pettacino Knows as he announces uh, three of the fans who were picked as winners of the trip to Wrestle War. Congratulations. This is where we notice things start to change. TV champion Sting out beats Jim Healy in 48 seconds with a Stinger splash and Scorpion. No screwing around from Sting here. Hits a few moves and then boom, takes it home. Another thing I found interesting about these shows is that all the champions are on this card defending their titles. Not defending their titles, but the champions were on here. They're really trying to give a push to get those syndication numbers up and get some more eyeballs on the sets, I guess. So what better way to do it than have your champions showcase? And as fast as the Sting match goes, 48 seconds, the next match, Great Muda with Gary Hart over Cliff Sheets in 37 seconds. Muda starts off the match, misting Sheets right in the face. I still don't know why is this legal exactly, because he's done this repeatedly now, and he never gets disqualified. Right in front of the referee, just sprays these job guys in the face with mist. I guess they just really don't matter. But uh, Muda with the handspring elbow, the dragon suplex, and this thing's over in no time. Great moves by Muda here. Yeah, I don't know if it's a great match, but it was it was sure as hell entertaining for how long it lasted. And if this wasn't a direct shot at George Scott's nonsense of the six, seven, and eight-minute squash matches, then I don't know what is. 
You could argue some of these matches are even ending too fast because I love watching me some of these guys like move sets like Steiner and Muda, but you can't argue that these squashes are effective in getting these guys over rather than sitting around holding an arm bar or chin lock to extend the time limit. These are the type of squashes I like for certain people. Your technical wrestlers and those guys, they need a little bit more time to showcase their ability. Not wasted in a chin lock, but just show different moves. Whereas like guys like Muda and Sting, they can do their big moves and be out and it'll get over. These guys really like to shove it to prior bookers. I mean, they did it to Dusty at the Chi-Town Rumble. They're doing it to George Scott the very next day after Clash 6, showing him how you're supposed to book his show. So they like to stick their nose over to the people that they just let go because they like to rub it in a little bit. Yeah, and the Dusty one, you could argue that that was forced. It wasn't a necessary thing to do the whole teasing of the Dusty finish before doing the the clean finish. But here, this was necessary. I mean, and while it it clearly looks like a, a blatant shot at George Scott, it was all necessary to do. These were all things that needed to be done, so... While they were having fun, you know, uh, sticking it to them, they were also doing themselves a favor, so it all worked out there. I have this in my notes here. You kind of already pointed on it, but I wanted to address it a little further. I noticed in this show, basically, this being pro, the the D show, if you will, as you already pointed out, it was loaded with names, loaded with champions. I mean, Sting, Luger, Steamboat, all champions, Rick Steiner, gone are the days of the Russian assassins, Vince Young, and Steve Casey headlining the card. I know you already pointed that out, but it was in my notes and I had to mention it too, because it really sticks out. I mean, everything's exciting and all these big names, Muda's on here, just a a fun, really fun syndicated show. Yeah, it was a blast to watch and it it just went so fast. Like it it didn't feel like anything was dragging. Sometimes I just kind of skim through when these guys are just sitting in chin locks and headlocks for two minutes or so. I didn't skim at all in this show. It was just bam, 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 nonstop action. Just really good stuff. Definitely made a change for the better. Nevertheless, this new booking committee isn't slowly trying to change the look or the flow of the show. They're doing it all at once. And in this instance, that's a wise call. Like, message received by me as a fan. Like, I see the difference. It's blatant. I mean, just in this first show. Yeah, you, just those fans that they left, like they lost. Could you imagine if they like, you know, I'm going to see what, I, I watch Pro. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to turn it on and see, what, see if it's anything better. All of a sudden, you come out here and Great Mood is beating people in 30 seconds. Luger's on here, you know, followed by Rogue Warriors and stuff like that. I mean, I'd be hooked. I'd be right back in. Like, okay, they, they got their stuff together. Kudos to them. Next match sees U.S. champion Lex Luger over Mike Thor with the torture rack in a minute and 14. We then go to Lex Luger, a Lex Luger interview conducted by Bob Cottle. During the interview, Michael Hayes attacks Luger, lays him out with a DDT in the ring. Then we end up with uh, Sting, Rick Steiner, Shane Douglas, all already on the show, coming back out to check on Lex uh, after the DDT. We were barely getting angles on Saturday night shows, and now we're furthering angles on pro, and I love it. You never know what show something is going to happen on at this point. I love that message that they're sending to everyone. Yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. I think the one thing that they could have done better on is showing highlights of the pro and worldwide angles on the big show, like Saturday night. And you pointed this out to me on Skype when we were talking the other day. There's commercials in this episode of TV, and there's this commercial that continues to come up. It's a East Coast mortgage commercial, and they play it to the tune of like a wrestling scene with the big bad bank cutting a promo against the good guy, formidable foreclosure protector. And they're in, uh, I guess, what they would assume is uh, wrestling gear as they're cutting this promo. Obviously, the guys over at East Coast Mortgage, they, they knew their audience. Yeah, this was tremendous. We need to figure out a way to get this up on something to where people can watch it. But Yeah, what I'm going to do is I think I will grab a clip or I'll grab that commercial. I'll clip it out of this program 
And I'll, I'll probably throw it up on our YouTube. It may be the very first YouTube video for the WrestleCopia brand. I like it because <laughs> he's like, I'm going to take your title like they're going to take your mortgage title or your deed to your house and everything. It's just very, very well done. And I enjoyed it. It's fun. It's a fun little two-minute commercial. Yeah, so you guys will have to be on the lookout for that on Twitter. I'll post a link on there once we get that up and going. We head to interview time with the Road Warriors. Pretty quick interview here. Hawk denounces Watergate as the biggest uh, scam in the world. It's now the roadies getting screwed at Clash of the Champions 6. So pretty fun little promo there by Road Warrior Hawk, as usual. Moving on to World Heavyweight Champion Ricky Steamboat in the ring with Rip Morgan. I, I believe the announcer introduces him as either Rip Gordon or Rip the Gordon. I really couldn't make it out, but it definitely wasn't Rip Morgan. Either way, <laughs> Steamboat with the crossbody here in three and a half minutes. There's no Iron Sheik at ringside, so apparently it only works one way with Morgan accompanying Sheiky Baby. Morgan with some basic heat. Steamboat makes the comeback with some chops in the crossbody. Everything's just boom, boom, boom in the ring. They've eliminated all the rest holds here, and I'm cool with a rest hold to transition things, but it's not needed in a match like this where you're not having a competitive main event type match. So I'm glad we cut out Rip Morgan working an arm bar or working a chin lock. And it was just all everything else but that in this match. And obviously by cutting all that out, the match goes from a George Scott eight minute match to a three and a half minute match here. Yeah, it's definitely for the better. I mean, it just makes these guys that should be winning look better. I think we talked about like on the first or second episode where if you have a guy going out there and it takes him six minutes to be the jobber, how the heck make you believe that he even has a shot against a champion if it takes him six, seven minutes to polish off a scrub. So these quick squashes help more than they hurt. And it's off to Pettacino Nose again. We get another recap of the World Tag Team title change from The Clash again. But at least they're using the extra time on these shows to continue to push the angles and on Pettacino Nose to continue to push the actual angles rather than having guys come on here and just cut random generic promos like they had been in the weeks prior. We also learn on Pettacino Knows that starting next week, we're going to be introduced to the NWA Top 10, and so it begins. (laughs) Can't wait to see that lineup. Interview time with Dick Murdoch. He talks Gary Hart interviewing at Clash 6, costing him the match against Bob Orton. Murdoch basically uh, tells Hart or warns Hart that if he sticks his nose in again, he's going to knock his nose off. Enough said there by Dickie Murdoch, which takes us to our main event, Dick Murdoch in the ring against Butch Reed. Reed has played a part in the background of the Orton and Murdoch feud, so even this match makes sense to me. Teddy Long is a ref here, and he keeps doing heelish things and getting into it with Murdoch, getting in the way of Murdoch, preventing him from doing moves, allowing Reed to sucker punch Dick on two occasions. They do the spot a third time, and it's Murdoch who lays in the sucker punch, so I thought that was fun. So they're continuing the Teddy Long angle while telling another story here at the same time with Reed and Orton and Murdoch. Gary Hart comes out to distract Murdoch. It allows Bob Orton to come in from behind, sneak attack him. Murdoch ends up getting the DQ win in about eight minutes. Then uh, Reed, Orton, and Gary Hart. Well, Reed and Orton beat down Murdoch. Gary Hart takes some cheap shots, slaps Orton or Murdoch across the face. It's funny here because unlike Luger, nobody comes to Dick's rescue. So Murdoch just takes a beating here and he'll live to fight another day, I suppose. Looks like Dick Murdoch's on an island by himself. He has no friends, no nothing. That, that might explain why Dickie used to turn heels so often, just randomly. This was actually a fun match given what we've seen of Reed so far, and even of Murdoch so far here in 1989. They weren't setting the town on fire, but it was a fun, solid TV match in my opinion. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't terrible. kind of knew it was not going to be a clean finish just because it was involved as far as keeping them both over a little bit. You can't ask for much more than what they gave you. So with George Scott holding the book, our competitive syndicated matches went eight minutes. Our jobber to the stars matches went eight minutes. 
and even our squash match- matches went six, seven, eight minutes. It was hard to differentiate on paper what made each match different because they were all going around the same amount of time. But now we've got our squashes going a couple minutes max. We've got jobber to the star type matches like Rip Morgan and Steamboat going three or four minutes or whatever. And we've got our competitive matches, our main event TV matches going eight to ten minutes here in syndication. So everything makes much more sense now booking wise. Everything's put in its own criteria, its own category. So I like that about the show. Yeah, I do too. It just differentiates everything, like you said. It helps guys stand out. I mean, if you're going out there winning in 30 seconds, that means you're a pretty big name and you're somebody you need to, people need to pay attention to. If you're going out there fighting three or four minutes, it's because you got a better guy in the ring with you, things like that. So you can quickly tell who's important, who's not. It makes the show go so much quicker, so much more entertaining and everything else. And up next, it's Worldwide for April 15th. This one's taped in West Palm Beach, Florida taped on April 4th, also after the clash. So once again, everything on the show, very relevant to the time. We see the SST over Crusher Knopf and Julio Barrera. We still have the same ring announcer from last week's Worldwide. So once again, he refers to Julio as Julio here. Uh, match goes three and a half minutes, fought two with a splash on Knopf to end it. Post-match, I thought this was funny. Sam Samu smashes a pineapple over Julio's head. I don't know what was going on there, but I thought it was funny. That kick at the start of the match looked brutal as hell as well. Just really good stuff. And I love the SST. These guys are awesome. And with these shorter squashes, they're even better. They're really going to be improved over these next few shows, I'm sure. During this SST squash, Polly joins Lance Russell on commentary. He announces he won't be with Jack Victory in the main event, but he'll be backstage watching from every angle instead. He'll be talking to Jack into his earpiece during the match, which I found comical. I don't even know if Polly did Polly accompany the SST to the ring here? Because I'm wondering if he was actually even on this show. Uh, and they, this wasn't like post-production commentary by Dangerously to explain why he wasn't in the corner of the SST or Victory. But he might have been out there with SST, and I, I just didn't put it in my notes. I couldn't tell you if he was out there or not. I don't really remember. Another fun little note from Paul during this match. We learned that this coming Thursday, April 20th, is Lance Russell night when the NWA comes to Memphis. Paulie says the last time he was in Memphis, he shaved the head of royalty. Of course, meaning the hair versus hair match between Austin Idol and Jerry Lawler when Paulie was managing Austin Idol and Tommy Rich at the time. And she made the big famous cage match where Jerry Lawler lost his hair. Nobody saw it coming. So I just thought it was funny that Paulie took a little jab there right there on TV and mentioned that in so many words. Yeah, Paulie's the master of doing that. Lance Russell interviews. Ric Flair continues to make the rounds. He was on Pro. Now he's on Worldwide, hard-selling the pay-per-view. They're live at ringside for the promo on Steamboat. We're two weeks out from the pay-per-view. It's just more of the same. Ric Flair looking to regain the title in his last chance match. Then it's off to Butch Reed taking on Cliff Sheets. And once again, Hero Matsuda seems to have abandoned everyone except for Michael Hayes at this point, at least this week. But nobody at ringside for Reed. No Gary Hart. No Hero Matsuda. Nobody at all. And Reed gets the win here with the shoulder block in just a couple minutes. Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan tag team up over David Heath and the future Dr. Chris Proctor. Match goes about three minutes with Sheiky getting the camel clutch on Heath, the future Gangrel, for the win. They actually drape the Iranian flag over Heath post-match as well. We get Bob Orton versus Chief Lone Wolf, and here the ring announcer, I don't know what he's reading on his paper, because he announces Chief Lone Wolf, who's doing a Native American gimmick, and Indian gimmick. He announces him as Chief Lane or Chief Lang. I have no idea, but it did not sound anything like Lone Wolf. And the, the Chiron clearly says Chief Lone Wolf, so I don't even know what to say about that. But I'll channel my inner 1989, and I know it's not PC now, but I'll say we have a match here with a cowboy against an Indian. Makes sense to me. Orton gets the win here, superplex, minute and 52 seconds. Another quick squash. 
Yeah, that's the theme for these these syndicated shows. Yeah, I was listening and I I heard him say Chief something, and then I looked up and like you said, the the bumper there, whatever it was, said Chief Lone Wolf, and I'm like, yeah, that dude did not say that at all. <laughs> that's one thing they can improve on is getting some better announcers for these syndicated shows as far as ring announcing goes. Yeah, I think they're just using whoever's local to the area. Saves them a lot of money instead of paying Gary Michael Capetta or whoever to roam around with them. Bob Orton is one of those guys where I said that I'd like to see some of the squash matches go a little longer than others. Bob Orton's one of those guys where I'm fine with him keeping it short like this because he hits all of his main stuff and he takes it home and it doesn't expose all the slow groundwork that Orton's known for. I found myself enjoying a lot of these quick squash Bob Orton matches throughout these shows. Interview time with Gary Hart and Bob Orton. They talk trash on Dick Murdoch and his father, the former wrestler, Frankie Murdoch. This obviously brings Dick Murdoch out, comes right out to ringside, nails Gary Hart right in the face. He goes after Orton. He tackles Orton to the ground. I didn't notice Gary Hart had brought this to ringside with him, but he had a sock, a sock with, a, I guess, a pool ball or something like that in it, and he uh, cracks Murdoch in the back of the head with it to let Orton get up from the ground and take over on the beatdown. Not really sure what was in the sock. Could have been a number of things, but I just thought that was funny. Gary Hart going old school, uh, channeling his uh, Chicago days, the streets of Chicago days, pulling out a weapon and nailing Murdoch with it, letting Orton take over. And Orton picks up a TV monitor and threatens to drop it on Murdoch's head. It was hilarious. <laughs> Listen to Lance Russell <laughs> tell, tell Orton to put it back. And Gary Hart even trying to stop Orton from basically smashing Murdoch's brains in there. No matter how this match turns out on the pay-per-view, you can't give these guys anything less than an A for effort. Yeah, this is a really strong angle here. Dick Murdoch was pissed off about what he was saying about his dad. He says he called, he called his dad a drunken bum and that he's never seen a day where he can beat Bob Orton. Talking about Dick Murdoch. So, Gay Hart did his part. And uh, these guys were brawling and that TV monitor was pretty hilarious. I saw Gary Hart talk him out of it. I think he pulled the sock out of his coat jacket or something like that. Yeah, just really well done. Great angle. It's nice to see angles on TV again. Tag Team Champions Dr. Death and Mike Rotunda with Sullivan in their corner over Danny Strong and Vernon Henderson. Those are some new job guy names. Kevin Sullivan joins commentary during the match. These job guys suck too, let me tell you. The, the one I don't know who was who, but the, the guy that tagged in second, the guy that took the pin, he was terrible. He had no idea what he was doing. And I guess Dr. Death realized that pretty fast because he just grabs him from behind and does one of them shoot Brock Lesnar Germans where he just snaps him right over his head and forces him over. They even seemed abruptly in this match. They just take this match home in about three minutes with a double clothesline, which really fell out of place. Doc was pissed off. I mean, there's a few. Th I have a few notes for this one. First, Sullivan announces the match between the Road Warriors and the First Family versus the Varsity Club for a show. I think it was next week. So that's going to be awesome. He goes for the gorilla press and just lifts him up, but the dude was like wiggling or something, and Doc kind of lost control, so he just drops him right on his face and then uh, drives his arm into the mat. Like, he went down, like, on his neck and shoulder area, which looked really bad. Like, he probably got, I think he got knocked woozy, and then the second guy comes in, and they whip him into the corner, and he just kind of just stops running. So Doc gets pissed off and just snaps off that German stuplex and dumps the dude right on his head. I'm with you, man. I think they went home early because Doc was done like he was not messing with these guys yeah another thing i found funny and again i don't know who was who here but we'll call him job guy number one they actually hit a double clothesline on him earlier in the match yet they used the same maneuver to finish off job guy number two so i think they were just done at that point it was time to just take it home and get out of there so i'm not sure if they return very often beyond this taping <laughs> they probably had enough after doc killed them and we move on to 
Pedicino knows. Joe Pedicino announces that the NWA will be selecting a special referee for the upcoming NWA World Tag Team title rematch at Wrestle War between the Road Warriors and the new champions Doc and Mike Rotunda. And we'll have more on that as the weeks go along. Main event time, NWA World Champion Ricky Steamboat taking on Secret Service Jack Victory. Remember now, Paulie had mentioned earlier in the show, and it was funny to hear Lance Russell bring that back up here again. Like, Lance had to make this a selling point in the match. Supposedly, Paulie is backstage and communicating with Victory via an earpiece during the matchup. Though I don't know that I ever see Victory actually hold his ear. Maybe he did, but I still think that's just hilarious. Clever clever cover-up if Paulie wasn't there for uh, another reason. So that made me chuckle anyway, hearing Lance Russell bring that back up. Uh, I thought I was the opposite on this one. I thought it was completely stupid. He said he's talked to him in an earpiece, and you can clearly see Jack Victory has absolutely nothing in his ear. Well, he's Secret um, Service, man. They probably have invisible earpieces, you know, things like that. I mean. Okay, well. I took, I, it, I for, I took it for what it was. <laughs> I, I mean, it was I, meant I to be. I gave him credit. <laughs> for not insulting my intelligence and then you go and tell me we got invisible <laughs> earpieces well i, I took it I for what it was i did i think i did see him look down in his in his shirt or something like talking or like he did on the danger zone <laughs> where he was just like in his shirt i think he did it once or twice but i put that down as my notes like this whole idea was stupid as far as what dangerously talked about earlier in the show i didn't like it well had i taken it seriously i'd agree with you 100 percent but if, if this is the only thing I can crap on for an entire show, then I'm going to let him get away with it. A little humor, I'm fine with it. It didn't bother me too much because I didn't take it seriously to begin with. Finish of the match sees Victory throw Ricky Steamboat over the top rope, but Ricky skins the cap back in. Victory comes rushing at him. Steamboat backdrops him to the floor. Not really sure how that wasn't a disqualification here, but match goes on for another min- minute or so, and Steamboat ends it in about eight and a half minutes with the crossbody block. The over-the-shoulder thing, I thought that was a DQ. Because it wasn't like his he didn't duck down, he goes flying over. Steamboat helped him over. So that yeah, he elevated him. Called. It was like a, more of a backdrop, right? It's funny how these rules are just enforced when they need to be and not when they're not supposed to be. Hmm. Makes you wonder. Yeah, and I groaned and I cringed the entire episode knowing that this match was coming up. But to my surprise, Steamboat makes this match work. It isn't great, but it isn't Jack Victory level cringeworthy either. In fact, it was totally fine. Like, I was okay. Like, I didn't realize that it actually went eight minutes. They've clearly went and told everyone on the roster, including Jack Victory, to 86 the rest holds for right now. Because everybody that's usually really notorious for using the rest holds, Orton, Butch Reed, Jack Victory... None of these guys are using them here this week, so that's really making everything move faster. And even though this match does go eight minutes, it still felt faster than that because there was never really a really super slow period during the match. No downtime, so to speak. Yeah, Steamo definitely carried Jack Victory to a match that wasn't terrible to watch. Another interview here, Lance Russell brings out Michael Hayes. Hayes brags about dropping Luger on his head earlier with the DDT. Says he will be the next U.S. Heavyweight Champion at WrestleWar. Hayes continues to push the fact that he's uh, doing this all by himself. He's no longer a Freebird, just him and his DDT. I think Hayes is pushing this pretty hard about this whole no Freebirds thing all of a sudden. Yeah, I think it pops up later on, too, in a different promo. And as we conclude Worldwide, the matches seem to run a little longer here on Worldwide than Pro, but this is more WWF style with them going two to three minutes instead of under a minute, which I think is more fun when you have guys in there who can work. We get an eight-minute or so main event, which seems just about right time-wise, and with everything else on the show going half that time or less, these main events going eight minutes makes you actually feel like you're getting something special. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you can feel cheated when you just get a show with nothing but two or three minute squashes. So getting that eight minute main event type match is from your world champion is really good. Good show. It was fun. 
We head into the night, the Saturday night program, NWA World Championship Wrestling for April 15th. This was taped on April 10th, so we're only five days removed from the actual taping of this show. Highlights of Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair from Clash 6 are shown. Obviously, Steamboat gets the win with Flair's foot on the rope, so we know what's going on there in case you missed Clash 6, which is possible because, again, the lowest rated Clash of all time. We learned that tonight on the program, we're going to see Randy Rose meet Jack Victory in a rematch from last week. Also, world champion Ricky Steamboat in another matchup, another competitive match against Ron Simmons, which when I heard that, that that sounded really awesome. I was looking forward to that as soon as they announced that. So we've already got a bigger card than usual here for TV than we were getting with George Scott with just these two matches announced. I like the new graphics, the new opening sequence. They run down the card. Jim Ross does at the start. The lighting's different in the room, even from like the previous center stage tapings. Pretty much everything. It's like the whole reset button's been hit. and This is what came out. And uh, I, I really love this setup here for Saturday night and what they're doing with it. Yeah, and that's what I meant about Perfect Storm. This fell into their lap. George Scott goes out, and they're already getting ready with a, a new intro, a new theme, a new look, a new a building. Everything's new. So everything's fresh and everything all at once like this, just the perfect storm. And we open the show. We have more than seven times the fans that we had in TBS studios. They're loud. They're lively. I like the multicolored lighting on the fans or the lighting in general because it, they lacked lighting in the studios. It really wakes you up. And even though it's only 700 or so people, it's just so much larger and the matches and angles feel more important because of it. It sounds like a real crowd rather than a smattering of people shouting random things like in the studios. Everything just feels more relevant and interesting. It really catches your attention. As much as I love studio wrestling, this was overdue with the NWA trying to compete on a national level, so I approve here. I think my only gripe about the entire setup is the sign behind the announcers. The WCW-TBS sign that looks like it's made out of granite or whatever they were going for there. It's just too big, too large. It's like a sign made for an entrance in a major arena, which would have been ahead of its time. It's just too large for a theater. You barely see the logo. It's just so huge behind the promos. You can barely make out the, the WCW logo. I'd like to see a more condensed logo and backdrop that fits their setting, but that's nitpicking and... It does take my attention away from what's going on in some of the promos at times. I don't know if it does that for you, but it just, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the backdrop, but other than that, man, just perfect. I love everything about this. I'm with you there. I didn't really mind the backdrop. I think they realized that it may be too big because you can start seeing them shooting interviews and promos from different angles. Instead of like that straight shot, they kind of go from the side a little bit to where it's like not necessarily all in the same shot. So they, they switch it up a little bit. I'm wondering if they recognize that it may be too big on their part. So they just kind of give it a different angle to show it. Uh, one thing I want to point out before we get to the actual stuff here. So Hayes is doing his commentary bit. He's basically cutting a promo on Luger. Yeah. And then he says the second problem is is he is the sexiest man in wrestling. And he said the same thing on Worldwide. He said it here. I think he says it again in another show. Right. I'm just like, what the hell's the point of it? When has Lex Luger ever came out and said that he's the sexiest man in wrestling and he's in it to get all the women? When has Luger ever proclaimed to be about that? I don't recall it. So why is Michael Hayes bringing this up like it matters? Like, nobody cares, dude. You're not Rick Rue. Why are you trying to steal his gimmick? Well, it think, just made no sense to me, and he's an idiot. <laughs> well, I think that's what it was. And I don't know. I'm not going to say he's stealing Rick Rude's gimmick. There's a lot of guys that worked a similar gimmick over the years, Paul Orndorff and others. But I think that was it. I think he was trying to add that to his gimmick. He was going to be a no-selling road warrior who was the sexiest man alive, who, you know, just try to take everything from every heel 
that got over, take the best qualities of every heel that got over and just do it all up for, you know, just for himself there. And I think that's really, that's really what Michael Hayes was all about, just getting himself over and whether it made sense or not. Yeah, so what I think of when you say that is the the line from, I think it was WrestleMania 6, where Jesse's like, I can't, how can I lose in Hollywood? I have Paul Newman's eyes and somebody's chin. and Maybe Kirk Douglas' like, well, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, Grill's like, well, what do you have of your own? <laughs> so right. if it's perfect here, like Michael Hayes is stealing everybody else's stuff instead of coming up with his own stuff. He's even stealing music lyrics to cut his promos, so... I don't know, dude. It makes no sense to me. And I'm already tired of Michael Hayes. He needs to get dropped down a peg or two. <laughs> Show gets rolling with a Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch promo. Bob Orton just happens to have a match in the ring, teaming with Butch Reed at the same time Murdoch's out there to cut the promo. They're feuding now after Clash 6, so Orton talks trash in the ring. Gary Hart gets on the microphone, runs down Murdoch. They basically challenge Dick Murdoch to get in the ring. Meanwhile, Orton and Reed are in the ring getting ready to take on a couple of job guys. Dick Murdoch, <laughs> this is great. Dick Murdoch says that he wasn't dressed to wrestle. He's in his sweats and a jacket, but he's never turned down a fight. So he proceeds to take the teeth out of his mouth, and I guess he was looking for Jim Ross to hold him. And Jim Ross's response is hilarious. He says, I'm not holding your teeth. So Murdoch <laughs> just shoves him in his jacket pocket and gets ready to wrestle. I got a kick out of that. I love Dick Murdoch. Um, I was cracking out, too, because Ross like, oh, here, I'll hold your watch. And he puts the watch in his pocket, and then he takes out his teeth, and Ross like, I'm not holding your teeth. <laughs> so Murdoch puts those in his other pocket. And, oh, my God. It was funny. It was great. So we get a tag team match here with Orton and Reed teaming up against Bucky Ziegler and another job guy whose name I didn't even catch, and Murdoch actually winds up taking the other job guy's place. So it's Bucky Ziegler and Dick Murdoch in a tag team here. This match was all heels on Ziegler as Murdoch waited for a tag. I loved at one point Bob Orton delivers his press slam into a backbreaker and holds Siegler there for Butch Reed. He comes off the ropes with a flying knee drop. It was like the demolitions decapitation move, but with a knee drop. And it looked so cool. I, w I would have liked to have seen these guys team up a little more. That move looked badass. But they beat down on Siegler. Uh, Dick finally tags himself in and sends Reed to the floor. Orton comes in. They trade blows until Gary Hart grabs Murdoch from behind on the apron, grabs him, holds him by his waistband on his trunks. We wind up getting a beat down from Orton and Reed on Murdoch, and the ref calls for the bell. It's a disqualification on the heels. Murdoch and Siegler get the win in 4 minutes, 53 seconds. The heels lay out Siegler. They lay out Murdoch. They even toss referee Tommy Young to the floor, leaving Murdoch laid there after the beatdown. So the angles continue with Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton. So again, like I had said, A for effort before on the syndicated show. For the lack of push these guys have been given thus far, they're making up for it and just constantly furthering the angle between the two. They're putting an investment in these lower-level feuds here, and it just makes the world a difference. It makes the shows relevant. It makes people be forced to tune in because then they're going to miss out on something. There can't only be one show in town. You need to have multiple matches that people want to pay to see. That's kind of what they're doing here, so I I'm enjoying it. Like I said, these shows are so much different. It's night and day difference. Oh, yeah. This match was fun. First, we're getting a mid-card feud in Orton and Murdoch. With George Scott, that didn't exist. It was world title feud. World tag title feud, maybe one other feud on the show. Everything else was basically pointless to, you know, unless there was a championship on the line. It, everything was just spinning wheels in your, in place. Nothing was getting accomplished with the other matches on the show. But here we're seeing left and right. Everybody's getting involved in not necessarily a, an angle or a program or a, a long-term feud, but there's a reason for nearly everything going on. And that's something George Scott didn't believe in. This right here is how you make more than just a couple of matches on top relevant. 
A great angle starts the show with Murdoch subbing the job guy. Something different right away. You don't see that every week. Reed is a third party in the feud, and this still did wonders for Reed with me. Even Butch Reed, even though he's not necessarily involved directly with Murdoch and Orton in the feud. It's the most Reed's done since returning three months ago, and that's that's saying something. It's kind of sad. Absolutely, uh, yeah. That's how, that's how bad it. That's how bad it was with George Scott. Man, he's, he was terrible. Yeah, just think about that for a minute. You you rehire Butch Reed, a guy who's been out of the business since nine months prior. He comes in, does absolutely nothing for three months, and all he did was stomp on Dick Murdoch. And this did wonders for everyone involved. Center stage played a big part in making this feel bigger. The crowd made it feel bigger than it probably was, but I liked it, and everybody involved it elevated him for me. Yeah, it makes you want to watch the match. It gives you something to look forward to at the pay-per-view. We all know Steamboat and Flair is going to sell the show, but, I mean, you pay for three hours worth of pay-per-view, you need more than one match to sell it. I mean, just common sense. And now we have it. We cut to Jim Ross. He's getting ready to interview Sting, the television champion Sting. You'll notice Rick Steiner actually joins uh, Sting pretty shortly after the interview gets going. Also, the Iron Sheet comes out and has a few words. I'm going to play that for everyone right now, and then we'll, we'll discuss it on the other side. First of all, let me just say, Rossi, I feel good, and I always got to tell everybody when I'm feeling good. I feel good right now. Okay, 
just fun stuff there with Sting. Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan interrupt the interview. I have no idea what Sheik was saying, and neither does Jim Ross, who offers to translate for the Sheik. And no, he wasn't speaking Persian. He was just rambling incoherently. And since Ross knew the angle because he's part of the booking committee, he basically had to translate what the Sheik was supposed to be saying because I didn't hear him mention the Persian clubs once, but somehow Jim Ross did. Yeah, I no idea. It's just fun stuff. Sting doesn't want to do the clubs. He wants to wrestle. Best Sting promo since we started watching for me. He sounded confident. He made sense. He was still able to have some fun with Rick Steiner, but get over what they're building to, which is Sheik versus Sting at what they're still calling Music City Showdown at this point. I even noticed that Alex was referenced here, and I don't know that we've heard her Alex reference in weeks. And when I did hear Sting mention Alex, just briefly, I made sure to look down at Rick Steiner's hand. Sure enough, Alex had been drawn on Rick's hand. So Alex is still there. He's just not as relevant. But Sting finally has something, even if it's just freaking Iron Sheik. And did you hear how hot the crowd was? They chanted USA so loud, it would have made you think the Sheik was even relevant. Yeah, this this segment was awesome. I asked you to tag this one because it was great. I, I thought, I'm with you, I thought Sting did excellent here. He was still having fun, but he wasn't doing the, the stupid accents and things like that. I mean, he did do it making fun of Sheik, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, but his promo was good. He kind of threw in Alex. I picked up on that as well. He's like, Alex knows who I am and things like that. I thought it was hilarious when Jr. told Iron Sheik, you, "You've made your point, and we are tired of it." <laughs> I thought it was so funny. It was such a the way he said it. He sounded like such a dick, and he was probably some le- legitimacy there. Right. We we've, we've noticed throughout the weeks that he's he just doesn't want any part of Iron Sheik. So that was just another part of that, but. All in all, yeah, this was such a, it was just a simple back and forth between the two, and it, it makes you interested to see what happens the next week. It, it's simple things like that that go a long way that we've been missing. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. And just like Murdoch and Orton, this is another mid-card, well, I don't know if you want to call it feud, but even if it's just a, just a quick program, uh, just another mid-card match that's being built up, so simple, so basic, yet perfectly done. It didn't need much. It's the first time I think I've even cared for anything that Iron Sheik's been involved with here. And even though I'm fully aware he's bad off here in 1989, I'm still taking the bait for the Sting and Sheik match at this point. Look at this. We're weeks out from the pay-per-view, and we've already got a decent idea of half the card. Completely different logic, completely different booking style. It's like a brand new company. Who'd have thought that you're building your show, even your undercard matches, weeks out from the pay-per-view? Who'd have thunk it? When we was kind of picking what we wanted to start with, this is what I remember as being so entertained with NWA 89 was this point right here. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how this progresses and gets even better going forward. Up next, we have a Muda squash, Muda with Gary Hart over Greg Evans, one of the future ding-dongs. Muda wins with the moonsault here in under a minute. Evans actually drops Muda here, which kind of threw me off, but he pays for it. Muda with a spinning thrust kick right to the throat of Evans, and then... The backbreaker moonsault ends it. It's over, and the the lesson learned here is don't piss Muda off. Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of cool at the beginning. You know how Muda's been missing all the jobbers in the face at the beginning. It seemed like Greg Evans was ready for it, and he kind of moved out of the way because Muda kind of go to, went for the spray. Evans moved, and Muda missed him. So I think it, even that I thought was pretty cool, just because you know it shows Greg Evans has been paying attention. He's like, all right, I know this dude's gonna try and miss me, so I'm gonna. Have, Fain him into doing it, and then I'm going to move out of the way. Just give him a little bit. Before before we get too much further, what did you think of Rhubarb Jones? Did you like him, or 
Rubar Jones was uh, an Atlanta-based DJ, very, very popular, like as popular as you can get in a, in a major city. And um, he came into WCW off and on for quite a long time there at Center Stage. Well into the 90s, he would come back and forth and do ring announcing for the NWA and WCW for Turner. I didn't mind him. He's not the Fink. He's not Gary Michael Capetti. He's not a wrestling ring announcer, if you will, for me. But I thought he was fine for a TV ring announcer. I, I thought he did a perfectly fine job here. I like him. I, he has a great voice, and he's to the point. Like he's like the Road Warriors versus so and so. Like it's just direct to the to the point. But he can elevate the names that need to be elevated to get that extra emphasis. So I, I really like him. I always enjoy his work when I'm watching these old shows. So I, I was just curious as to what you thought there. Yeah, I mean, he just spent so much time as a DJ and a top level DJ that he knew how to get things over. That's uh, one of the DJ's selling points. And yeah, he was always he always did a great job. You weren't concerned when he was out there doing the ring introductions. And I don't think I've ever heard him mess up, ever. And he knows how to get the hell out of the ring when the action starts. I'm like, Bob Powell and all the women. <laughs> up next, uh interview with the Road Warriors. A clip is shown of the world tag title change from Clash 6. The roadies are pissed off. They were robbed, and they're coming for revenge to get their belts back here at Wrestle War. And I grabbed their promo here in an audio bite. You guys can check it out right now. You know something, Hawk? We sat down with our manager, Paul Ellering, and we did a lot of thinking. We get a lot of thinking about you, Varsity Club. There seems to be a few things that you have forgotten. We haven't gotten our name and our reputation by beating up whips and clubs in the street. We've gotten our name by being world champion, by beating All-American. You see, there ain't an All-American tag team in this world that can stop us from doing what we want to do. There ain't a referee that can stop us from doing what we want to do. And there ain't a wrestling commission anywhere, the NWA, no matter who it is, that can stop the Road Warriors from doing what they want to do and taking back what is rightfully theirs, the World Tag Team Belt. You can step on us all you want. You can try to hurt us, but we're like a couple of sick dogs. We don't give up. We get even. Tell them, Hawk. Well, back in Chicago, growing up on the tough streets, we didn't have the luxury of going to Oklahoma or Syracuse. We did have the luxury of the street intelligence. And that intelligence told us this. When a thief steals something from you, like you two thieves stole the world tag team belts, then you gotta make the thief pay. What do you do with that? You punish him. And we will punish you. As Animal said, there ain't a referee in the world who can handle this match. And there ain't two wrestlers who can handle us. Ain't never been. Ain't never gonna be. So, your problem is this. Right here. The LOD. We're sitting down with Paul Elling, the best strategist man in the business. And he's got a plan for you. And so do we. And now we know what our destiny is. That's to get the gold back right where we belong. And that's the roadies looking for revenge. And the what, and what I got out of that promo was when thieves steal from you, they must be punished. These Road Warrior promos, man, they're just, they're awesome. I didn't realize how good Hawk was. Animal's good. He yells a lot. And it's kind of hard to pick up on some of the stuff he's saying. But Hawk, he's loud, but his voice is so, carries so well, and he makes a lot of sense where you can actually understand what he's saying and process it. The stuff he comes up with, and I know how his promos are, like, I've heard it a hundred times from people that he had no idea what he was going to say, and he just started talking. 
it seems like he nailed it every single time. So I'm one of those people that thought like, you know, the, the road warriors are kind of overrated, but just going back and watching this, I know they're not kind of at their peak in 89. They're kind of past it a little bit as far as, you know, the top, top, whether it was like in the AWA days and stuff like that, early NWA. But man, these guys are every bit as good as advertised. And my opinion of them has already changed and we're only four months in. So I guess it pays to go back and just rewatch some of their stuff just so you can kind of appreciate it more because over time you forget. And uh, Hawk's just a, a, an amazing talent. I love I love Hawk. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah, it really surprised me how over they were even on their way out in 1990, how over the Road Warriors still were. But that's why they coined the phrase, the Road Warrior pop, one of the loudest pops in the history of the business. The only thing I miss with the Hawk promos is Tony Schiavone standing there next to him, making all these weird faces that some of the crap would come out of Hawk's mouth. That's the only thing missing for me here in 1989. Head into the next match. It's a rematch from last week. Jack Victory once again with Paulie Dangerously taking on Ravishing Randy Rose. Teddy Long still refereeing here. Jim Ross announces that Teddy Long is no longer permitted to referee title matches in the NWA. What's the point of allowing him to be a referee if you don't trust him? <laughs> I mean, but <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. And this is something I, I I'd like to talk about a little later because progresses and continues to progress. And I think one of the shows Ross makes a comment of due process. So I'm like, all right, if you're going through the process of evaluating if he, need, he can still be a referee or not, then why the hell are, are you still letting him ref if you're going through that? Due right. process doesn't mean you continue to do your job. Due process means uh, we're, we're evaluating if you need to continue to do your job. So I think this angle works. You know, you do it once or twice, and then you realize that he's cheating for everybody. You know, you go three or four or five weeks, you just look stupid as a company continuing to put this guy out there in matches. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And so we continue with the match between Rose and Victory. It starts off once again with another abrupt attack in the ring. Rose has good fire again this week. They wind up on the floor. Victory tries the Secret Service revolver, that pile driver type move, but he gets backdropped on the floor. They wind up back inside. Rose has Victory in trouble. Polly tosses the phone in to Victory in slick fashion over the top of Teddy Long's head. I thought that was really slick move the way that the phone came in and Victory caught it and Long completely missed it, but all that gets taken away because Randy Rose ends up taking the phone from Victory, which Teddy Long catches, and then Teddy Long gets into an argument with Randy Rose. He's yanking the cell phone away from Randy Rose, and all the while, Paulie has a second cell phone. He tosses into Victory, and Victory catches that phone and smashes it right in front of Teddy Long, smashes it over the head of Randy Rose in direct view of Teddy Long, and covers him, and this is the, the best part here, or the worst part, depending on how you look at it. Victory drops down to make the cover and continues to hold the phone in his hand, visible right in front of Teddy Long as he's making the three count. And then as Long raises his hand, Victory still continues to hold the phone in his hand. So it was very blatant there. They weren't just trying to get over Victory beating Rose. They were trying to get over Teddy Long is blatantly cheating here because any other time a heel would be hiding the object and victory just never took it out of his hand during the entire finish yeah like i said i just kind of went on my soapbox about this i I don't like it i mean at this point due process should be over he's clearly cheating for the bad guys so he no longer needs to be a referee but one comment i do want to touch on during this match hayes made a comment i think jack victory had him down randy one of them had him down and he was he went for the cover and then hooked the leg and i I'm bringing this up because Meltzer made a comment in one of his observers around this time that when you have a commentator complaining about this all the time, it just makes it look worse when someone gets pinned without hooking a leg or it makes the wrestler look stupid for not doing the basics. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you like the comment of not hooking the leg? or? Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, I've been watching wrestling for nearly 40 years, and 
I never took it that way. And he's certainly not going to push that narrative on me to get me to believe that now, nor two, three, ten, twenty years after he wrote it. I'm not going to go read that and then go, oh, well, I never looked at it that way. So yeah, that makes sense. I never looked at it like that then. I don't look at it like that now. Whenever somebody would say that, which Gorilla Monsoon used to be very famous for using that line, but Jim Ross, I noticed, repeatedly said that throughout these shows, and plenty of other announcers have done so as well. I just take it as they're making a point of, yeah, hook the leg. You have a better shot. That doesn't mean you can't be pinned when you're not hooking the leg. It just means you have a much better shot if you do hook the leg. And I think that's just a, you know, a quirk or an issue Dave Meltzer had that he was trying to push the narrative as fact rather than opinion. I should have prefaced the comment by saying that Michael Hayes has picked up a line from Gorilla Monsoon of talking about hooking the leg. Uh, so I think it was just an indirect way to trash Gorilla Monsoon like Meltzer loved to do back then. But I, I'm with you. I never looked at it any different. To me, it's like they're in the heat of the moment. You don't have to hook the leg every single time you go for the pin. And I always kind of got irritated when the commentators mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the logic behind it. You hook a leg, you're, you're adding more leverage to the cover. So it makes complete sense. I just, I thought it was overdone. I think I think it was said too often, but in some cases it made complete sense. And I would even agree in certain points. Like, yeah, that's an excellent point to bring up there because, you know, that, that makes sense. I bet, you know, had they hooked a leg in, in kayfabe world, that might have done it. So sometimes I bought into it. Sometimes I just thought it was unnecessarily pointed out. But either way, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Dave Meltzer's point of view on it, no. And we do move on with Rick Steiner, accompanied by Missy Hyatt, over the Raider. Steiner jumped by what appears to be a nerdy female fan as he heads to the ring. And of course, we would learn later on that that would turn out to be Nancy Sullivan. Rick looks confused, but flattered that this fan is uh, uh, mauling him. <laughs> move into the match. The Raider tried to leapfrog in, into Rick Steiner's power slam spot, a spot that Rick Steiner used very often, looked pretty damned awesome every time. Steiner got that from Buzz Sawyer. The only two guys I ever saw pull that move off and just make it look just sick. <laughs> so awesome, catching the guy in midair with the leapfrog and turning into the power slam. But Rick Steiner here with a belly-to-belly gets the win in under a minute. This gave Rick so much momentum back for me, just watching him go in there in a singles match and just murder somebody and get the win. Yeah, I like the offense that Rick was doing when he was a uh, TV champion, where he was kind of expanding on what he was doing. But this this is just as good, too. I do have a question for you. Do you think it's dangerous to do angles like this, where they have like a person from the crowd running in and giving people hugs and things like that? Do you think it like sets a bad precedent to show fans that they can do this and get away with it? Well, I don't I know. Don't, I, I've never seen it where it became an issue, but I'm just curious if that would be like an unwanted repercussion to something like this. Well, I'd be lying if I said I never thought of that when I've seen so many of these angles where a fan comes from out of the crowd, not necessarily in this way a woman comes out of the crowd here as a fan and in awe of Rick Steiner or whatever the storyline here is. But when we have these fans that come out of the crowd and attack someone, I've often thought throughout the years, like, well, this sets a bad example. Like, all you need now is a, a fan to do it and say, well, I saw someone else do it and they became a wrestler. So I thought that's how you do it. I mean, that's all you'd need to say. To I don't know that you're going to get out of it, but you can certainly use that as your argument in court. So I guess the answer, based on past experience in watching TV, is that it's never really caused any harm. I mean, certainly several times over the years I've wondered, well, what's to keep a fan from repeating this <laughs> this angle? Yeah, yeah. I just thought of it when I saw this. And center stage, there's like no railing or anything. She's just right there and grabs him. So I, I know she's a plant and obviously we know who she is. But it's kind of crazy. She was out there the rest of the show, if I remember correctly. I, I remember looking for her in her spot and she was still out there during the show. Yeah, and she's so. done up so ridiculously here that I would have to imagine even the most <clears throat> diehard of fans had to have known that this was a plant of some sort, that this was uh, some part of the story or, or whatever. She, uh, she did not fit in at all. 
and we cut away from the Rick Steiner match, and Kevin Sullivan is over. He's interrupting Rick Steiner and Missy as they're trying to be interviewed by Jim Ross. Sullivan talks about beating Eddie Gilbert all over the Omni recently, and he wants to see footage, and Jim Ross tells him that they don't have the footage to show it. Sullivan tells Missy that Eddie Gilbert is a boy and Sullivan's a man, basically making a pass at Missy. So Missy slaps him, she calls him a frog, and she takes off. Sullivan promises this isn't over. Yet again, another simple angle to further things. Do you see how easy this is, George Scott? Show continues. We get a promo from Ric Flair. This is a pre-tape. There's no crowd when Flair's doing this promo. It's clearly from center stage, but there's no audience here. Rick has basically come to terms in this promo with, with this being his last chance because he truly doesn't seem to believe that Steamboat can beat him again. A lot of confidence here in Ric Flair. Not, not necessarily cocky confidence, just confidence. It, it's just impossible in his mind that he can go down yet again. And here's the promo. Come on, Steamboat! By now, everything is in black and white. It's you and me. Woo! May 7th, Ric Flair's <laughs> last chance. By design, who cares? The bottom line is, Steamboat, the way I look at it is, you gotta wrestle me one more time. That means I gotta beat you no if and or buts you in nashville tennessee may the 7th pal woo, have gotta walk the aisle and you've got to beat the man pal i coined the phrase i am the man and may 7th nashville tennessee rick flair one more time woo, diamonds are forever and so is rick flair just another quick good one minute promo from flair continues selling the pay-per-view at this point man there's nothing else that can be said or done to hype this match i mean you have essentially four matches already out there that is driving this feud and i can't wait to see another one we get a Ricky Steamboat rebuttal here, but luckily for us, it's not in a form of an interview. It's in a form of a match. We see the world champion Ricky Steamboat in the ring against Ron Simmons, who is still a baby face at this point, but he's starting to tween there. He's starting to get a little bit of an attitude with him. This is a non-title match. And even if this is non-title, this is how you use your world champion on TV if you're going to put him on TV. Match starts off with both men shaking hands. Simmons looks like a million bucks here. Super strong, but clearly still learning on the job as he seemed a little, not lost, but just not fluid. It's still fun. We're getting something this caliber on TV. Simmons isn't a heel here, but he seems to be frustrated and aggressive throughout the match. And we get a finish. Steamboat ducks Simmons' clothesline and delivers a crucifix to get the win. My only gripe here is that the entire crucifix spot was in super slow motion. And by the time Dragon got set and cradled him back, it felt like Ron should have kicked out. But still, I can't complain for TV. And given that Ron was had only started back on TV at this point, uh, not a bad little match. Steamo gets the win in just over six minutes. Yeah, that crucifix looked a little rough. And then they should replay it in super slow motion and makes it look even worse. It was a nice, fun little match. You can see the subtle heel things that Simmons does with his character in the next few weeks. That kind of leads to other things. And we'd mentioned out in the news and notes before that Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express had basically already given their notice with the NWA when George Scott was booker. Of course, Scott wound up getting fired, so Cornette said they'd likely be coming back, but they still wanted time off to just regroup after everything that had been going on. And here we get a pre-tape of Jim Cornette cutting a promo. It's almost basically, to some degree, a shoot promo about their time in the last few months in the NWA. And here it is. 
people have been asking me, where's the Midnight Express been the past couple of weeks? But more importantly, people have been asking me, where's the Midnight Express been the past couple of months? See, for the past four months, the Midnight Express has been slowly but surely going straight down the porcelain throne, brother. Six months ago, we were sitting on top of the world. World Tag Team Champions, United States Tag Team Champions, only team ever to hold both those titles at the same time. Four years, night after night, we'd beaten the best teams in professional wrestling right here in the NWA. Then things started happening. Paulie dangerously came in here, brought the original Midnight Express, not only tried to destroy our careers, but started messing our personal lives up too, having to fight an old friend. Soon as we beat the original Midnight, split them up, Paulie comes right back with the Samoan SWAT team. They're in our face every time we turn around, and they're bigger, they're rougher, and they're tougher than anybody we've faced in a long time. At the same time, Bobby's had some injuries. His hip, his knee, his elbow, nothing serious, but enough of a hindrance. He hadn't been 100%, even 75% since January. And at the same time, and probably most importantly, you people, we made a lot of new friends out there. A lot of fans that started supporting us, that believed in the Midnight Express. The only problem was, to try to justify your support of us, we started trying to be nice guys. And let's face it, brother, the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette aren't nice guys. We started getting taken advantage of. We started being jumped from behind. We weren't giving you people the Midnight Express you wanted to support. The Midnight Express that you knew. We were giving you three guys with their heads stuck up a dark place. We weren't the guys that broke all the rules and made all the news and won all the titles. The masters of the cheap shot. We were three wimps. With messed up heads, bad attitudes, things happening to us that we couldn't control. So the bottom line is, we've been the best tag team in professional wrestling for a long time now, brother. And I'm the best manager and everybody knows it. But we're out of control. We're going downhill and we're going to put the brakes on before it's too late. Instead of coming out here making excuses, instead of trying to ask for help. Because we do things for ourselves and we help ourselves. We appreciate the support you've given us. But it's got to come from down here to be great. We're leaving the NWA. We're taking time off. We're getting out. Bobby's going to Alabama. I'm going home to Kentucky. Stan's going to the beach. We're going to get our heads on straight. We're going to get our attitudes back right. We're going to heal our bodies up. And then we're going to decide what we're going to do. But I can promise you this. We're used to being the best. And we take enough pride in what we do. If we don't feel that we could be the best tag team in wrestling, then we're not going to do it at all. And a good promo there from Cornette. And outside of alluding that wrestling is real, that entire promo sounded like a shoot promo to me. Yeah, I mean, it, this was just tremendous. I absolutely loved this. I, I don't recall ever hearing like another promo like this where they were that brutally honest. I mean, outside of your things like Roman Reigns saying, you know, he had cancer or whatever the case may be there. Uh, th- those things are real and you get that. But this was an angle that felt so real. So, And it is real. I mean, you right. read the reports and you can tell that it was real. Um, but for them to come out and just let Jim Cornette cut that promo and tell the world that they're leaving, I thought it was excellent. It was so different for the time. This is how you do it. You don't come up with stupid shit like I lost my smile. You just be honest with people and take your ball and go home and regroup and come back. This was just excellent, excellent work, man. Between Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette, I don't know who's better. What's so sad is, you know, both of those guys find their way out of the company here over the course of the, you know, Paulie, he'll, he'll be gone and back, you know, a couple of times here over the next couple of years and Cornette's gone and, you know, another year, not even a year and a half. And that's, that's the end we ever see of Cornette in the NWA. So it's unfortunate they lose assets like these two just because of egos and things like that. And I don't just mean Cornette or Paulie's ego. I mean, the ego of the other people involved. Yeah, it's a shame. The Midnight Express shall return. Jim Cornette shall return, and that's another story for another day. We'll actually see it, still see him here on the main event here in a few minutes. 
Um, we go on to the next match, U.S. champion Lex Luger over Tom Branch with a torture rack in a minute 45. Tom Branch, also known as Tom Ernesto Jr., the son of Tom Ernesto Sr., who was one of the original assassins with Jody Hamilton. Ernesto was very famous as a booker. I believe he booked Rand Gunkel, too, in, in Georgia, but he, he booked many places, booked Memphis in the 80s. It's no shock here that at first when I saw Tom Branch's name, I hadn't seen him pop up on anything in quite a while. And then he pops up here in 89 on WCW or NWA, no less. So for a moment, I was like, what the hell is going on here? But then I put two and two together. Who's in charge of bringing in some of the job guys? Jody Hamilton, one of the assassins. What is Tom Branch doing here? He's the son of one of the assassins. So it made more sense once once I put two and two together. It took a minute, but then I got it. So we got the one assassin's son wrestling jobs and the other one refereeing, right? That's right. Cool. I like it. <laughs> Luger's match followed by a Lex Luger interview. He confronts Michael P.S. Hayes, who's one of the announcers on the show. Luger comes over he's to the set. He's talking trash on Hayes. He tells him to stop playing TV hostess for a minute, shut his mouth, and let's get in the ring and get it on. I was actually shocked here because Hayes is the heel and typically, you know, Hayes would play not necessarily a, a chicken shit heel, but he would certainly balk at having to confront someone physically unless he absolutely needed to. Luger tells him we can do this right now. Let's not wait for the pay-per-view. And to my surprise, Hayes follows him right in the ring and they get into a big wild brawl. And that's how they yeah. end the show. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that as well. I was thinking, ah, there's no way he's going to go out there. He's not going to do that. They're just going to stare down and go home. But they definitely did not. They brought all over the place. And I think they cut it a little short on this episode. And then they show the full thing, I think, like a week later or something. So just good stuff. I mean, just so so simple, so minuscule, the things that they're doing that it make a world of difference. Uh, and it, it definitely shows. And not just that, but I mean, this show was a, an hour long versus a two hour long episode. I mean, they did 20 times as much stuff in half the time. It's clear the new booking committee isn't screwing around. Everything is just so fast and in your face. You're either getting an angle, a competitive match with no downtime in it, or, or a quick squash where the stars look like frickin' superstars. And if you take away all the personal preference stuff, the opinions we've had, with the matches going too long, the lack of angles, the house show theories, if you take all of that away and you just watch this as a fan, as a wrestling fan, you just watch this week of TV, and you'll realize it's just a week or two after George Scott is gone, everything makes sense on the show from the opener to the close of the show. With Scott, nothing was happening. He wouldn't even begin to know how to organize something like this to make it make sense. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed it ad nauseum on this, this first part of this, but it's just night and day difference. And I never realized how important lower card feuds are or, you know, just small angles to make a match meaningful. I mean, with George Scott, you had absolutely none of that. You maybe had one. I, we was started this with, you know, the Road Warriors and Varsity Club angle on, I think, the Saturday morning show. And then George Scott comes in and we didn't get anything for three and a half months. And it's just, it's so hard to get through. It's so brutal. And one episode of this booking committees makes me can't wait to watch more of these shows, like all of them. I want to watch the syndication. I want to watch main event. I want to get my hands on every piece of footage that I can because it's entertaining. It's the wrestling that I've grew up on and enjoyed. It's tremendous stuff. Great job by these guys. Yeah, we, we got more in one week here than we've gotten in the last three and a half months. So it's just phenomenal stuff. Very happy with, with the direction they're headed right now. And we're headed into our next program, which is the NWA main event, which actually aired directly after World Championship Wrestling this week. Main event, usually a Sunday night show. This week, it's on Saturday night, directly following World Championship Wrestling, April 15th, hosted by Polly Dangerously and Jim Ross. At the beginning of the show, Polly alludes to injuring Bobby Eaton, though we haven't seen that happen yet. It does happen before this episode ends. 
First match here, Dan Spivey over Bob Emery. It's good to see Dan Spivey because he went from, you know, playing Howdy Doody on your coconut. It plays little Howdy Doody on your coconut. To no mic time lately, no match time lately. So it's good to see Dan Spivey here with a win over Bob Emery. This match was taped at center stage. Match goes just over three and a half minutes. Spivey gets the one with the powerbomb. Finally using the powerbomb as the finisher rather than a mid-match move. I couldn't believe all these weeks Spivey's been using the powerbomb. It's just a setup to something that's not nearly as devastating. So finally good to see the powerbomb being used as the finisher. Ross refers to it as the Spivey Slam. And I think here Dan Spivey might be the first guy to use the powerbomb with any regularity on national TV anyway. Yeah, I love the power bomb. It's one of my favorite moves, especially when it's done right. And Dan Spivey had a really good power bomb. So during this match, I don't know if it was during this match or if it was in the banter back and forth, but Dangerously keeps on saying that Michael Hayes is solely responsible for the ratings of World Championship Wrestling because <laughs> he's been the co-host. And I'm like, no wonder they've been the worst they've ever been. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Excellent point. Too bad Jim hey, Ross didn't think job. of that. That would have been a great comeback for Ross. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that would have done. I don't think that would have done. You know, the the company any wonders. I don't think they would have been happy with Ross pointing that out, though. That, that they're tanking in the ratings right now. So I guess maybe maybe that's why Ross bit his tongue. But I'm sure he was thinking that in the back of his mind. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised the way Jim Ross is. So we go to our next match: Rick Steiner over Kendall Wyndham in about six minutes with a belly to belly. Kendall just looks lost here without Barry. Hero Matsuda's clearly abandoned Kendall here. He's just rail thin. His wet hair looks like trash. He's obviously down to just doing squashes now, and he's on his way out, and this might be his last match. I, I don't know that we see Kendall anymore after this, but not a whole lot of offense either by Wyndham here. When he does, it's very basic chin locks. It's like he's taking a step back on the offense. He tries for a slam. Rick Steiner slides over his back, spins him around, nails the belly to belly, and takes it home just under six minutes. So decent little TV match, but Kendall Wyndham wasn't made to look like a star here at all. He didn't get a whole lot of offense. And yeah, I feel bad for Kendall. Uh, he was promised the world almost, you know, being joining the Horsemen and and things like that, and everything like the whole world flipped upside down on him, and he kind of got lost in the shuffle. I didn't think he looked bad here. Uh, I like the lariats. I love his lariat. I felt like he was starting to actually come into his own just a little bit, but he's just too small, and, and he's not believable to me. And then he damn near got killed by that released German. Yeah, but those last started. those last two or three weeks, Kendall was getting pushed. I, I got it. It was like everything after Shytown Rumble. They almost started making a believer out of me. I would have bought him in, in something on the card. And here, unfortunately, <laughs> Barry Windham plays games with the company, and you know that affects Kendall as well. And that's just how things work. And we move into our main event, which is the SST taking on the Midnight Express. We have Jim Cornette and Polly Dangerously both handcuffed to the Junkyard Dog. That was referenced last week on the main event. I played that soundbite earlier in the show. Samoans get the heat on Stan Lane for a very long period of time in this match. This is probably more bumps in this one match. Stan Lane has taken than in a month combined, maybe in a year combined, knowing Stan Lane. But uh, he's dropped on the guardrail outside. He took a nasty-looking Samoan super kick. Good little heat spots here from the Samoans on Stan Lane, though. The camera intermittently cuts to Cornette and Polly e as they scuffle like kids while the junkyard dogs cuff to both of them. I'm sure dog loved to be put in this position, but it's probably the best best way to use the dog, utilize the dog here. It looks like he was having some fun there. Like and he didn't care who was doing it. Like Cornette would start to talk and he's like, Man, just shut your mouth and you can hear him yelling at him and stuff like that. It was really entertaining. Oh. Dog looked would do great here. Yeah, dog got a payday for, you know, sitting there in a sweater and doing nothing. So I'm sure yeah. he loved it. I mean he even got to sit down. He didn't even have to stand. Living the dream. 
Finish sees Samu miss a splash in the corner. Lane gets the hot tag to Eaton. Eaton comes in with the awesome looking swinging neck breaker. And, and he even actually he starts coming in at Samu on the opposite side. So he has to adjust in midair and still lands the neck breaker. Just looked great. They do a weird spot here. There's certainly some miscommunication. Samu looks like he's trying for a hot shot or something on Eaton, but they just fall backwards. And it's almost like Eaton lands on top of him in a Fez press type move. Clearly a blown spot by someone there. I'm not sure really who or what the hell was supposed to happen, but they follow that up. Bobby Eaton goes to the top rope, tries for that missile drop kick. I think he hit it at the pay-per-view. Misses it here. Samu follows up with a diving headbutt to the face of Bobby Eaton, and the SST get a clean win in just a little over 14 minutes, and that obviously was to send a message. I think this was the April 9th match, which I also believe was the final match. Uh, the Cornette and Midnights were working at this point before they were going home. So the SST, just in case the Midnights didn't return, the SST get a clean win here on TV over the Midnights, which business-wise makes complete sense. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I did want to make a comment. This is from the Omni, and just like just look at the difference, the way the Omni was lit up. I mean, it looked bright. They showed the fans. The fans were into it. Compare that to like when Hayes turned on Luger uh, in that six-man or the tag match. Like how dark and dreary it looked, and the focus was on the ring. It was just like a, again a night and day difference. And to me, like this, it just looked like a lot more pop and show. Like people were happy to be there and things like that. And it, it, again, it's just another one of those small changes that they've made from George Scott, and the, it just made a world of difference. Yeah, Stan Lane was in there forever, but I actually enjoyed this match. Um, it wasn't bad. It's pretty good. Yeah, I think in any other instant, instance, the SST going over clean here would have upset me. But because I know what's going on behind the scenes, it made complete sense to put him over clean. They even do an injury angle to take Bobby Eaton out. They have Samu basically crush his face with that diving headbutt. Bobby Eaton sells it. Cornette comes in with his jacket, takes his jacket off after the match and throws it over Bobby's face as they go into commercial. So I'm not really sure if Eaton bladed or at least they were selling it like Eaton was busted open from the dive. But just um, a fun match, a good TV match. You notice. The Midnights usually do a lot more tagging in the match. Eaton was barely in. I don't know that the Midnights have ever taken heat for that long before. Lane took a long period of heat, and Stan Lane did not like taking bumps. And then, you know, even on the hot tag, I noticed Eaton barely got off any moves in the hot tag, and then they, you know, do the injury angle. So I'm wondering if Bobby is legitimately banged up more than usual, since most of Cornette's promos, if you remember back to Cornette's promo on Saturday night, he mentioned Bobby Eaton being, you know, having a bunch of nagging injuries. Because it seems like the kind of man Eaton would be that even though if he can't do a lot, he's going to sell it big. So even though he couldn't do much of anything, he comes in, he hits the net breaker, and then what does he do? He misses a move off the top rope, just so it looks, you know, like a big deal. So I'm wondering if Eaton really was, you know, not not doing too great here physically. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing he was. He was pretty banged up. Just a true gentleman and a pro's pro. I've never heard anybody say a bad word about Bobby Eaton. Just a, seems like a great guy and a great talent and a, a true pro. Isn't Eaton the one that usually takes all the heat though? He does all the bumps and then Stan gets the hot tag. Normally that's how their matches go. And Stan was out there the whole match. It felt like so. Uh, there had to be something there. Bobby had to be legitimately hurt uh, of some kind to where he didn't want to take a lot of punishment, especially since he's on his way out. Yeah, this was a match where I had to look at everything in hindsight once the match was over because I sat there watching it, and that was my first question. I was like, damn, Stan Lane has been in there excessively long for like heat. Like This is just like the normal format of a Midnight Express match. So I did notice that throughout the entire match, and then they did the, the injury angle at the end of the match, and then I also was like, man, Bobby Eaton barely did anything on the hot tag. And that's when I put, you know, again, like I did with Tom Branch and, and the Assassins and whatever, I started putting two and two together immediately after the match, and, and then it all came together in my brain, and I go, okay, 
Eaton's likely hurt. This makes complete sense. Lane's in there for basically the entire duration. You know, he loves Bobby Eaton, so he has no problem going in there and taking the bumps for Bobby when he has to. He'll take the bullet. And Eaton gets the hot tag. Doesn't do a whole lot, but in typical Bobby fashion, I can't do much, but whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to make it memorable. So obviously he goes straight to the top rope, misses a missile drop kick, and then just a quick headbutt ends the whole thing. A fun TV match, and then we don't see the Midnight Express here for, uh, you know, a few weeks at, at the very least. And I'm okay with that. If you're going to have a team like the Midnight's, one of the greatest tag teams of all times, they need to be in a prominent position. And they haven't been that for quite a while. So give them a little break. Let them heal up. I wonder if that's another thing, too. Stan was probably thinking, you know what? Um, 15 minutes from a six-week vacation on the beach. I'll see you all later. <laughs> I'll do what I have to this tonight. But when I get back, back to normal. I can just imagine, and Bobby is probably thinking the same thing, even a little bit. But Yeah, and a good call um, by everybody involved. It yeah, was time it to was. reset. You couldn't have done something wiser at this point with the Midnights and Cornette, but just go home and, and rest up and heal and come back stronger. Good move. I'm just glad the bookie, like Scott was gone and these guys had the opportunity to do that. It, it wouldn't have been right if they were anywhere else. If, I don't know if WWF was on the table, but Midnights were the NWA to a lot of people. Definitely just me. Happy that, I'm just happy they were able to work something out where they can come back. Right. And that'll take us into the week of April 22nd and NWA Pro. And we're still in Daytona here. We kick off the show with Michael Hayes versus Ranger Ross. Ross over Michael Hayes in about 20 seconds on a disqualification. Hayes comes in pissed off for whatever reason. I assume the Luger stuff from Saturday night. He jumps Ross before the bell and immediately drills him with the DDT before the match can even really get going. Tommy Young calls for the bell, disqualifies Hayes. Hayes doesn't even seem like he cares. He steps on the chest of Ross, walks across him, just leaves the ring. I don't know that Ross getting the disqualification win here really allows him to save face here after looking completely defenseless. I was a bit confused why they chose Ross for this angle, as he's been in the middle of a, a slight push, but we do have a new booking committee, so maybe they've made the call to pull back on the Ranger Ross push. I don't know. This didn't offend me using Ross here, but it just seemed counterproductive, like they could have accomplished the same thing with somebody else lower on the card, like a Steve Casey or whatever. I'm fine with cooling or Ranger Ross's push off while he learns some more in the ring, but you don't need to neuter him here with this angle. I don't know what you thought of it. Yeah, I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I mean, the bell rang, so Hayes attacked him, dropped him with the DDT, and then Tommy Young calls for the DQ and raises Ross's hand. I don't, I didn't understand it. I don't know what they were trying to go for here. But yeah, I'm with you. I, th I think they are trying to cool him off a little bit because he's been stuck in tags with some lower level guys that really aren't doing anything. Whereas he was feuding with, you know, Iron Sheet going into the clash and stuff like that. So new booking committee, probably different changes, things like that, like you mentioned. But it kind of stinks. I, I was actually enjoying Ranger Ross. I thought he was decent in the ring. I don't know if he was quite ready to be on the big time just yet. It, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and I agree with you. I did notice the bell does ring before Hayes jumps him. I can only imagine that the timekeeper rang the bell when he wasn't supposed to because we see repeatedly after this throughout the course of the same program, heels jumping faces and not getting disqualified for Jumping them before the bell, legitimately before the bell, and not getting disqualified for it. So it, this just felt completely out of place. And I don't know, it was, it was very weird. Very, very weird. Quick note here, as they throw to Bob Cottle and Kevin Sullivan at ringside, it's subtle, but Kevin has his fist taped up, and even Cottle makes mention of it. It's subtle, but Kevin's doing this because he's actually working Eddie Gilbert in taped fist matches on the house show, so it, it all ties in here. It's simple, yet effective. Yeah, I, I love and appreciate those little things that guys do that you got to pay attention to. It keeps you focused and makes you want to pay attention to pick up on those things, but the subtlety and things like that, man, it just goes a long way in everything. Absolutely. 
And uh, we were just talking about Hayes jumping Ranger Ross and nailing the DDT technically after the bell. But even before the bell, it is what it is. We go to the very next match and the Iron Sheik with Rip Morgan in his corner attacks David Heath with the flagpole prior to the match. And he's not disqualified. So tell me how any of this makes any sense. So Sheiky jumps Heath with the flagpole, yet somehow he's not DQ'd. Hayes jumps Ross technically after the bell. Let's pretend like it was before the bell. Hits him with a clothesline and a DDT and he's disqualified. None of this makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely doesn't. I mean, it's completely mind-boggling. And I do know some of these shows, like, they're jumping from, you know, arena shows to center stage matches and things like that. And I don't know if that was the case here, where if Hayes was, like, in Daytona and then this one was in center stage or if they are both in center stage. No, these were all, these were all in Daytona. This We're still in the Daytona taping right here. I know okay. what you're talking yeah. about. That, happen- that happens later. Yeah, so I was trying to give him an excuse, <laughs> but there's no excuse for this. I mean, it absolutely made no sense. If you throw in the fact that the timekeeper may rang the bell when he shouldn't have, it makes sense a little bit. But Hayes did actual wrestling, and then Sheik uses an apple actual weapon, but one's a DQ and the other one isn't. It makes absolutely no sense. And this goes back to your thoughts earlier on an earlier episode of TV, where you had mentioned that the, the rules only seem to apply when they're supposed to. But it is what it is here, and I guess we ignore it and move on. Shiki gets the win here over David Heath with the camel clutch in about two minutes, and then they bury Heath under the Iranian flag after the end of the match. Joe Pettacino knows. What does he know? He knows the Oak Ridge Boys will be performing a concert at Music City Showdown. I wish Joe had kept that to himself. We get Bob Orton with Gary Hart in his corner versus Big V. Not to be confused with Big Daddy V or even Big Vito. This is just Big V. Uh, Kevin Sullivan ponders if his family called him Little V as a child. Between the Ebony Assassin and now Big V, it's clear the NWA is allowing the job guys to pick their own ridiculous names. Big V here is actually Vernon Henderson (laughs) wearing the cheap knockoff Ultimate Warrior tassels on his arms. You may recall him. uh, He was partners with the other guy, Dan Strong or something like that, who didn't know how to work, and they got their asses handed to them by Dr. Death last week in a tag match. Yeah, his name's changed from week to week, so he went from Vernon Henderson to just Big V. Probably not a bad idea. We get Orton against Big V. Orton in another solid squash. He's eliminated the rest holds. Even takes a shot at Dick Murdoch by using uh, Murdoch's trademark elbow to the sternum or the apron spot. Gets the win here with a pile driver in 315. Teddy Long is the referee. He goes to make the count. Uh, he sells a knee injury when he's, when he's counting the three count for Orton. Totally weird in a heel match. Not really sure what the point of that was, but Long sells a knee injury while he's making the count for Bob Orton. Yeah, I don't know. This Teddy Long angle's gone on way too long. I don't know what comes to a head towards the end here, but, I mean, it's just ridiculous that he can continue to screw people over and they just do absolutely nothing except keep them out of title matches. And I know what you mean. I just want to point this out. I, th- I think you mean not necessarily that it's gone on too long time-wise, but it's gone on too long as many times as they've done this now. They're just drilling this Teddy Long thing on every TV show every week. I mean, to the point where it's just how many times is he going to cheat before he's fired? Yeah, exactly. Like, how many does it take? Eight, nine, ten times? I mean, I, like they said, due process, but due process is out the window when it's clearly on TV. and You can see that he's screwing the, over the good guys. But one thing I wanted to mention on this one was Bob Orton. I like the Vader bomb that he did. It was like a Vader splash in the corner, but he did it into an elbow drop. I thought that was different, and it looked really cool. Just some good stuff from Bob Orton here. Yeah, I think Orton was the first guy I ever saw do a pump splash in the corner like that. So I, I don't know that he created it or invented it. Seems like a pretty simple thing to come up with. But Orton was the first guy I ever took note doing that move. So, But here after the match, Orton gets the win over Big V. He stomps Big V right out of the ring. Dick Murdoch comes in, unloads on Orton until Gary Hart attacks from behind. And Hart holds Dick while Orton pounds on him. Dick Murdoch can't seem to get the best of these two. I mean, it's just every time he's out there, they're getting the best of him. 
I like that too because it just puts more heat on the match and it fires Murdoch up and gets it. I think it's where people are getting, anticipating him finally getting the upper hand. So that slow climb to the to the finish line is always it can be good, and I think in this instance it's going well. We get the SST with Polly in their corner over Corey Stevens and Chris Proctor. Proctor rocking the Rick Rude late 80s mustache and perm, but that's pretty much where it ends for Proctor. Cottle has the job guys mixed up all match because the awful, and I mean awful, ring announcer announced their names with the wrong gear color, so Cottle's listening to the ring announcer and calling them by the wrong names. Uh, this ring announcer is absolutely awful, and not fun awful like the last one, the one where I grabbed audio bites of him. This guy's just terrible. He just sucks. He's bad. Yeah, he definitely is. But SST murder these two. Samu with the middle rope DDT and then Fatu's top rope splash on Stevens ends it in about a minute 45. Basic squash. And I was given a geology lesson here as well from Kevin Sullivan, who informs us that there are, in fact, two Samoas, which surprised me. I'll be the first to admit I did not know that. So naturally, I looked it up, and indeed, there are two Samoas. There's American Samoa, which is a territory of the United States, and then there's just regular Samoa, which is its own independent nation. So there you go. You learn something new every day. Hopefully the grenade is taught everyone. As yeah, Kevin that's Sol- pretty cool. <laughs> as Kevin Sullivan taught me. <laughs> I remember him talking about that, but I just want to point out here, I mean, Sam Wu in this match was doing things that we haven't seen anywhere else as far as what they've been doing in squashes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did the Macho Man over the top rope clothesline. He did a ridiculous looking spinning wheel kick. Like he whipped a guy in and then smoked him with a spinning wheel kick. And I think he even hit him with the uh, the spinning back kick that landed flush pretty nice. And I didn't realize Samu was that good ever. I mean, I always thought Fatu stuck out like on the head shrinkers. But Samu here, man, he was just looking, he just looked awesome. So yeah. uh, if you can find think- this show, I would go check it out. He is yeah. amazing. Yeah, Sam Wu was really good in the mid-80s, uh, working up in, in Montreal and whatnot. I, he was doing springboards and all sorts of things. Obviously, his weight caught up to him a little bit there, and it, it hindered him as far as that goes. But we move on in the program. Promo by Ric Flair. It looks like the same promo Flair cut for the April 8th Saturday night, where he's threatening legal action with his attorney, Dennis Guthrie, towards the NWA. It seemed like a similar promo. Even if it's a different one, it, it doesn't make sense. It, the continuity doesn't make sense. He's, he's threatening again, and he's already been granted the title shot, so wasn't really sure what was going on here. Yeah, I don't either. I think I, I did pick up on the fact that he's wearing the same suit, and usually Flair is pretty good about not wearing the same thing twice. So that's kind of what caught me off is maybe a repeat promo was the suit. I'm going to answer to everyone the lifelong question. So what happens when a dog takes on a snake? I know you've often asked yourself that question, Steve. So we get the JYD over Snake Watson here. Just over a minute with a side rush of leg sweep. Needless to say, no float over involved. Just dog picking up a win here in a minute. Up next, we got the Road Warriors coming out to against Bob Cook and Cliff Sheets, and the roadies weren't messing around here. They're pissed off about the title loss. They they shit can Cook to the floor. Doomsday Device immediately on Sheets gets the win in less than 15 seconds. I loved it. I did too. It was perfect. Back to Joe Pettacino knows, and now he's talking about Wrestle War. And I noticed that we're no longer calling the pay-per-view Music City Showdown. It's Wrestle War, and Music City Showdown seems to be the subtitle. I don't know when that went into effect. It just seemed weird for weeks they were referring to it as Music City Showdown, and then all of a sudden the name Wrestle War became the prominent name here. I don't know if that was a part of the booking change or, or what was going on with this. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's weird to change it a couple weeks out. I do like the Wrestle War name, so I'm, I'm glad they did change it. We get Rick Steiner, accompanied by Missy Hyatt. As he takes on Dan Spivey in a heck of a match for TV. Now, this was a fun TV match. And Missy in a black leather skirt here, Jesus, man. <laughs> 
Spivey doesn't want to take it, but holy shit, Steiner German suplexes Spivey over his head. It was amazing. Spivey tries a turnbuckle smash on Steiner. Rick starts beating his own face in the turnbuckle. Another fun spot. We get a Steiner line. Spivey turns around. He hits his own clothesline and a boss man slam for two. Spivey with a side slam for another two. Spivey has so many nasty looking finishers. He's just like loaded with finishers. I don't even know if he realized it. I wonder if he's just supplementing for like his knees and stuff. So he's doing all these power moves that he can enforce because he knows he can't do much else. So I don't even know if he intended to make him use him as finishers, but he did. He just happened to turn out that way. Yeah, they're nasty looking based on his size and everything. Really, really good stuff from Spivey until he decides to apply the awful looking bear hug. Uh, the, the camera decides to move away from the bear hug and focus on Missy, who is jumping up and down outside. And oh, my. Match continues for a little bit. Missy, are you? No, and the camera won't allow it. <laughs> uh, Rick, you, you know, the story of the match has been the same thing week after week. Rick takes all the moves. He sells all the moves, but he just won't stay down. He gets up. It's, it's in a respectable and reasonable amount of time. He's not no selling, but he just keeps getting right back up. A Spivey with a baseball slide drop kick sends Rick to the outside. Steiner right back in again. He blocks something from Spivey and nails the belly to belly, but right away Kevin Sullivan's in the ring, attacks Steiner for the DQ in about seven minutes. And remember what I mentioned earlier, Sullivan's hands are taped. He starts laying into Steiner here with the taped fist until Eddie Gilbert makes the save. I've seen feuds start off hot and then cool off fast, but I've never seen a feud like Gilbert and the Varsity Club or Gilbert and Sullivan start off with no heat and somehow get good. But Sullivan and Gilbert have been fun and it's added to this tag team feud tremendously. Yeah, I agree. It's been fun to watch. Like It started off so flat, like you said. They're doing these little things. They're actually shooting angles and doing things like that to make you be invested. I'm assuming if we was having you know a bunch of angles all the time and then they tried to do this, it wouldn't have worked. But since George Scott's gone and basically it's a whole new game here, uh, this stuff's working to where they're getting some heat on this. And I'm excited to see where uh, Sullivan and Eddie Gilbert are heading, which I think I know where they're going. But uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Because I, I haven't seen like a lot of these angles that they're running on these syndicated shows before. You just see the main stuff, like you mentioned a little earlier, how... Sullivan, like you've only seen him on pay-per-views and stuff. So it's really cool to see all this and just how good they were. Bob Cottle interviews world champion Ricky Steamboat next. Uh, Steamboat says he would like to think if the roles were reversed, Flair would have given him another shot. Whether that's accurate or not, Steamboat is granting Flair one last chance. And then our final match of the program, it's Shane Douglas taking on Dan Strong. Yes, that Dan Strong, the one that had no idea how to, how to wrestle and got murdered by Dr. Death last week. Steamboat joins Caudill on commentary now because Sullivan's left the commentary booth for the week after the match involving Steiner and Spivey. Douglas does a nice flying forearm that would have made Tito proud really early in the match. Unfortunately, he doesn't use it like a finisher. Strong slams Shane and goes up to the top rope, and I was just hoping this guy wouldn't kill himself. Uh, Shane actually kips up and slams him off the top. Shane with a really nice drop kick. And man, it's crazy to think of how good Shane Douglas was as a high flyer. Shane bounces off the rope twice before he slides through the legs of Strong and lands that sunset flip style pin for the win in just over two minutes. Not really sure why Shane felt the need to bounce off the ropes behind the jobber before running at him head on for the sunset flip. I like Shane in singles, but an odd choice to send the fans home on here tonight on TV. Uh, sadly, we won't get to see a whole lot more of Shane in singles, so I'll take it while I can get it. Yeah, I don't like this finisher. is so stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of cool if he's in a match with like an, another name and he catches him off guard and kind of just slides under there and, and, and snags that sunset flip pin. But to beat a jobber or something like that with this, trying to be sneaky like that, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. Do something. 
We end the show with the very first ever NWA Top 10, and it takes forever. They announce each guy individually, then they show clips of the guy in action, and it just goes on. It, it felt like forever. And I actually have the list of the Top 10 on another episode, so when we get to that, I'll run it down, but it makes absolutely no sense. But again, we'll, we'll touch on that when we get to it. But yeah, just the list of the Top 10. I don't know who pulled those names out of a hat. Yeah, I don't know either. I can't wait to discuss this list. And we move over to NWA Worldwide for April 22nd, still in West Palm Beach. Kevin Sullivan and Dan Spivey over Cliff Sheets and Steve Casey. This is an odd one. Uh, the club dominates the match. Spivey with the side slam and the boss man slam on Casey early on before Casey crawls over and rushes over and makes a tag to Sheets. Casey takes a knee from Sullivan on the floor and uh, supposedly, apparently, he's injured. And within seconds, it felt like within seconds, Shane Douglas comes out to replace Casey on the apron. But I don't know if the crowd has a clue as to what's going on because they don't make a sound when Shane Douglas comes out or tags in. Shane comes in, nails a dropkick on Sullivan, dropkick on Spivey. Spivey doesn't even move. No sells the move. Sheets runs back in on Spivey because that's what I would want. I want to see Cliff Sheets running into my rescue. Cliff Sheets goes after Spivey. Yes, you heard me right. We get Shane and Sullivan brawling in the corner, so Shane's back is to the action in the middle of the ring. Spivey tries a power bomb but loses his balance and falls backwards, so it's more like a gut wrench suplex. So Spivey gets up, tries it again, and connects this time. Power bomb on Sheets. Spivey makes the pin at about 445. But Lance Russell makes sure to point out that the referee is Teddy Long, and he made the count on the illegal man, Sheets, because Shane Douglas was actually the legal man. So more Teddy Long nonsense going on here. And the switch with Casey going down to Shane happened pretty fast. No idea what the entire story was here. I don't know if Casey was really hurt. I haven't looked it up. I haven't done any research on it yet. It just seemed so fast that it didn't seem like he had time to come and replace Casey if he had actually been hurt there. Had this been an angle, what's the angle? I, I don't get it. I have no idea what's going on here. I, I put down like what the hell is going on. Uh, so the way it makes sense to me, and this is probably giving them too much credit. So Douglas tagged in and Sullivan was legal. So the two legal guys were Shane and Sullivan, but Spivey and Sheets were the ones who did the pinfall. So I'm wondering if they felt like Shane Douglas was more over and he's been winning matches. So let's get him out there so he can get screwed by Teddy Long right. instead of Steve Casey, who everybody just assumes a jobber. So Maybe they did it to try to protect Shane Douglas because they didn't want to bring him out there initially. So he's coming in to take up for an injured wrestler, and he gets screwed over by Teddy Long. I mean, I guess that's what they were going for, but this made absolutely no sense, and the crowd didn't care at all. Yeah, they were were dead silent for this. After the opening match, we head over to Lance Russell, who opens the show after the opening bout. So that's definitely the format now. Start off with wrestling and then talking, and they do that both on Pro and Worldwide the last couple weeks. I, I, I like that. But we go right back to action. Television champion Sting over Mike Thor with a stinger splash and a scorpion in just a minute and a half. Another quick squash. Pettacino knows. He announces more winners of the Wrestle War contest. Yay. <laughs> Great Muda with Gary Hart over David Heath. Looks like Muda seems to be giving the moonsault a week off here. Though he does a backflip off the top rope and lands on his feet at one point. So we still get the backflip. Muda shows off his mat work ability in this one. Nerve hold to the trapezius ends it in about 2 minutes, 45 seconds. What did you think yeah, about Muda think- changing up his style? I know uh, Meltzer said that he blew out his knee uh, at some point during this month. Uh, I can't remember when, but I I wonder if that affected him here. Uh, That's why I didn't do it. See, I was going to put that in my notes, but then I thought to myself, if he blew out his knee, what the hell is he doing? Doing a backflip off the top rope and landing on his feet. But I I guess guess that's Muda, though. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe he didn't want to land on it on his knee, but he can land on his feet and let it take some of the force. So I, I don't know, but. That's the only thing I can think of, but I mean, it, it's cool. Muda has so many bags, bags in his, or so many tricks in his bag that he can give the moonsault a week off and 
still look mighty impressive. So I don't care what mood it does. I just want to watch. Absolutely. Yep. Indeed. As we move on to an interview with Lex Luger, he offers to give Michael Hayes a title match anywhere, anytime, just so Luger can get his own revenge on Hayes after Hayes attacked him, DDT'd him last week, made him look like a fool. So this Luger and Hayes thing continues to build. They'll wind up having a match for the belt at uh, Wrestle War. Tag team action with the Junkyard Dog teaming with Ranger Ross over Jim Healy and Snake Watson at about three and a half minutes. Dog with the thump on Snake gets the win. That's twice now the dogs beat Snake Watson this week. This team didn't mesh well at all for me. I think I like the Dog and Ivan Koloff even better than this. I don't know. Dog and Ross just did not work together at all. I don't think many people with JYD at this point worked very well. Another roadie squash. Road Warriors are still pissed off about that tag title loss, and they come in the ring, and we don't even figure out who the one of the opponents are because they blast them and send them out of the ring before the match can start, and a doomsday device immediately puts away the ebony assassin in about 20 seconds. Roadie's looking badass as they come back for revenge on the varsity club. Yeah, I agree, and I love the camera angle here because they took their spikes off, and then they just come charging at these dudes, and the, cam- the camera angle's in that opposite corner. So you see them coming. They're, like, coming at you, and both of them, Hawk's flying at you, and then Animal follows him up, and they take these dudes out immediately. It was just some great camera work on that opening sequence there. Really, really good job by uh, the camera crew for once. And then we get a ringside interview with the Road Warriors following the match, and Hawk announces that there's going to be a special referee for the Wrestle War rematch, but they won't say who. And my rhetorical question here is, how is that fair? How can the champs not be allowed to know their referee? And how are the roadies allowed to pick the referee? They were just stabbing people in the eye like four months ago. My how quickly we forget things. So, <laughs> so I just thought that was interesting that, that they knew who the referee is, the champions don't, and that's okay at this point anyway. It's usually and, the other way around. Yeah, something like that, you would think. It's interesting, and what we do find out before the pay-per-view, but it's just interesting that the story here is that they got to pick the referee, they know who it is, the champions don't. Our main event this week, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner, brought to the ring by Missy Hyatt. They take on the Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan, and the only thing I thought about this going into this was, oh, please let Rick Steiner get in there with the Iron Sheik and force him to have to leave his feet. Oh, man, would that rule. Yeah, you really think that's going to happen? I mean, come on. Everett gets a hold of him, man. That's all it takes. But they, they were they were kind to the Sheik. They didn't try to kill him. It's sad to say, but with Morgan being able to actually bump, he's actually the better of the two workers here over the Sheik. Gilbert takes some heat. You can see the first family busting their ass in there to have a good match, but there's they're not miracle workers. Steamboat couldn't have a good match at this point with the Iron Sheik in 89. So you feel for Gilbert and Steiner because they're really trying hard here to have a good match. But uh, Gilbert takes the heat. Steiner gets the hot tag. Um, Sheik and Morgan collide in a double Irish whip. Steiner hits Morgan with the belly to belly. Gets the win in about ten and a half minutes. Match went a little longer than I would have liked, I think, with, with Sheik involved. Yeah, same here. I mean, I'm a fan of Iron Sheik, but I've never really seen to where he was actually a decent worker. I'm, I'm assuming I'd have to go back to the 70s uh, to enjoy that. Yeah, if in he the early 80s. In like 85 WWF, I mean, I, I, he's only probably 10 times worse here in 89. It's unfortunate because I, I like Sheik, and if done properly, he could be okay, but he just can't move. He's stiff yeah. as a board, and he can't move. So Yeah, and, and, when like, I, yeah. and we're sitting here having fun, and we're, we're mocking some of these guys, the dog and the Sheik, but they had better days, and they were better workers than they are, you know, than they are here. They were once upon a time, but we're talking about 1989 Iron Sheik, and I'll just call it the way I see it, and he really has little to no business in the ring, and he certainly shouldn't be going ten and a half minutes. Oh, absolutely not. To be honest with you, I I ain't mad at him. I mean, if somebody's going to come to me and offer me 
however much money they got offered to come work in 1989, thinking I could, they still have it. I'm, I'm signing up all day too. So I'm not mad at them for what they're doing. It's just, like you said, they've seen better days. And it's kind of a shame that this stuff's out there of them, <laughs> to be honest with you, because it's not how they should be remembered. So we're showing the NWA top 10 again, and this is where I wrote down the names of the original, top, the first ever top 10 in the NWA. Just a few notes here real quick. We got num- number 10, Junkyard Dog, number 9, Butch Reed. Neither of these guys have been doing anything for months now, and, and yet somehow they rank in the top 10. Number 8 is Bob Orton, and Orton had just recently beat Dick Murdoch, but for some reason the Iron Sheik is 7, and I don't know why Sheik is ahead of anyone, but Sheik is number 7 on the list of, of contenders here. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dick Murdoch is six, even though he lost to Bob Orton, who is eight. So none of this is making any sense to me whatsoever. The rest makes a little more sense. We got Muda at five. He's working his way up. We got Hayes at four. I don't necessarily agree with that, but at least it makes a little sense. He's coming for Luger. Sting's three as TV champion. Luger's two, U.S. champion. And Ric Flair is the number one contender as being the former world champion, getting his rematch with Steamboat. So... The top five at least makes sense. The bottom five, it's like they just looked around and said, who's working singles right now? And uh, it was just, ugh. Yeah, I was dying laughing watching this. I think I sent you a message, and I was like, oh, my God, the first top ten. <laughs> it's rough. Like, and It's kind of a microcosm or a snapshot of the roster at, the point, at that point. George Scott had totally devalued the mid-card guys to where you had to pick guys that you just brought in. You've had maybe, you know, like Bob Orton's maybe had a couple squashes and that's it. He's in your top 10 already when guys have been there. I think Rick Steiner could have been on there, but he's with the tag. So, I mean, you really can't put him in there. Right. I don't know who else you can put in there, though, because George Scott, like I said, he completely devalued the entire mid-card ranks to where they're useless. Yeah, so I just I thought it was really interesting. The 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 bottom half of the top ten was just it's like this is your best guys right now. That's a scary thought. So, but they seem to fix that pretty fast here. We head into the nighttime program, World Championship Wrestling, ring announcer Rhubarb Jones. We kick things off right away with Michael Hayes over at Greg Evans, the future Ding Dong. Just a clothesline and a DDT ends it in a matter of a few seconds. Uh, I can't complain. It's it's over and done with. Uh, we lost the entire armbar ordeal, and it gets Hayes out of the ring quicker. So no complaints here for me whatsoever. Yeah, none here either. How, but how, how come he didn't get DQ'd this week well, <laughs> on this episode? Maybe it was a different referee. <laughs> I have no idea. Hayes uh, trots his way over to Jim Ross for an interview. Hayes still has hero Matsuda by his side. We learned that Hayes has been suspended from commentary due to the brawl last week with Lex Luger. So Michael Hayes is gone from commentary, at least for the time being. Claims his meeting he's meeting with uh, Uncle Teddy Turner here on Monday to get reinstated. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But if it doesn't happen, I just have to thank poor Magnum TA in all of this. And for whatever reason, Jim Ross keeps bringing up the Freebirds here lately. And Michael Hayes says the Freebirds needed him. He didn't need them. And this, you know, continues on all the way into the pay-per-view. It's foreshadowing things. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But I did record the Michael Hayes promo, and I'm going to play it right now for everyone. And ladies and gentlemen, we were talking as the match progressed that Michael Hayes is on a quest to win his first major singles championship. His success has always been attached to the Freebirds in tag team situations with Lex Luger. I am sick and tired of you, the media, and the fans bringing up the Freebirds, the Freebirds. Let me tell you something. We were, and were is the key word here, the greatest tag team in wrestling. 
But now I'm on my own and I'm going to squelch all the skepticism. As a matter of fact, you want to know the truth about the matter? I never needed Terry or Buddy. They always needed me. Now, Wilger, what happened here last week? Now he cost me my job this week. But I got to meet with Uncle Teddy Monday morning. We'll square that off. I'm going to tell you what, pal. I told you before, you're like 7-Up. You never had it, and you never will. And the problem with you big time is you can't stand a fact I'm the sexiest man in the world today. Oh, yeah. Now, sure, now they'll boo about it, right? But it was just a few short weeks ago when I got up on those ropes and started doing that bump and grind. And when I took it off is when it turns your woman on. And you sat there and applauded with them, whether it was your wife, your girlfriend, or maybe even your daughter. So the thing is, Jack, May 7th, Nashville, Tennessee, you're going to find out, Luger, that you can't go through me, Jack, because we're going to have the biggest congratulatory celebration party when I bring on the U.S. title, when the Nature Boy brings it back home, the world title. Because you know what, Luger? I can run all over you, all through you, and there ain't a thing you can do about it because I'm the hot child of the city. I do run wild, and mama, I am pretty. So mark it down. May 7th, Nashville, Tennessee. Just you and me in the DDT. Nothing earth-shattering there in a promo, but Michael Hayes is a zillion times better as a heel promo than a babyface promo. I have to say that at this point. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I think that's where the accolades stop. I mean, it was definitely a better promo than what he was cutting when he was a good guy. See, that that felt forced. This felt more natural, more along the lines of what Michael Hayes is uh, as a performer, anyway. And then the sexiest wrestler alive. I don't understand that, but all in all, I'll give Hayes credit here. I did like the promo. And I like the fact that he's using not necessarily just Lex Luger, but the Freebird stuff. He feels slighted that he's never gotten the credit he deserves because he always had Buddy and, and Bam Bam behind him. Um, so he's trying to do it on his own. Again, like you said, foreshadowing for the future. But all in all, this is a decent promo by Michael Hayes. I can't really say anything negative about it too much. Wow, that's a first. Mark it down. <laughs> Mark it down indeed. Straight to another interview. It's the Road Warriors this time in their pre-recorded promo. Uh, it looks like they recorded this in the same place as the last one from last week, so it's likely they recorded these at the same time, back-to-back. They even referenced some of the same comments from last week. Uh, Eldering tells them vengeance is for victims, and the roadies are victims of the club, victims of Teddy Long, and they're going to get their revenge. Uh, you asked me to grab a soundbite of this, and that's what I did, and I'm going to play that for everyone right now. Yeah! We lost our world tag team belts! We didn't lose a fair and square, but we ain't gonna sit here and cry about it. We're gonna do what we do best. We're gonna get even. Like my brother said, we couldn't go to big colleges because we couldn't afford it. We don't want nobody to feel sorry for us. We were street smart. And we like being street smart better than any stinking university. You learn more out there than any stinking school could teach you anywhere. What we learn is self-pride self-discipline, and we never give up anything for nothing. So, Varsity Club, you enjoy those world titles. 
why you got them? Because your days are getting numbered, and the time has come for the Warriors to get back the world belt. Kill them, Hawk. Precious Paul Elring told me a mighty fine line. He said, Hawk, an animal, vengeance is for the victims. And victims is what we were in New Orleans. Victims are the likes of the referee, Teddy Long. Victims of the Varsity Club and Kevin Sullivan. So be it. Vengeance will be for the victims. Since we are the victims, we'll get the vengeance. I wouldn't want to be you, Varsity Club. You have the Road Warriors, the Legion of Doom, hot on your trails. The gold belts, they belong around our waists and everybody knows it. Now it's time for you to use your college education. Time for you to use all those brains. You say you're the best wrestlers and you know all about wrestling more than anybody else. But what you forgot to add, my boys, is that we're the best fighters in the business. We know more about fighting than you'll ever forget, you stinking punks. And another good Road Warriors promo, especially by Hawk. And I was just curious, is there any particular reason in that promo you wanted me to grab that and share it with the listeners? I mean, I just thought, like, and I think it may just be the visual, but when Animal's cutting his promo, Hawk's just doing all these facial expressions, like looking into the camera, kind of leaning back and going back and forth. And he just looked very intimidating and scary as hell. Like, he looked pissed off because of what happened to the roadies. And his intensity is just through the roof. But I like the Animal's promo here, where they talk about street smarts and how we got pride and self-respect and things like that. And and then the vengeance part. The victims get the vengeance. So uh, just saw around the whole promo was awesome. And it's even better when you can watch it and see Hawk in, in all his glory there. Just really good stuff. And we move away from the Road Warriors promo and straight into the ring for a tag team action with Ranger Ross and Ravishing Randy Rose taking on Rip Morgan and Secret Service Jack Victory. No chic, no poly dangerously. It's just the future New Zealand militia slash royal family slash maulers. It's Victory and Morgan teaming up for what I understand is the first time ever as they take on uh, the odd pairing of Ranger Ross and Randy Rose. And even this undercard shit starting to make sense. Uh, You got Victory and Rose for the third week in a row. And Morgan cost Ross the match at Clash against the Sheik. It wound up being disqualification when he attacked Ranger Ross. My mind is ready to explode because everything makes sense, even the undercard stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a good change of pace and makes you, like I said, this makes you want to tune in and watch this. You can't really take your eyes off the TV because something's happening all the time and it's so fast paced and it's just really, really entertaining stuff. So as the match gets going, we see Randy Rose with a not so great middle rope drop kick and then another crappy looking dive off the middle rope to the floor again this week. He needs to eliminate the uh, off the top rope stuff here out of his repertoire. Ranger Ross takes the heat for about 30 seconds before making the hot tag to Rose. It's a fast match. Rose and Victory in the ring. Four-way melee here. Heels whipped into each other. Victory takes down Rose and puts his feet on the ropes, but referee Tommy Young catches him during the pin. Victory starts to argue with Tommy Young, and that leads uh, Randy Rose to schoolboy victory for the win here in just over three minutes. So Randy Rose and Ranger Ross pick up the win. Post-match shenanigans. Rip Morgan, Jack Victory, toss Ranger Ross out of the ring. They double-team Randy Rose. They hang Rose. Victory hangs him with a belt, and while Morgan elevates his legs, it was uh, likened to when Steamboat was hanged by Don Morocco and Mr. Fuji. Uh, Everything has just been boom, 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 like a show on speed, but I can still process everything. Yeah, I I just mentioned that. Um, Do you think 
I know they had a committee. I, don't, I think there were six people on it. Do you think they all work together on the whole show, or do you think certain people are responsible for certain spots? That way, you know, that they can focus on one angle while another guy focuses on something else, or do you think they just collaborated together to come up with everything together? Uh, I know parts of it was collaboration. Certain guys were always in charge of TV. I know when Jim Cornette said he took over part of the committee that him and Kevin Sullivan were in charge of TV. They would get with Ric Flair when Ric Flair was head booker, and they would basically come up with the TV, basically just try to go in the direction Ric Flair wanted, and they were trusted to run all TV at that point. So I'm not sure who all was in, in charge of TV here. I'm sure Kevin Sullivan, Eddie Gilbert, guys like that had a lot of the input. I can't say who who did what, but uh, yeah, it shows that there's definitely some there's a there's a, there's new bookers in town. That's for sure. And it just feels like there's a lot of good, I don't know about good ideas, but there's a lot of ideas being tossed around to get these guys something to work with. So it's just been a nice change of pace, and it's really good. Yeah, I don't mind this, taking every single guy on your roster, throwing them against the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, wh- whatever works is going to work. George Scott did the opposite. He wouldn't. He didn't want to get anybody over. And so now we're trying to get everyone over, and who whoever makes it, makes it, and whoever doesn't, well, so be it. But at least everyone's getting a chance. Nobody can't say anymore that they're not getting the opportunity. Absolutely. We're treated to highlights of the feud between Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton. And wait a minute. What? Highlights of an ongoing storyline to keep you updated on a feud? What? Is this the NWA? Again, more <laughs> great ideas from the book, the new booking committee. It seems like this is the only match that gets the highlight, though, besides maybe Steamboat and Flair. So I don't know why they chose this one. When you have Sting, and I mean, there's not a lot there with Sting and Iron Sheik. But, I mean, uh, this may be the, maybe just because there's, this is the only one that has, like, consistent angles outside of maybe Eddie Gilbert and uh, Kevin Sullivan. So these highlights are getting pushed down our throat as far as Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton go. But I'm, all, I'm here for it because if you don't watch one show, you need to find out what's going on in the other ones. So. Well, I mean, I can't complain too much. I'd rather see this than a Steve Casey squash filling this time. So absolutely, uh, I like that they're spending time reminding people or maybe new watchers are tuning in and they see what's going on. And I'm not trying to take away from Orton and Murdoch, but it could also be that maybe these guys need a little more help because of their blandness <laughs> to, to whatever, whatever, or whatever you want to call it. Again, I love me some Dick Murdoch. I like Orton and doses. Uh, he certainly had some great matches that I've watched over, you know, over the years, but uh, I like that they're giving them something to do with each other. They, they've known each other for a very long time. We'll see what happens in the end. The highlights are actually followed up by a promo from Dick Murdoch. Murdoch says he isn't a fool. He knows he, can, he can't take on three men at once, meaning Orton, Gary Hart, and even Butch Reed. Uh, but he's never backed down from a fight, and he's coming to Music City Showdown uh, at 110% because he's upset with the things that are being said about him, about his father, and more specifically about his father, uh, who was also a wrestler, Frankie Murdoch. And so Dick Murdoch just uh, cutting a basic promo here, looking for revenge. Yeah, I mean, it is believable. I I thought it was a really good promo. I mean, he stumbled on his words a little bit. It was kind of getting lost just a tad, but it just felt real. Like, it felt authentic. Yeah, you're going to have those mistakes when you're pissed off. You're going to say things or mess up some words here and there when you're upset and angry. So I I liked it. It was really good. We cut to another promo, this time with world champion Ricky Steamboat. I did grab a sound bite of that, and don't worry, it's only a 60-second promo, everybody, so it won't go on too long, and uh, we'll talk about it on the other side. Ricky Steamboat interview right here. Wrestling fans, you don't think that I know what I'm up against. A man like Ric Flair coming after this championship belt for the last chance in Nashville on May the 7th. You don't think that my back is up against the wall knowing that this man is probably going to finish his career if he doesn't get this championship belt back. The pressure is on me. 
I've got to prove myself once again. The competition is knocking down the doors. Everybody wants a chance at Ricky Steamboat. Everybody wants a chance and they think that they can beat the Dragon. Ric Flair, all these heavy-duty competitors around the world that are after me have put my back up against the wall once again. This is why this is going to be your last chance. Chicago was a day for me. New Orleans was a day for me. But we're coming down to May 7th here in Nashville. Me, my family, you coming back for the last chance. Not a bad Steamboat promo. Not not as good as that one he cut a, a few weeks ago, but not not too bad. He left his family out of it for the most part. He had to sneak him in there at the end, but he left him out of the conversation for the most part, so that's what made it a little better. Uh, Steamboat understands what he's up against here, basically, is the story. A man in the stature of Ric Flair coming into what will be his last chance, so he knows Flair's going to give it everything. Steamboat alludes that Flair might retire if he can't beat Ricky for the belt. Uh, he addresses other men looking for title shots. It might have been fun to watch Ricky wrestle more guys like a Ron Simmons on TV for a while, sort of like the old Bret Hart fighting champion gimmick in 92. Would have been great to see Ricky run the gambit of mid-carters and upper mid-carters uh, before the next Flair match, but it is what it is, and we're coming up on Wrestle War, so we, we got to finish this to move on to other angles and storylines, but not a bad promo from Steamboat. No, definitely not. It was short and sweet and to the point. I like the the idea that they did it, you know, in an empty building or wherever they did it at a tape promo instead of doing it live that way. You don't hear the booze and the smattering and, and things like that. He can get his point across and kind of no distractions. And if he messes up, he gets another shot at it, that type of deal. So that was a smart decision there, too, I thought. We get Tonga, the Polynesian Savage, taking on Trent Knight. Match doesn't even go a minute. Of course, like I said before, Tonga, formerly the Tonga Kid and Tom on the WWF, um, twin brother of Rikishi. Fatu of the SST, you also know him as right now. This dude is 23 right here. His WWF career ended at 22. Think about that. It's good to see Trent Knight back here, but this was quick. Tama didn't even really show off any of his arsenal. Just a stomp fest and then a suplex into a Literally a vertical suplex into the match. Odd seeing another Samoan in similar garb, but no association to the SST. It's like having Axe and Smash wrestle. Then Crush comes out later in the same gear, but he's not associated with the others. I know Fatu is already doing a diving splash, so Tama can't use his Islander finisher, but a freaking suplex? Yeah, I was thrown off by that. Like, he finished him with a regular suplex, and then they show the uh, the replay, and it almost looked like he was trying to do maybe a brain buster, but at the end of the day, it was just a basic suplex. And Ross even alluded to the fact what you just made. What, he wonders why Tonga hasn't signed a deal with Pauly dangerously yet. So they're, they're kind of hinting at it. Slow build, maybe. I don't know. But we'll, we'll see what happens there with Tonga. So we got a Ricky Steamboat promo on the other side of this uh, Tonga match. And now on the other side, we have a promo with Ric Flair. He's hard selling the pay-per-view. He's got his last chance in two weeks. He's going to be the six-time champion. And we're going to hear from Ric Flair right now. Okay, Steamboat, showtime. Two weeks from tomorrow, pal. I can see it now. The Nature Boy going to bring every good-looking woman from all points of this land. The Stouffer's Hotel. In Nashville, Tennessee, going to be the site of the grandest victory party of all time. Because you see, on May 7th, Ric Flair, six times. Think about it. Six times, Steamboat. Yes, my friend. Woo! You are the man. And yes, my friend, you did beat the man. But now, pal, the heat's on. Two weeks from tomorrow, buddy. You've got to walk that aisle 
And in the back of your mind, pal, you know this time it's my last chance, and I won't be denied. Two weeks for the ball, Steamboat! You're going to be mine! Woo! Just another simple, good Ric Flair promo. Back to the ring with Bob Orton over Bob Emery in just under two minutes with the Superplex. And this is the type of Orton squash you need. It's uh, fast and to the point. Gary Hart joins commentary, runs down Dick Murdoch's father as a drunk and a wife beater or a woman beater or whatever. And I don't care if this is true, if this is a complete work. It's just tasteless. It's in poor taste. And this is all Gary Hart knew how to do to get heat. It was always making racial comments or racist comments, sorry, or things like this. And that's why I'll continue to say it. At one point, Gary Hart's shtick might have made him a top manager, but I've never found him as anything more than an adequate manager in the 1980s. As a booker, maybe he had some decent ideas at times, but as a manager, I think time had passed him by. What worked in the 1970s wasn't working here in basically what is going to be the 1990s. Yeah, I had the exact same comment you had. Uh, it was pretty tasteless. I mean, it just makes you wonder if people, people don't know how to distinguish what's real and what's fake at this point. Some people did, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, it's careless. It's tasteless. It's stupid. If you need to resort to these tactics to get some heat, then you need to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate what you're doing with your life. Yeah, and I don't know that anybody was listening or buying this. I mean, nobody really believed anything a heel manager said or a heel said in general back then. It's just the idea of that's his go-to, though. Like, And that's another thing I wanted to bring up here, because directly after the Orton match, we get a promo with Gary Hart and Bob Orton with Jim Ross. Gary wants Orton to continue with the drunk comments and the running down of Dick's dad, but I like how Bob Orton just completely moves away from that, and he was far less offensive, and, and this, it was a brief interview, but Orton basically makes it more about himself and Dick Murdoch in the ring, and Orton being better than Murdoch. He uh, took the higher road and stayed away from the nonsense Gary Hart was preaching out there. Yeah, I th- is this the one where he's talking about how at night uh, Dick Murdoch goes to bed and has dreams about beating Bob Orton because he's never been able to do it? This very well could have been. Just- yeah. I think that was the promo. And he, yeah, he totally avoided all those comments. And like I said, just, it was tasteless and uncalled for by uh, Gary Hart. We get more highlights here. It's a highlight from last week of Sting from uh, when the Iron Sheik interrupts and makes the challenge video from last week reminding us what happened and it's pushing what's coming up. That's unheard of. You're pushing what's coming up next. And uh, promo with the Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan. Uh, Sheik has an Iron On Iran t-shirt, cheap looking. Just uh, I found that funny. Shiki uh, challenges uh, Sting once again to a Persian club challenge for next week. And, and we're going into 1990 here. So my note here was just seriously, question mark, this is happening. We're doing this in 1989. Sheik swings the clubs here to end the segment. Iron Sheik promo. <laughs> That's all I can say. Oh, boy. Cameraman, zoom it. <laughs> I love it when uh, he does that. Another Wrestle War promo. This time they're showing the matches that will be on the card. I'm still wondering. I guess it was this week. Uh, it seems like this week when they really hard sell it as Wrestle War. I didn't notice that they had changed the name until this week anyway. Yeah, I didn't notice it either until then. I don't know if this is my mind playing tricks on me or if I've heard it a few times on here. But does somebody on commentary or something call it Wrestle Wars? Yeah, like, I heard somebody. Plural? Somebody said, Yeah, somebody called it that in uh, plural at one point. I don't know which announcer it was. I don't know if it was Pettacino or who it was, but I was like, that's that's weird. But yeah, I like the Wrestle War name, and I know it comes into play like in '91 and stuff for the war and things like that. Like same with WWF, but uh, here it's cool. I like it. More feud highlights here this time of Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Gilbert. We get clips of the match Sullivan wanted showed last week. It's Gilbert and Sullivan going at it in the Omni. 
Uh, both guys have clearly bladed in the uh, quick highlight we see of both guys are bleeding. And then more highlights of interviews with Kevin Sullivan and Missy Hyatt from last week when Missy slapped Sullivan. And that's all leading into the next match on the show, which is U.S. Tag Team Champions Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner with Missy Hyatt taking on the Samoan SWAT team with Paulie Dangerously. Now, this is what I'm talking about. This looks awesome. Watching in the ring as the SST are standing across from Gilbert and Steiner. This is a match I wanted to see. And they start right off with a do do spot by the Samoans and both Samoans missing corner splashes. It's a repeat or actually a precursor to the Royal Rumble 94 where Fatu and Shawn Michaels do this spot and actually get eliminated when they're doing it at the end of the Royal Rumble 94. And I know I'm a nerdy fan. And so is the girl at ringside who loves Rick Steiner. She's carrying a sign this week that says, I love Rick Steiner. That nerdy fan will turn out to be the future woman. Yeah, I like the do do move as well. And I think also in this match... They do the double headbutts and they actually sell it. I don't know if it's this match or another one, but yeah, I thought it was pretty crazy that they did that. But yeah, this is a good match. I liked it. SST wind up getting heat on both faces. There's a chant of Polly sucks something uh, in the crowd. And that is the difference between these fans and the ones from TBS Studios. I'll say that. Crowd chanting for Eddie Gilbert. So Eddie Gilbert actually has heat again. That's great to see. The crowd's hot. These guys are making a comeback in regards to being over again. Just wow, I can't believe that they were able to turn this around. And I didn't even know it got turned around like this. I'm really happy for everybody involved. Polly trips Eddie Gilbert. So Missy comes over and she slugs Polly dangerously. Crowd pops huge. It was a great spot. Samu and Fatu both miss diving headbutts. Gilbert gets the hot tag to Rick. Eddie Gilbert rolls to the floor. And that's when Kevin Sullivan and Danny Spivey come running out and they attack Gilbert on the floor. Sullivan posts Eddie's skull into the uh, yeah into the ring post. Then Kevin grabs Missy and starts dragging her by her hair, uh, which is what I said should have been done on last episode when we were talking about how to get heat here. And now there's heat. So now Missy has sympathy. Now we can finally support Missy. Now she has a reason for us to sympathize with her and look at her as more of a Miss Elizabeth or a baby face. And it was really smart to do something like this. And it's like I said, it just had to be something just as simple as grabbing her by the hair. It didn't even have to be that much, but it's Kevin Sullivan, so I'm not shocked. Match goes about 4.45. Somehow the champs are counted out. And I don't even understand how because the referee's right there. And it's not Teddy Long. And it's clear that Eddie's getting the crap beat out of him on the floor by guys not involved in the match. Obviously, the match's not even going five minutes. We got the Varsity Club running in. The match was actually just disguised or it was a backdrop to further the storyline between Gilbert and Steiner and the Varsity Club. But this was fun while it lasted. Would love to see these guys go at it again. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, another good angle um, that we've been getting lately on this show, and uh, it did its job. And again, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. And I, I, kudos to these two. I mean, they got handed shit, and they turned it into gold. Again, uh, they saved themselves. That's how good they were in the ring, on the mic, and everything they were doing. So people loved them. And I think getting into center stage really helped them as well, because this, this crowd's completely different than what was in the TBS studios. And I think that really helped quite a few guys. Somebody just want to point out, I didn't have those. I, I watched the network version of this show, and I didn't have the highlights of the Kevin Sullivan-Eddie Gilbert feud or match oh, okay. from the, the Omni, so that's interesting. Yeah, I noticed uh, I've, I skimmed through the network versions based because the times didn't necessarily correlate with the live versions that I have. So I, I skimmed through the network versions to see what was different, and I didn't notice that on this one, but I did notice on the next one there's there's a couple things edited out, which we'll get to when we when we get to the next week's episode. I, I couldn't help. My wheels started spinning as I was watching this, uh, the finish of this match play out. And um, I had to fantasy book a little. And I thought to myself, man, if the SST had just joined in this brawl and we had a three-way brawl, a three-way feud, my head would have exploded. I would have marked out to no end. Could you imagine these six guys just 
beating the crap out of each other. The SST, Sullivan and Spivey, uh, Gilbert and, and Steiner. Uh, all six of these guys weren't afraid to fight. So, I mean, oh my God, it would have been amazing. I don't know if we could handle all that. <laughs> that would have been quite the cluster, but it would have been amazing. Uh, these guys would have just beat the hell out of each other and loved every second of it. And to me, that's what makes it believable. When these guys love to pound on each other and hurt each other, um, and make it look as real as possible. So they weren't afraid to do that, and that's why people enjoy this stuff. So. Uh, we get the junkyard dog over the masked red devil in about a minute and a half with a, a thump. The crowd, man, even the junkyard dog is over. If I wasn't sold on center stage before, between the Iron Sheet getting those giant USA chants a week or two ago, and now dog getting this uh, JYD chant here from the fans, I mean, th- these guys are alive, and they're really making these shows, even for the guys that weren't necessarily very over going into the move to center stage. I don't know if it was the new setting or what, but man, JYD just seemed to come out of this with a little more spunk than usual when he was, re- when he was in the match, and that's still not much. But of all the dog squashes we've seen so far, this might be the best one to, to crack negative stars anyway. Maybe quarter star? <laughs> yeah, I'm with, I'll am with. i give you him a quarter. And he, I think he also had the ring music too. And that helps too. I know you mentioned that a little earlier. These guys are getting some licensed music and just coming out to music and that gets the crowd going. When you don't have music or anything, people are just flat. Just a lot of little things that they're changing that have that help tremendously, and it's definitely visible and everything else. And we wind up closing the show with the Junkyard Dog being interviewed by Jim Ross. He starts to talk about beating Kabuki, the father of Great Muda. He says he fought Kabuki in the early 70s and late 80s. I don't know how the hell he did that, but that's what he says he did. Great Muda and Gary Hart actually interrupt this. Just a basic promo with Hart having a few words with Dog while Muda blows some mist into the air. Uh, you see how simple this is set this crap up is? Because at this point, Dog and Muda are scheduled to open the pay-per-view, so it doesn't necessarily even need a backstory. And just looking at those names on paper, wow, Muda and the Dog, maybe not a great match, but this could really accelerate Muda's push because now he's beating an actual American name, a guy who had been a big name over the course of the last decade. And it's a huge thing, but they just as simple as Gary Hart coming out and cutting a quick promo while Muda just stands there and blows mist in the air. No attack, no, you know, no, I, I'm going to murder you. Just, hey, we're coming, we're going to beat you. And, and it was as simple as that. And just that easy to even get your opening match over rather than throw Michael Hayes versus Russian assassin out there without any fanfare or announcement of the match in, in advance. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a world of difference. I mean, WWF were really good at popping, you know, little things in maybe even a week before the show to get some heat on some of their lower card matches. And that's kind of what they did here. Muda came out and you see these guys interact together. It's not just a match thrown together. This helps it, clearly. Um, and it, and like you said, it's a way to elevate Muda a little faster. And again, we, it's kind of like a dead horse this time or broken record this go around. But all these little things, uh, again, make a world of difference. And it, I can't just believe it. It's just I don't I, like you mentioned earlier. I don't know what the hell George Scott is thinking sitting back watching two episodes of what happened as soon as he got fired. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering what he thought. Hart did say he wanted to see what this nappy-headed character had to say, referring to the dog when he comes out, and dog kind of tells him to watch it. It seemed legit, referring to he was referring to dog there. And Now, I would never be one to call anyone a racist or a bigot because, A, I don't know these people personally, and B, I understand this is a completely different time and world, and this stuff wasn't taken as seriously, if that makes any sense. And knowing Gary Hart's background, growing up in the mean streets of Chicago, literally, I don't doubt this guy probably never saw race or color or things like that, but 
these racist jabs just feel so outdated as a way to get heat here in 89. Just goes right back to the whole Murdoch promo thing, too, with his dad being a drunk and a woman beater. Even if it wasn't considered crossing the line in 89, it was still just a lazy way to get heat by this time and and going into the 1990s, in my opinion. Yeah, it's unnecessary. Uh, I don't want to go on a tangent or anything, but we can't look at this in the spectrum of 2020 (laughs) because it's 1989. There's nothing nothing that can be said or done to take back what was said in 1989. Um, No, and and that's not what I'm trying to do either. I'm just saying – Yeah. By 1989 standards, even if it, it still flew to whatever degree, my argument is just that it's lazy. Like, it doesn't work right. anymore. Like, you come up, you're like, we're past that, so be creative. You know, he, he hasn't moved on with the times, basically, is more my complaint here than trying to call him a racist or anything like that, which is not what I was trying to do. It's just, these are things that worked a long time ago in Southern territories, and, you know, it's yeah. just... I, think anyway, told, I, don't think he, I don't think he adapted to, you know, being on national television. This is worldwide, man. You can't do right. what only 300 people see in a studio down in the South. You can't get away with what that, that stuff now. Um, and like you said, I think it legit pissed JYD off. He did kind of look at him like, hey, man, you need to cool it there. I mean, I don't know if they run things by each other. Like, hey, this one want to say, you okay with this? I'm sure some people may do that, but I don't see why JYD would be okay with that. And like you said, it's just lazy. And Muda is Muda. Gary Hart, when I first watched 89 NWA, I liked Gary Hart. I thought he was awesome. I like his look. And I, I think you alluded to him having like mafia ties, possibly. And I, I like mafia stuff. So I thought he just has that look to me. He reminds me of like a gangster that I would see in like a Chicago movie. So I, I enjoyed him. But the more I learn about him and talk to you and just watch this stuff, he's not as good as I thought he was initially and picking up on these little things like this just makes it even more. So those thoughts being changed, I don't know. I didn't like it tasteless again. Yeah. And I don't want to keep harping on uh, Gary Hart. So I'll just make a few comments on this show before we move on to the main event. Uh, You can't write notes for these shows, or at least I can't write notes for these shows. They go by so fast. There's so much happening now that there's new booking and we're doing a 45 minute format rather than an hour and a half, you know, not counting commercials. There's just no downtime to look away from the TV screen. It's like a completely different world. I have to watch the show first to sync it in. And then I have to watch it again as I type notes so I don't have to be so focused on the TV. I mean, this is like a 180 degree different world from like two weeks ago. It's crazy. And everyone involved is clearly ready for it, though. There's no flubs. There's no mess ups. Everybody seems to be ready to do this. So it's working out great. It's just taking me a little time to process it so that I, I can't keep up with the action on the screen. Yeah, I go to type something and then I look up and it's already passed by and I'm like, dang it, I gotta pause it and type up, finish my thought. So I'm with you there, man. It's fast and furious. It seems like nothing is done for no reason. Every single thing that is done on these shows has a meaning behind it. And that's such a fresh change of pace that I'm excited to see more of. And we head into Sunday night, the NWA main event for April 23rd. We get the great Muda with Gary Hart in his corner over Steve Casey. It's a rematch from Clash of the Champions 6. This match was taped on April 9th at the Omni. Muda dominates for the first five minutes. Casey makes a quick comeback. It's a top rope crossbody, gets a one count. Muda with a reverse enziguri, a handspring elbow, and a German suplex ends this in about five minutes, 40 seconds. A bit long, but shorter than their class match, which I think went a little over eight minutes. Muda with some impressive submission stuff here before going into the up-tempo stuff for the finish. And I want to go back to a point I think you made last episode where I think Sting kept on doing this crossbody and not even pinning guys. Steve Casey did the crossbody, taking Steamer's finisher, and Muda kicks out a one. Why can't they just leave this dude's move alone? 
I just want to make a comment on a commercial here. Yeah. <laughs> There's a 35 cent Whopper. Like, <laughs> like that's insane to think about today. 35 cent Whopper. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't even notice that commercial. I, I remember them being 99 cents, and even then that was on special, and that was, geez, going back over 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It's crazy wow. to think. Move on to more action. SST out there against Randy Rose and Ranger Ross. We saw Ross and Rose on Saturday night get a win, so maybe they'll make it two in a row. Not likely. Another Polly sucks something chant. Not really quite sure. I can't make that out. Classy crowd. It seems to be clear Ranger's push is on hold here. He's been getting laid out pre-match by Michael Hayes. Now he's in these random tag matches. I said after the Danger Zone segment with Rose, I would like to have seen, you know, SST attack Rose instead of Victory and then go find a partner for a few, but Ranger Ross is not that partner. This match makes no sense to me. Uh, SST get heat on Ranger. Ross moves from a Fatu shoulder charge in the corner. Hot tag to Randy Rose. And I should point out here that Teddy Long's the referee because Rose gets Fatu in a pinning combination, but Teddy Long is busy yelling at Ranger Ross in the corner, so... Samu comes in, does a dive off the top rope onto Ranger Ross with a headbutt, and then the SST steal the win from there. Jim Ross isn't happy with the officiating. I think everyone gets it at this point. Like, they're really, really, really killing this with Teddy Long. Clash 6 could have been an accident or, or at least a one-time heat-of-the-moment type things. like they tried to sell it as immediately after the match. But Long is clearly a heel here at this point. We get it. And talk about beating a dead horse at this point. You have to wonder why it's taking the NWA this long to realize that this guy's cheating left and right and he needs to be fired. Yeah, I'm with you. It's kind of funny, man. The more I go through these, like our notes are almost similar a lot. So we, we kind of have the same taste. But it's just like I get you film a lot in advance. But at the end of the day, it's just gone on way too long. And Ross is doing his best trying to explain away his due process guy I've been mentioning, but you can't stop him from officiating while you're going through this process. At first, it's fine, but when you go seven, eight shows in a row where he's cheating people and it's clear as day that he's going to turn heel and do something, at first it was cool, but now I just, I'm ready for it to be over. It's a waste of time and stupid. Yeah, it's, it's, they're overdoing it. And I thought maybe the WWF underdid it with Danny Davis. That was more a, the fan in me. I just wanted to see him cheat more. I thought it would have been more fun for, you know, yeah. for that time period. It would have been a lot of fun. But here it's like overkill. I mean, Teddy Long's screwing somebody on every show, syndicated pro, syndicated worldwide, world championship wrestling, the main event, the Omni, you know, he's just, he's screwing people left and right. So it's just, at this point, it makes the NWA officials look like idiots. Yeah, and Danny Davis, what, two times, and it was done. Like, Well, I mean, if you if you look around, he, there's a few things, you know, on primetime or a house show, you know, little extra things, do Junkyard Dog and guys like that he screwed or, or, or whatever. So it probably was more than a couple times, but it certainly wasn't like this, and you really had to go searching to find it. It wasn't like it was in your face four times every weekend. Right. It was spread out, and like you said, on house shows that only were seen on maybe in the Boston area or something like that. Right. This is overkill. And even though we have a roadies and varsity club match scheduled for the Wrestle War pay-per-view, we actually get the match right here as well because we see the tag team champions, Mike Rotunda and Dr. Death, take on the Road Warriors, also taped April 9th at the Omni in Atlanta. We've learned by now, even though they're fighting here, that Nikita Koloff will be the special referee at Wrestle War. I have no idea when that was announced. I don't know if I missed it, but Jim Ross says it like repeatedly in this match. And it seems odd that he would just announce it here in passing like we should already know about it. Of course, Nikita's wife at this point was uh, dealing with Hodgkin's disease at this time, and she'd soon pass away later in the summer. So that's an unfortunate bit of news there. But it's interesting to see Nikita even come in and work a payday. I don't know if he did it to help out with bills at home. I don't know if he just did it because he missed the sport and he wanted to come back and, and work a show. But we learned that Nikita's on his way in, and he, I think he only comes in for this referee spot. So that's uh, really interesting as well. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of Nikita Koloff. So uh, I heard the name. And I was like, oh, that's going to be cool. I can't wait to see him. So that's unfortunate about his wife. I didn't know she passed because of that. So definitely unfortunate bit of news there. I'm happy to see Nikita come in. Yeah, um, back to this match. The Road Warriors dominate early until Hawk runs into a knee from Rotunda on the apron. Varsity Club takes over at one point. Rotunda does a bear hug on Hawk. And uh, my notes here are seriously, I'm, I'm supposed to buy Mike Rotunda bear hugging Hawk. The other way around, maybe, but th- this just looks so ludicrous that I'm supposed to even buy into this. Doc takes over on the bear hug, which made a whole lot more sense. Doesn't make the match any less boring, but it makes a lot more sense that Doc's doing the bear hug. Hot tag to Animal. Animal drags Sullivan into the ring. Ellering joins in for a double DQ as we get six guys going at it in about seven and a half minutes. Uh, we get the six-way brawl with the roadies clearing the ring. They all go do stereo ten punches in uh, opposite corners, even Ellering on Sullivan. So that was fun to see. The refs can't control this. They're getting thrown out of the ring by everyone, allowing Jim Ross to wisely put over on commentary again that nobody will be th- throwing Nikita Koloff around at WrestleWars. So good booking, smart announcing from Jim Ross here. But I'm still feeling like I don't know if this was shown out of order, if they plan to announce something that they didn't announce already, because it just seems weird that on the main event of all shows, in passing, Jim Ross is telling us that Nikita Koloff's a special referee. The way he's speaking to us is as if we should already know it. Yeah, I noticed that too. It wasn't provided like at the, at the beginning of the match. They said Nikita is going to be the referee this is before they even, I think, before they even tied up. So I wonder if they forgot to announce it on Saturday night or, or what happened. I don't know. It was just assumed that we should know this. Other than that, like, yeah, this was a decent match. You kind of knew it was going to end in the DQ, even though it was from the Omni. I was just waiting to see how they got there. I can't wait to see more from these guys. And we move on to the weekend of April 29th, our final weekend on this week's podcast. Uh, we kick things off with NWA Pro. This is a easy one to fly through because it's uh, half half of the show is just a highlight reel of setting up everything for Wrestle War, which is fine by me for syndication. Kick off the show with Shane Douglas over George Scott. We uh, watch some highlights of the Road Warriors versus Doc and Rotunda George from Scott. Clash. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. You said oh. George Scott. <laughs> uh, wishful thinking. Shane Douglas over George South, everyone. We move on to highlights of the Road Warriors and Varsity Club feud. We see highlights from Clash 6 and the title change. We go back in time. We even get a, a glimpse of the old Varsity Club versus Road Warriors and Ellering six-man tag from TV of what feels like many, many years ago, even though it's just a few months back. Another highlight reel, Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton feud. They cover all kinds of stuff there, which leads to a Bob Orton squash here over Mike Justice. Haven't seen Mike Justice in a while, so that was pretty cool. Joe Pettacino knows. He talks Ric Flair versus Steamboat, WrestleWar89. Back to the ring, we're shown highlights of the Midnight Express SST match where Polly and Cornette were handcuffed together with the Junkyard Dog, uh, aired on main event a week or two ago. Back to action with Sting over a job guy. Didn't quite catch his name, but Sting with a quick win there with the Scorpion. More highlights of feuds going into WrestleWar. This time it's the Varsity Club's Kevin Sullivan and Dan Spivey, Gilbert and Rick Steiner feud. Back to the ring, Michael P.S. Hayes over Dwayne Bruce in a really quick match. DDT gets the win. Joe Pettacino knows again. He tells Ricky Steamboat not to bring his wife and son to ringside. And I don't know about you, man, but Pettacino's not supposed to be a heel, but he's very opinionated and, and quite rude sometimes to when he's discussing the baby faces. Yeah, I mean, some of the comments and things that he makes just make it seem like he's uh, he's going into business for himself, kind of like you mentioned on other episodes. I don't think he realizes he's not working for himself. He's working for a company. And the the whole job is to push these guys, not diminish them of any kind. That's his gimmick. If he wants to bring his wife and kids to ringside because that's his gimmick, then let him. Who the hell are you to tell him not to? I mean, 
He's speaking for a lot of us. I mean, I, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with him. He just comes time. off like a, a complete dick. It's like, who are you to tell tell Simo who? What have you done in this business to to tell the world champion how he needs to conduct business? <laughs> exactly. So it, it just comes across as really stupid, and it just makes it even more of a waste of time and cheap and second rate compared to the Sean Mooney Event Centers, if that's what they were going for. Main event of pro here is pretty cool. We get Ric Flair taking on Randy Rose in a pretty basic but nice TV match. Flair gets the win here, obviously. Looks like Randy Rose's push, or if you want to call it a push, is over because he's, he was jobbing a Jack Victory, so I don't know if you can use the word push, but looks like uh, whatever they might have had planned for Randy Rose is, is not happening. And we close the show with a look at highlights of Sting. We get a quick package of Sting over Rip Morgan at the the match from The Clash and the match where Sting defeated Mike Rotunda for the TV title highlights. And it's basically just a way to put over Sting. They don't even include the Iron Sheik in the promo package, so you can kind of guess who's going to win that match at WrestleWar. Oh, yeah. Was there any doubt whether you've seen that highlight package or not? (laughs) (laughs) And it's off to NWA Worldwide for April 29th. Lance Russell's co-host this week is the Junkyard Dog. Yikes. Show kicks off with a great Muda over Bob Emery with a moonsault. Back to using the moonsault here in just over a minute. Muda gets the win. Lance pushes Muda versus JYD for Wrestle War. JYD responds on commentary during the match. Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan take on Ranger Ross and Steve Casey. Now, this is the show you were referencing where we keep flipping from the UIC Pavilion in Chicago over to center stage, and it seemed like they did it almost every other match, and that made it even more blatantly obvious and more... Just gave me a, a freaking headache at one point, man. Just back and forth, back and forth. But we get Muda over Emery at the arena. Then we're over to center stage for the Iron Sheik and Rip Morgan taking on Ranger Ross and Steve Casey. And it looks like Ranger Ross is the new Michael Hayes now, the new babyface Hayes anyway. Talk about a wheel of partners. We go from Ranger Ross and the dog to Ranger Ross and Randy Rose. Now he's got Steve Casey. Sheik's already moving into a program with Sting, but we're coming off issues between he and the Sheik. Or, uh, he and Ranger Ross from Clash, so uh, this match makes sense with Sheik on one side, Ranger Ross on the other. Rip Morgan, I put down in my notes here after watching this match. I don't know if it's because he keeps teaming with Iron Sheik, so he just automatically looks better. It looks like he's really improving in the ring. Ranger takes the heat here. Hot tag to Steve Casey. Sheik is incapable of selling. He's getting hit, and he, he can't even move to sell the moves. I'm not even talking about bumping. I mean, he can't even move to sell the moves. Teddy Long purposely, he's the referee, by the way, Teddy Long purposely turns away from Rip Morgan as he backdrops Ranger Ross over the top rope to the floor, which would be a DQ in the NWA. Then Long also conveniently misses Casey running off the ropes and running right into a, a knee from Morgan on the apron. Leads to Sheiky taking over the camel clutch, and Sheik and Morgan get the win there. Your thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's just more of the Teddy Long garbage that's ran its course. Sheik, like we've talked at nauseum, uh, he has no business in the ring. And it's kind of unfortunate, Ranger Ross. Like, he had that one promo on a Saturday night, and then he's gotten nothing on the mic since. And they completely cooled off on him. So it's kind of unfortunate. I would like to have seen what he could do if he had an actual small little feud where he was cutting promos and building some heat and uh, getting places. But never know. And it's off to Pedicino Nose, and now he's showing the NWA Grand Slam giveaway for the Great American Bash. Uh, is that all Joe Pedicino does now is uh, shill giveaways? And uh, he announces here, and I found this humorous, he announces here that second place wins a trip to the Bash. Second place gets a trip to the Bash. Could you imagine if WWE did a giveaway and second place was a trip to WrestleMania? What does that say to you about your company here? First place is a, you win a bunch of cassette tapes and things like that. Second place is the trip to the bash. Wow. So first place, you get the entire collection of Turner Home Entertainment videos for the NWA, which isn't bad, but 
I should be getting that entire collection and a trip to the bash. Like I would ask if I could trade. Like you know what? I, I'd rather be second in this competition. Yeah, and those those tapes aren't costing him anything. So to not give them both things is is pretty silly in itself. But I just think it's funny that even though the, the fan may value those tapes more, uh, so, some fans anyway, or it's a better deal or whatever. However you want to look at it, the NWA shouldn't be selling it that way. They should be selling their bashes the thing to be, the the place to be, the thing to do. So. I just thought it was funny that he announced that. We get Ron Simmons over George South. See, I said South that time with a spine buster in two and a half minutes. This match also at center stage. Lance Russell points out that Ron looks irritated here. JYD thinks he's mad at the world. It's clear Ron's turn is continuing. I like the slow build right now because they don't have anything for him. So he's not just coming out one week and just randomly a heel just because they want him to be a heel. I like that he, since he has no direction, they're letting him slowly build to that. And they're telling the story with it here rather than just abruptly turning him for no reason. Yeah, I like those slow builds as long as the payoff's always good. Uh, the payoff has to deliver because if you're wasting, you know, three or four weeks of TV for a terrible payoff, fans aren't going to get as invested next time around. So you got to make it count. I'm enjoying Ron Simmons. He's just beating up people and things like that. And so far, so good. We move away from center stage, and we're back at the arena here for eight-man tag team action, and I marked out for this one, too, and they fooled me again. We get the Road Warriors teaming with Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner in an eight-man tag team match, accompanied by Paul Ellering and Missy Hyatt, as they take on Bob Orton and three members of the Varsity Club, Rotunda, Dr. Death, and Dan Spivey. Big eight-man tag team match. I was really looking forward to this. I thought this was going to be a fun, hot eight- to ten-minute match. Instead, this winds up being clipped. They literally clipped the match straight from the introductions to near the end of the match, and I, what garbage. Uh, Steiner's taking the heat here. He jumps over and makes a double hot tag, tags both Hawk and Animal in at the same time. Pretty sure that's not legal. Everything immediately breaks down, all eight guys in the ring. Rotunda and Doc fling Tommy Young to the floor. This is where it gets interesting. Tommy Young's thrown to the floor, so we got the referee down. Teddy Long randomly runs down to the ringside, calls for the bell, raises Dan Spivey's hand, declares the varsity club's the winner, then Long runs away as fast as he can back to the locker room. Moments later, Tommy Young's back up, and he reverses the decision, giving the faces the win. This was a tad over the top for me, even for this Long nonsense. He's not even in the match. Now he's running down and deciding other matches. At least this is over soon. The part of this match we saw went about three minutes or so, so everything about this was a disappointment to me. Yeah, I know the week prior on Worldwide, they announced that this match was going to be on there. So I was like, oh man, this is going to be sick. I can't wait to see this. And then we get, like you said, the clip version. It's only three minutes long. And the Teddy Long stuff made absolutely no sense to me. It's long past overstaying its welcome, and I'm glad it's almost over. Yeah, you got that right. And we're back at center stage. This time we get Butch Reed over Trent Knight. This is where I noted that the uh, back and forth from center stage to the arena is really starting to become a little too much for me. Like, it's really noticeable. They should have done one. Showed all the arena matches and then all the center stage matches or vice versa. And uh, rather than switching back and forth like this, this match also oddly goes on for far too long. And it's Chinlock City from Butch Reed. Almost feels like it's a, a rehash from the old George Scott stuff. Even the announcers appear to fall asleep during this match. There's a period in this match where there's no announcing. Takes Butch Reed a little over five minutes to beat Trent Knight with a shoulder block here, the diving shoulder block. Yeah, pretty boring match. This is old Butch Reed. Back to Pedicino Nose. Joe tells Ricky to leave his family at home again. He, he thinks Ricky should be out there. He literally says this. Pedicino says, this match is for the glory and the money. Leave your family at home. And get this, people. Joe Pedicino is not a heel. This is just him going into business for himself. 
I'm not really sure what he was trying to do here, but his opinions have become very overbearing and I wish he'd just stick to whatever's on script or whatever he's supposed to be discussing rather than throwing in his own kayfabe opinions. Yeah, same here. Pettacino knows is just a waste of two minutes. To the main event, and this is why I forgave the eight-man tag, at least initially, because I learned that we have Ric Flair and Michael Hayes taking on Lex Luger and Ricky Steamboat, and have you seen a bigger match than this since we started doing this on television? I can't think of one. Just on paper, looking at the names and looking at these guys standing across the ring during the introductions, I was just overwhelmed with excitement, like, we're going to get to see this. Yeah, it's just insane to think about. You have these four guys in the ring staring each other down. Just awesome. And I should note, we're back in the arena for this match also. And uh, that's pretty much where it ends for me. I'm getting hyped up again, just like for the eight-man tag. And just like the eight-man tag, it goes straight from the introductions to uh, joined in progress with Flair getting the heat on Steamboat. Steamboat sweating. This match looks like it's already 10, 15 minutes old. Hayes comes in, applies the figure four on Steamboat. I wonder how many times it took Ric Flair to show Hayes how to do that before he got it right. Steamboat tosses Flair off the top rope, goes for the big diving or the big splash. Flair gets his knees up. Always a great Steamboat spot. Still, Luger and Hayes get the hot tags. Lex cleans house of Flair and Hayes. Michael on the apron, and we get the old Macho Man Tito Santana finish from Boston Gardens where Savage wins the IC title. Hayes puts the brass knuckles on his hands. Luger ducks a wild punch, tries to back suplex Hayes back into the ring. Hayes clocks Lex with the object in the forehead repeatedly. Lex finally goes down. Hayes makes the cover, steals the win. Only five minutes shown. Uh, it was fun while it lasted. No idea how much was cut, but wouldn't be surprised if it was something like 15 minutes. It's unfortunate, but it did what it's supposed to do, and Steamer and Flair look great here against one another. So since this was cut and put on tape, that means it was recorded in full, right? It's buried probably somewhere. In theory, yeah, and now that it's with Turner, it's likely wasn't re- uh, taped over either. So, yeah, in theory, it should exist somewhere if it wasn't damaged or destroyed or, or unmarked or all the other things that happened. But, hey, man, if some of the other things that have showed up, like the last battle of Atlanta, this this match here, very probable it exists out there somewhere. It'd be pretty cool to watch the whole thing. Just awesome stuff. It's amazing the matches they could have had if these guys stuck around a little longer than they did. Yeah, I mean, uh, replace Hayes with Wyndham here and just holy cow. Mm-hmm. We close the show with a pre-tape of Gary Hart, another quick promo, followed by clips of the Orton and Murdoch feud. As you said, they're playing the hell out of this Orton and Murdoch feud, but uh, I can't complain. At least at least they're filling time with things like this. They're, they're trying to make it the best of the time. And not only are we fed a ton of feuds and programs, they, they make sure to keep you up to date on everything that's going on with everyone right now. That'll end worldwide. We head into the nighttime program, World Championship Wrestling, April 29th. It's a special one-hour edition, aired at 7.05. Jim Ross is still going solo. Hayes is still off commentary. Amen. What was the point of dropping Magnum TA if you're going to get rid of Hayes so quickly? And I and I understand that Hayes was implemented before the change in guard, so to speak. But why isn't Magnum brought back? Why why isn't something done? Why why not keep Hayes just so you don't insult Magnum at that point? I mean, it's it's very insulting to me what's transpiring here with Hayes off TV just so quickly after this, and still no mention of Magnum TA. Yeah, I was really, like uh, we've said before, I was really getting into Magnum TA and just enjoying his work and just for him to be abruptly gone uh, right before the move. This makes me wonder if they thought, you know, we got to do a fresh clean slate from moving to this new center stage, new everything. So let's give him haze. It's unfortunate. Magnum could have done a really good job in this situation and really helped advance these feuds further uh, with the way he was getting as far as commentary goes. 
We get a Ric Flair promo here. He's got some ladies with him. Ricky Steamboat comes out and interrupts. This is their first appearance in front of an actual audience here at Center Stage. Their, their other uh, interviews here have been pre-tapes. Flair offers a lady to Jim Ross to start off. JR asks Rick about his training regimen, so Flair alludes that his training regimen is partying all night with these ladies, which is probably true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's where Steamboat interrupts. Uh, Flair offers him to join the party. Dragon says he's not out there to call into question Rick's lifestyle or morals, thank God. Which he shouldn't be, uh, because I always wondered, you know, that Steamboats just seemed too preachy earlier on in this feud. Uh, who is he to tell people how to live their life? What does that have to do with the world championship, you know? So I was glad Steamboat came out there and said that. Anyway, at this point, it is about the belt. Steamboat knows that it's about the belt. He gives Flair credit for being one of the best, or being the best intimidator there is. But he reminds Rick that Steamboat has the belt, and Flair must beat him to win the title. What'd you think of this one? Yeah, I liked it. He dropped the moral crap. He's like, I'm not interested in the girl. And he's like, I'm not here to talk about that stuff. He uh, mentioned that he knew Flair can intimidate people just by being Ric Flair and that it makes it hard. And he's putting all the pressure on himself, kind of like he alluded to in that other promo. I kind of like where they're going with this, right up, leading right up to the show. Remember from Chi Town Rumble, like he had all the confidence and then he lost the belt and he was, or he, he was like furious because Steamboat won that tag match and then he lost all his confidence. And now it's like, you know what? This is my last chance is game seven. And when the money's on the line, that's when I perform the best. So he knows in his mind that there's no better Ric Flair than the one that's up against the wall and has everything on the line. So just a long story and the arc that it's had, it's hitting the, the finish line and it, it, it's just so good. Really, really good. And here's another segment that I, I personally enjoyed. We get Bob Orton taking on Trent Knight out there. Match goes about two minutes before it winds up being a no contest, and I'll explain why here in a minute. Orton looked good for the couple minutes he was in the ring, hit that press slam into the backbreaker. I don't know if you caught it, man, but he does a double underhook suplex, and he tosses Trent Knight about seven, eight feet in the air. Uh, just crazy, crazy move. But they do an angle here where Gary Hart joins commentary for the match with Jim Ross. And Jim Ross says that Gary Hart's got an emergency phone call in the back. Security's alerted Jim Ross that Gary Hart has a, a phone call in the back. So Gary Hart leaves the studio to go take this supposed phone call. And what happens next is Gary Hart comes flying back out from the locker room down onto the ground. The crowd's going nuts. And we learn that it's it's all a ruse. Dick Murdoch set him up. And Dick Murdoch comes out and starts wailing away on Gary Hart with a cowbell connected to the bull rope. And... I actually recorded this segment because I love the heat that it got. I love Jim Ross on, on the commentary here. I did clip it in order to get rid of all the downtime in between some of the stuff that was going on. But I got all the major points here, and I wanted to play that for everyone to listen to real quick. Sorry, I got a, I, I'm being told that you're, wait a minute, you've got a, a, a phone call, or you're wanted in the locker room area. Apparently there's been an emergency. You're needed in the locker room area. I don't know what it is. That's just what I was told by security. Gary Hart leaving the podium now. Gary Hart, wait a minute, Hart's just been knocked. Murdoch, Dick Murdoch has attacked Gary Hart. He's knocked him out of the ramp area. Murdoch's got the bull rope. He's nailing Gary Hart, and then his fist in fire here at ringside. Bob Orton finally sees Murdoch. Orton's got Murdoch, Murdoch's got the bull rope. And it's Murdoch that just nailed Bob Orton over the ring. Orton's grabbing a chair. Hart has been nailed. And Murdoch just put a dent in that steel chair with the bull rope. And Hart and Murdoch are going to high ground. And the captain has had all he can stand for, obviously. I knew it was going to happen sooner. 
tell you something, Jim Ross. Every time that I go to a Curtis Classic team roping, every time I go to the Caravan Lounge in Amarillo, Texas, and I'm sure it's going to happen at the Bull Lounge in Nashville on the 6th Ramon Town ahead of time, everybody's asking Nick Murdoch, why is every time we're turning on that TV set that there's Gary Hearn, there's Bob Orr Jr., and sometimes Butch Reed, and they're pulverizing you into the mound? Well, it's come to a head. Bob Orr Jr., Gary Hart, Nashville. On the seventh day, we're gonna meet the Texas Bull Rope match, and I am the originator of this match, and I'll guarantee you one thing. I'm gonna stop a mud hole in you, and I'm gonna stop it dry again, because it's hard. Every morning you get up and look at yourself in the mirror and you say, by God, it's heaven again. Two or one or three or one, there's nothing you can do about it. But Orton, when you're strapped to one end of this bull rope, and I'm strapped into the other, buddy. I guarantee you, I'm gonna ring your bell. And Gary Hart, stick your face in there, buddy, one time, because I'm gonna ring yours too. And Jim, I'm gonna leave this with you so you can show the people, you can feel it. That's a real McCoy. You better believe it, made out of solid steel, fast. And I just really enjoyed that. It's just an old school feud. And uh, so it started off with no fanfare and a terrible match at the Clash. And yet somehow they've managed to take that and build on it every week since. And there's a rematch that we should have no reason to want to see. And yet somehow, thanks to real booking and a little personality from Murdoch, even if this match isn't going to be great, I understand at least why it's on the pay-per-view. Yeah, they're not wasting time by doing these things. It's leading to a pay-per-view match. And like you said, if you would have told me like Bob Orton and Dick Murdoch's going to be on the pay-per-view, are you excited to watch that? I'm like, you're crazy. After watching these angles and the promos and just everything, like the highlights that they've been showing, I'm not I'm not saying I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to see this match, but I, I'm invested in the match and I want to see it. And that's all it takes. Do something to make you get become invested. They did a good job of doing that. Up next, we get the junkyard dog in the ring with Ron Simmons, Teddy Long, the referee. On paper, this does this match doesn't sound very appetizing. Uh, lucky for us, it's a backdrop. Wait for it. Another angle. As we continue to see Simmons turning heel, that's not the only story here. Simmons is the aggressor to start, but it's JYD who gets scolded from Teddy Long. Dog shoves Simmons down, Long with a slow three count. Simmons kicks out. Dog questions him on the slow count. Lots of choking from both. It's almost like nobody knew what to do. There was just a whole lot of choking from both sides, including the dog. Simmons shoves dog down, makes a cover, and Long makes an insanely quick three count. In fact, it was so fast, I didn't believe he even had time to count three. The fastest three count in the history of fast three counts. It took about a half second for him to count three. So I mean, that was literally um, blink and you'll miss it. The match didn't even go three minutes. Yeah. Simmons gets the win there. Obviously a cheap win. We go straight to Jim Ross, and Jim Hurd appears out of nowhere. The executive vice president of the NWA, Jim Hurd, just claims he was sitting in the stands. I didn't see him out there. Jim Ross had already noted before that Teddy Long had already been suspended from refereeing title matches, but after the previous match, uh, Jim Hurd announces that he has now fired referee Teddy Long, and I grabbed a soundbite of that for everyone to hear right now. Mr. Hurd, I know you've received a lot of mail, thousands of letters about this officiating situation. I think the fans here, we've had... Have we had enough? What's, what, what's the verdict here? What's going to happen? Okay, Jim, Teddy Long's been under suspicion ever since the fast count on the Road Warriors. And he was warned and, and, and suspended from doing title matches. Now I'm sitting in the stands tonight. I've seen all I want to see. The one thing you can try to be as an administrator is fair. And that's what the NWA is going to do. As of this moment, 
Teddy Long is no longer a referee for the NWA. You might say, as you succinctly put it sometimes, Teddy Long is long gone. All right, fans, there you hear it. Teddy Long has been canned. He is history as far as officiating is concerned in the NWA. We'll be right back on World Championship Wrestling. Teddy Long is long gone. Thank God. And I like how Jim Ross points out he's done with officiating here in the NWA, leaving doors open for other things in the future. Yeah, that's what I put down for my notes that he got fired as a referee, but he's not gone from the company, so uh, we'll see what happens there. Up next, we get the great Muda in a squash here. Muda's out there with Gary Hart over Lee Scott in two minutes with the moonsault. Scott earning his keep here in April, doing a lot of high-profile jobs. Muda out here with the plancha, the missile drop kick, the mist. So we get a little more from Muda this week than we saw last time here on Saturday night. Good match for Muda. Next segment is the Persian Club Challenge. We've been building it up for two weeks, and uh, we see Sting. As he comes out, he's full of energy. He takes a giant back bump in the ring, and he's got that black rat tail in the back of his hair. Man, I hated when he did that. I thank God that didn't last very long. Yeah, he looked completely ridiculous. <laughs> so stupid looking. So Sting comes out, and he's accepted the Persian Club Challenge. He's getting ready to do it with the Iron Sheik, but Sting just doesn't know. He doesn't understand how it works, so he asks Sheiky to demonstrate it for him, and we'll take a listen, see what happens. Okay, let's get ready, guys. Let's get ready to get it on here. Are you ready for the challenge? You know I am, Rossi. I want to see this. I can't wait. All right, Sheik. Show him what you want to do. Show him exactly you know, how it's done. Mr. Jim Rice, I show him. I show Luke Sluger, Ricky Stimbo, anybody. I want that idiot pay attention. Okay, show Sting right here. Just show him right here. All right. Takes a great deal of strength and a great deal of balance to execute this tremendous feat. The only active wrestler that we have seen that can perform this test of strength. All right, that's a good demonstration right there, Sheik. All right, are you ready to try it? Are you ready to try this? Yeah, okay, hold on, hold on a second. Hold, hold my belt, hold this belt. All right, so now Sting sets up. He's going to get ready. He thinks he understands how to do the Persian Club Challenge, and then he realizes... He needs the Iron Sheik to demonstrate just, just one more time. Sheik, hey Sheik, wait a second. I almost got it. Show me one more time how to do this, okay? Let me just, one more time, okay? Oh, just show me. I, I want to make sure I get this right. You know, I thought American TV champion is as smart like the Sheik World Champion, but you are an idiot. I'll show you one more time. Show him one more time. You better pay attention this time. Well, he's not quite sure. Show him one more time. All you want is one more demonstration, right? Yeah, that's it. I, I get it this time. There he is. Tremendous test of strength. You think you got it? All right, Sheik, that's good. That's good. All right. I know it's putting a tremendous strain on you there. All right, now. They look, they look heavy. It looks like he's getting tired. I think you got it now, don't you? And now Sting sets up. He thinks he's got it. He's getting ready. He's getting poised to do it. And he's just still not sure of himself. He needs the Iron Sheik to demonstrate it just one more time. You sure? Well, you want to... Hey, Sheik, I'm sorry. I apologize, okay? One more time. I, I swear, if you do it one more time, I got it. I got it down pat, Rossi. I can do this. Just show me one more time. It looks like you got it down pat. Will you do it one more time? He's a slow learner. Jim Ross, can you imagine if he was Iran and Ayatollah see that idiot... Three times I have to show that idiot what an intelligent champion he is. Well, this isn't the Ayatollah, and this isn't Iran, so if you want to do it one more time, do it. And you pay attention 
You are an idiot. This is the last time I'm going to do it. I don't know how he's doing this. This is the third time. Well, they say the third time's a charm, right? Here he goes. Takes tremendous strength, tremendous balance to do the Persian clubs. All right, Sheik, that's quite good. I think he understands now. I think he has the, the complete picture. I think he has the message is there. I, Rossi, I got the complete picture, Sheik. I just want to tell you something. There is no doubt in my mind you are the very best at swinging those Persian clubs. But wrestling in the ring, or let's call it wrestling, May 7th. Oh! Oh, I'm going to do that better than swinging the clubs anyway. All right. I think you've been duped, my friend. I think you've been duped here. You did it three times. You know, you didn't have the guts. No, May 7th in the Nashville, Tennessee. I'm going to show you who is the real champion. Cameraman, zoom it. Look at me. Well, he may be an Iranian champion, but he's not too smart and will be right back. Uh, what did you think of that segment? I thought it was pretty good. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, he, he played Sheik for a fool in typical Sting fashion, so I, I thought it was really good. I just loved it. Iron Sheik did a, he had a completely different character there than usual. Like, he was really angry and really upset. You're an idiot! You're an idiot! I had to cover my mouth during just listening to that again. It just makes me laugh the way, the way he says it and how, how angry he really sounds versus his usual typical promo there. But Sting plays dumb and cons Sheik into demonstrating the clubs three times. Sting then goes on and then just tells Sheiky, oh man, you're right. You are the best. I'm not even going to try this. I'll, I'll just beat you at wrestling there. And they'll meet at the Music City Showdown, the Wrestle War on May 7th. Sting walks off, leaving the Sheik looking stupid and, and he's pissed off. This fits the current Sting character. And if you want to follow this up properly, I think maybe Sheik should attack Sting during a match to get revenge for making him look like an ass. Or maybe not if, you know, they're not planning on doing anything with Sheik beyond this, but I thought it was great. I thought Sheik's responses were better than anything. I thought everybody handled this well. Best thing, and I'm not saying it was, uh, you know, a masterpiece or anything, but certainly the best thing Sting's done all year long so far. The best thing they've given him to do, I should say. It's not like he couldn't handle yeah. more, but yeah, certainly the best thing Sting's done so far this year. And it's kind of funny too. We we've mentioned when he had nothing going for him, like no no angle, no feud, no nothing. He was just horsing around on the promos and and in the ring and stuff. Look at this. He has something to do, and look at him. He's being serious. I mean, he's still playing his his gimmick and his character, but that we don't have the accents. We don't have any of that stuff. He's he's being Sting the way he should be, and it, it's amazing what happens when you give these guys something to do. We move into the next match, the Simone SWAT team over Greg Evans and George South. Back superplex from Samu and Fatu with the top rub splash, and Evans ends this one in about three minutes. So during this match, we learned that a couple of matches for next week's episode of World Championship Wrestling. We learned that Road Warrior Animal is going to meet Dr. Death in a designated hitter match, but nobody seems to know the rules quite yet. We also learned that next week will mark the debut of the Dynamic Dudes. God help us all. It was also announced that the SST will face the Dudes at the pay-per-view, which is also next week. So Dudes haven't even debuted yet, and they already have a pay-per-view match. <laughs> they must have had high expectations for them. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I thought it was crazy that they got announced for a pay-per-view match already. The one thing that uh, I picked up on after this SST match, it's really hard to say. Like, It's crazy to even think about this, but it's really hard to say who's been more impressive since they've made their debut between the SST and Muda. They both have stood out as really different from what's going on. They're over, and they're just the, the my two favorite things to look forward to on these shows is the SST and Muda. So I can't tell you who I thought was better. Yeah, definitely the better squash matches for sure uh, between Muda and, and also the SST matches. 
I think Muda is more believable in the, you know, that main event type slot, or he certainly will be fairly soon than, than maybe the SST, but that's not taking anything away from SST. I agree with you. Both guys, both the SST and Muda have both been uh, highly enjoyable to watch on TV. Yeah, I just mean on the entertainment alone, like these guys, man, it's hard to pick who's been more entertaining, but awesome stuff from all I'm gonna give the, those guys. Yeah, I'm just going to give the slight edge to Muda there for me. And, and had Samu just kept hitting people over the head with a pineapple every week, maybe the SST would have won it. But, you know, that was a one-time deal and it's too, just too bad. We go to a promo with Ricky Steamboat, and this is basically the reverse of earlier in the show. This time, Ric Flair interrupts Ricky Steamboat during his promo. Flair says he doesn't need an invitation. I found it funny that Steamboat was upset that Flair interrupted him, even though the Dragon had already come out and done the same thing earlier in the show. Flair puts over Steamboat as the greatest athlete he's ever faced. Uh, he explains he must win at Wrestle War in order to survive in the world and afford his lifestyle. So he paints a picture of what Ric Flair, the character, and really Ric Flair, the real, real-life human being, what drives him, both in the wrestling world and in real life, like I said. So Flair will wrestle next week, he claims, to show Steamboat just what he's all about. Yeah, I thought this was pretty good. I think Ross was the one who made the comment, no one invited you here, and Flair went off and said, Ross, if I showed up to your house with these three ladies, you'd say, come on in, the party's, the party's started. So you can clearly tell Flair has completely, like I stated earlier, flipped his gimmick around and from going to where he didn't think he could beat Steamboat to having all the confidence in the world. Just tremendous work from Ric Flair. It's interview time. Uh, total package Lex Luger, U.S. champion out there. He talks facing Michael Hayes at Wrestle War. Says he can't stand the thought of Hayes as the U.S. champion. You and me both, buddy. Uh, we hear of a recent match in Chicago that that would be the tag team match where Hayes had pinned Luger using that foreign object in that tag match we saw earlier on syndication. Uh, Luger's promo, I mean, it was a Luger promo. It talks about you don't get a body like this by talking big. It's hard work and dedication that pays off. I don't remember Hayes discussing bodies, nor do I understand what the body has to do with a wrestling match. Uh, Luger focuses far too much on on his physique here, basically making his physique sound like he's that, that automatically makes him the better wrestler. And he is the better wrestler, don't get me wrong, but it's not because of his physique. This is definitely a heel mentality, even if it was supposed to be a face promo, or at least that's the way it came off to me. I didn't really take it that way, but I could see it. It's kind of like Hayes talking about being the sexiest wrestler alive. Nobody's talking about that except Hayes. And then I guess Luger's retaliating by talking about how great his body is. But before, like, this, this is one of those little things that we kind of both look out for. Luger's necklace barely fits around his neck these days. Like, it used to hang kind of low down toward his pectoral region. Yeah. Now it's, like, up on his Adam's apple, and it barely fits. And I'm like, this has to be the same chain that he's always wore. But he's just gotten jacked to the gills, yeah. like, yeah, way too a, big. And, that's Yeah, that's that's putting it mildly. Just um, quite, it's an amazing change for, in form. What, what is it, two months? It's yeah. like, oh, my God, this can't. It, there's no way that's healthy. I mean, you can look like a million bucks, but there's absolutely no way. Well, you see the position he's in now, so. Yeah, it's unfortunate, it man. Yeah. And we move on to Luger's future opponent, Michael Hayes in the ring against Steve Casey. Uh, noted here that Byron Scott's still here as a referee, and that has to be awkward with his dad fired. I'll say this, uh, and I said it already, I'll say it again. Heel Hayes is a zillion times better than Babyface Hayes, and he still isn't very good, at least in a singles push here. He's just tons and tons better. I can, I can almost tolerate him as a heel in singles. Casey has somehow regressed, gotten worse lately, or maybe it's just that Michael Hayes brings the worst out in people because Casey just looked lost and he blows several spots here. The match just goes two minutes. Hayes wins with the DDT over Casey in about two minutes, but it's clear at this point, Steve Casey's a full-blown jobber, no longer getting pushed. 
he hasn't been seen as much. I mean, I know we've seen him on a couple of these syndicated shows, but before he was on every episode and was getting working. And I just wonder if they stopped using him and then they realized he was still there. So they put him back on and maybe he's just rusty, but I'll take the bait. And I, I, it's probably is because Michael Hayes made him look like crap. Yeah, this is not the match. It's uh, main event time, and we get another tag team main event with the U.S. Tag Team Champions, Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. This week, they're taking on the World Tag Team Champions, Mike Rotunda and Dr. Death. The WWE Network actually edits out uh, the entrance, and uh, you miss a couple things when they do that. If you've got the live version like I do, you'll notice Gilbert is now rocking the Hot Stuff theme by Donna Summers once again. I guess the new bookers don't care about the legalities. Hey, Uncle Ted has money bags. Let's, uh, let's throw some real songs out there for these guys to get over with. And again, Eddie Gilbert's on the booking committee, so that may have played into it as well. The other thing you're missing is uh, another segment with uh, Nancy Sullivan woman jumping Rick Steiner and handing him a present at ringside. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they edited it out when they clearly used generic music to cover up hot stuff on several other occasions. So not really sure why the entrance was edited out, especially with a, when you're furthering the storyline between woman and Rick Steiner here. But that's what you missed if you only have the WWE Network version. So Doc is back wearing the red singlet here. He's not in blue anymore. I'm not sure if that means anything, if I'm reading too much into it, or Doc just said I'm going back to Oklahoma red. But match is a no contest. Uh, not even three and a half minutes in, we go to a no contest. Match is going along swimmingly when Kevin Sullivan shows up at ringside and tries to cut Eddie Gilbert's hair randomly. Then he tries to cut Missy Hyde's hair when she tries to intervene and keep him from cutting Eddie's. As Sullivan goes after Missy, though, Iron Man hits and the roadies return to make the save. And if you're watching the WWE Network version, it doesn't have nearly the same effect with that awful generic music. Just happy-go-lucky music, nothing even remotely close to Iron Man. It ruins the entire thing for me when I watch the Network version. So what I did was I grabbed a soundbite of the actual live version. I wanted to play that for everyone. Down the floor, and now Solomon's going to cut Missy's hair. Wait a minute. Here come the Road Warriors! The Road Warriors! It is breaking loose here! Dr. Death and Hawk are hooking it up! Here comes the big animal! Adam and Williams are getting it all! The crowd is standing! This place is pandemonium and bedlam! Spider and Tundra fighting on the outside! The Road Warriors intersecting themselves! But Sullivan cut some of Eddie Gilbert's hair. Missy Hyatt was thrown to the mat by Kevin Sullivan. I have, we're out of time, man. And if I was really smart, I would have grabbed a soundbite of the network version so I could have compared it here for everyone to listen to. But if you have the WWE Network, make sure you go check that out and just compare what I just played compared to what you see on the, the network version. It's night and day. Completely, It feels like a completely different angle. They just kind of run out on the network version and like, that's it. But when you have Iron Man, these two big dudes coming out with their spikes on and just ready to beat the brakes off somebody. Just tremendous, tremendous stuff. I love the Road Warriors now. <laughs> I completely flipped 180 on them and it's, they're, they're a joy to watch. And uh, after watching the main event of last week's show and this week's show, the SST match last week, the Varsity Club match this week with Gilbert and Steiner, I won't judge it here just yet, but I'm starting to see a formula here, and I'm hoping it's just a coincidence right now and not a weekly occurrence. But again, we're promised a really great TV main event, and again, it only lasts a few minutes before it becomes an angle. 
I'm fine with angles, but we still need to see some good matchups here. We still need to see some form of wrestling. And this was a great angle, but still, please don't keep promising us these things week to week. And then, you know, giving us a three or four minute match that just leads into an angle. I just want to see some form of a, of a wrestling match. But not only are they getting this many matches over, they're getting it in half the time. This is a one-hour program versus the normal two-hour program. Did George Scott look at this and go, wow, I suck? Or did he look at this and crap on it? I, I don't see how he could. Yeah, I don't see how he could either. It makes me wonder, too, like if they just want to put these matches together to, to bring in the ratings. And it, it kind of goes back to what Dusty was doing. No conclusive finishes and just angle to angle and that can wear out its walking rather quickly because eventually you're going to want to see you know a 10 to 12 minute main event on tv where you actually got a winner to make these matches meaningful and so far uh like you mentioned it's just three or four minutes and then an angle's being shot so we'll see we'll see how it goes but um so far so good with this new regime for sure yeah, I don't want to go back to the days of protecting everyone on the roster. Nobody can do the job like 1970s WWF when, when SD Jones and Jose Estrada were getting DQ'd half the time on TV and not even doing jobs. I just, I don't want to go back to that. I, I want to see some finishes and I don't mind the finish here. It makes sense. I didn't expect the varsity club to do a job here or Eddie and Steiner. Well, maybe Eddie and Steiner. It's possible. They could have furthered things that way with the Sullivan interference or something like that. But I was really more depressed last week because I really wanted to see that SST Gilbert and Steiner. I was really looking forward to that, and it just wound up being an angle. I feel like I got shafted. I feel like I got shafted on Worldwide with those main events that, you know, we saw the highlights the last few minutes of those. Like I said, I won't judge it here yet, but I hope this isn't like an ongoing thing going into the future. We move on to Sunday night, April 30th, our final show of this week. It's the NWA main event hosted by Jim Ross and Paulie Dangerously from Center Stage Theater. Get a bunch of highlights here, extended highlights of the Luger and Hayes feud. More highlights for the World Tag Team title feud between the Road Warriors and and the Varsity Club. Jim Ross previews all the matches for WrestleWar 89. We learned the entire card, or pretty much the entire card. And then, of course, highlights of the Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair feud. So this entire show was just a, a hodgepodge of highlights setting up all the matches for WrestleWar. I didn't mind it. It was the main event program, so I was fine with that. Yeah, I like it, too. You got to get that one last hard sell in and push those last second buys because Meltzer mentions it a lot. Impulse buy is like the biggest component of pay-per-view buys. So people ain't going to buy it three or four weeks out. You got to sell it that last week or two to get those impulse buys. And uh, doing a recap show and hyping everything is definitely a good way to get people to buy it. And Steve, that'll uh, conclude April, and we'll be moving into May, and we'll be back next week with another hybrid episode of The Grenade as we take a look at NWA notes, news, and TV for the weekend of May 6th, and then we'll transition that show right into the watch-along on the WWE Network with WrestleWar89. And I think all we're missing there is the Oak Ridge Boys concert, so this is one instance where I'm okay with the edit. Yeah, me too. Country music concert in the middle of a wrestling pay-per-view. Next week, we'll also announce the winner of our very first Wrestling Memory Grenade free prize giveaway. Your chance at winning an absolutely free autographed 1989 promo pick of Total Package Lex Luger. And all you have to do is live inside the United States and follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. We'll be drawing the name at random over the weekend leading into our next episode to verify you are inside the United States. uh, We'll be contacting you on Twitter, so please reply to our Twitter DM in a timely manner. We'll include the winner announcement in our podcast prior to the WrestleWar 89 watch-along. And international fans, don't you worry. Even though we've got all sorts of issues going on here in the States with our postal service right now, me and Steve are brainstorming and coming up with some nice free digital gift ideas to give away in the future to our listeners outside of the States as well. 
We want to be fair to everyone, both here in the United States and worldwide. So be on the lookout for international giveaways in the future as well in the form of digital goodies. Our next giveaway, however, will be in the form of another autograph promo pick, this time of the Enforcer, Double A, Arn Anderson. And we'll have more news on that in the coming weeks, so keep listening to our podcast and keeping up with our announcements on Twitter for your opportunity to win the autographed Arn Anderson picture in the not-too-distant future. Steve, i got to thank you again for hanging out here, hanging all night tonight to plow through April and get ready for the WrestleWar 89 watch-along. I'm really excited. They've really turned things on here in April with the new booking regime, and it has me geared up and ready to go for this watch-along next week. Yeah, I mean, compared to, you know, rolling into Chi-Town Rumble and things like that, when we really had no idea what the card was, same with Clash 6, uh, we actually got some great angles, great lineup, and things that, uh, you know, you're actually invested in, ready to see, like, the outcome and see where it goes. So uh, the watch-alongs going to be awesome. They're really fun to do, and I have a feeling we're not going to be able to just sit back and talk about random stuff a lot. Uh, I feel like this show is going to be a lot better, a lot, more, a lot better pacing and things like that. So um, I'm excited for it. Yeah, I definitely see us focusing a lot more on the actual content on the pay-per-view. I'm sure the matches are going to be going a little quicker and uh, a lot more energy on the show, a lot more heat behind the matches. We're not going to get a 15-minute armbar from Michael Hayes or a 20-minute chin lock from Butch Reed here. So I'm very eager. I can't wait to get to the show next week. I'm going to try to skim through the show, grab a few sound bites for everyone while we're watching the show. Other than that, man, I just really appreciate your time this week. I, I know we ran long. I hope everybody stuck with us. We wanted to get through April. We wanted to get to Wrestle War. We wanted to get that promo pick of Lex Luger out there. And that promo pick, is it is that pre-steroid Luger? I, well, I don't know if there, anything is ever pre-steroid Luger, but is that before he got completely jacked up to these gills here, was that like pre-Clash of the Champions 6 Luger or pre-Shytown Rumble Luger? I don't think so. I think this is probably right around the time frame that we're in right now. I mean, okay. he looks pretty big. The veins are popping off, and uh, <laughs> he's wearing the U.S. title. So uh, I think this was after he beat Barry Windham, and it was this title run because the hair and stuff matches up to where we're at right now. So it's perfect. It's the perfect first giveaway just because Luger is a big part of the NWA in 1989. To me, he's one of the greatest U.S. champions of all time. So. I have one for myself already in the collection, so I'm happy to give one out to somebody else. So keep on listening to the grenade and look how you get the chance to win that. Definitely a, a very timely prize with uh, Luger being the U.S. champion right now and uh, the promo pick basically dictating his 1989 run. So, yeah, everything works out there really nicely. It's not going to work like that every time, but if you guys have really been enjoying our, our NWA reviews, then you'll this should coincide with it very nicely. If uh, Good luck to everyone out there who follows us on Twitter and tries with their chance to win the prize. And on that note, I guess it's time to go. We better get ready and prepare for next week. I don't know exactly how long that show is going to run, but I do know the pay-per-view runs about two and a half hours since the Oak Ridge Boys concert has been canceled <laughs> by the WWE Network anyway. Steve, uh, once again, thank you, man, and I'll see you next week for the watch-along. Yeah, I can't wait. It's a pleasure being here. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Okay, and I don't want to keep you guys, so I'll make this a quick one. I know you guys have stuck with us through this ultra mega mass four hour episode of the grenade and we can't thank you guys enough for your loyalty and, and interest. We'll be back next week for the wrestle war watch along. And I promise you that's going to be a whole lot of fun. Just a reminder to go follow us on Twitter at wrestling grenade. That's at wrestling grenade, R A S S L I N grenade for your chance at winning any number of our upcoming free prize giveaways. Please continue to spread the word about the grenade to help us continue to grow. And also, please visit the gang over at theretronetwork.com and follow them on Twitter at TRN Social for all the latest articles, podcasts, and more from decades gone by. And with that, I'm Ray Russell, and from my co-host, Stephen Ekstadt, 
We hope you enjoyed this week's edition, even if you had to chop it up into a few sittings. We had fun recording it, and we appreciate you taking the time to let us into your home, or car, or job, or wherever it is you guys find the time to give us a listen. So from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin, we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there! You pay attention! You are an idiot!